It is now, I think. Welcome to May 26, 2016. Um, could we get a motion on the record plats? Move approval. Second. On favor? Aye. Opposed? That one is approved. The uh, Bethesda Metro Center Project Plan Amendment and Site Plan Amendment. Uh, we should just get separate votes for the two. Okay. You want? Okay. Let's do the Bethesda Metro Center item. Move approval on the site plan. Second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? That's approved. And we need a separate vote on the project plan amendment, or did you just did you mean separate on the uh, SGE thing? No, I'm sorry. I just meant separate on project plan and site plan amendment. So yeah, okay. So she just did the site plan. And also move approval for the site uh, for the project plan amendment for Bethesda. Second. All in favor? Aye. Opposed? That's okay too. The ISG building preliminary plan amendment. Approval. Second. On favor? Aye. Opposed? That's approved. And the uh, Westboro sector plan. Uh, resolution of adoption and transmission to the full commission. Second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? That's approved. And the minutes from uh, May 9th and May 12th. Second. All in favor? Aye. Opposed? Those are good to go. And it's time for the park director's report. Good morning. Good afternoon. Well, I guess I'm a little giddy. Uh, I'm, I'm going to use the terms budget and happy in the same sentences this morning. Um, Mike Riley here for my uh, biweekly park director's report. Uh, I'm going to spend the majority of it uh, highlighting uh, aspects of the budget that the county council adopted finally today. They had uh, their final decisions a week ago, but today was the final final where they vote on the resolution. So I'm going to spend the majority of time giving you some highlights of the Parks CIP and the uh, Parks Operating Budget. But a few other items before I get to that. Uh, this morning uh, started out on a great note. Uh, the county council uh, uh, under Councilmember Reamer did a proclamation honoring our park trail volunteers this morning which, uh, of course, our chair uh, was present for that. And it started out with a nice breakfast at 8.30 up at the council office building in Rockville and then the proclamation at uh, 9.30. Uh, it was to honor our volunteers who inspect, maintain, repair, and build uh, park natural surface trails. Just some statistics that were uh, discussed this morning. We have... Uh, last year, in fiscal year 15, we had over 900 uh, volunteers participating in the program who dedicated over 6,000 hours of service. Uh, we had 80 distinct uh, 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 trail work projects where over six miles of natural surface trails were either constructed or repaired, and we estimated the volunteer uh, contribution just for that year in monetary terms over $140,000. So we had at least, I didn't, I didn't count, I'm guessing about 25 to 30 uh, uh, trail volunteers and group representatives there this morning to receive the proclamation. Some of the groups were the uh, Student Conservation Association, uh, the Mid-Atlantic Off-Road uh, Enthusiasts, otherwise known as MORE. We had the Boy Scouts there who do a lot of work on our trails, the Potomac, Potomac Appalachian Trail Club. 
a group called Seneca Amigos, who focus on the Seneca Greenway Trail, the Trails Conservancy, and the Trail Riders of today. So uh, it was a wonderful uh, recognition of the great work that those uh, groups do for us and the uh, also recognition of the value of natural surface trails, which I think, you know, uh, in that particular program, what I always think of is in, the, in, in our mission statement, we're always talking about balancing the interests of development and active recreation against conservation. And natural surface trails actually get people into our natural areas where they can appreciate them in addition to participating in active recreation like off-road biking and uh, getting fit and health and wellness. So it's a great program as far as marrying the interest of those two, um, those two needs. Now, in the report that was just handed out to you, I will just highlight some of the topics without going in, into them. Um, on uh, uh, page uh, two, you, top of page two, you will see we had our park, annual Park Police Awards Ceremony uh, this week uh, where we honor the acts of um, our park police officers throughout the year. It was well attended by uh, elected officials uh, fellow police agencies and other dignitaries, and uh, the chair again and I were there to uh, participate in honoring our our park police for uh, a, a large number of unusual acts of above and beyond the call of duty this year. So I just want to thank them again for keeping the park safe, which leads to the exceptional visitation we have in our parks throughout the year. Uh, on page three, beginning at the bottom of page three, you'll see some statistics about Earth Month. We always have a huge volunteer uh, effort during Earth Month, and uh, you'll see some of the numbers there for volunteer hours and the amount of trash that was removed from the parks. Um, on uh, page uh, four, you will also see, sticking with volunteers, some statistics about corporate volunteer efforts in the parks. Um, and then on page five, you'll see a list of new staff we have hired uh, over the last month. I want to highlight uh, one of them who's here with us today. Catherine Coelho is your clerk for the first time today. So please go easy on her. If there's a glitch or a mistake, remember, first time uh, on the job here today helping out. Um, one of our great hires in the director's office. And then uh, on page uh, seven, we have our, a list of our events that, for you to peruse in case you're interested in attending any of them. Uh, we try to make sure the board is informed of particular events that we do uh, want attendance at. Uh, we have some big ones coming up uh, with the uh, dedication of Woodlawn Barn Visitor Center on uh, June 11th. That's the one I will highlight uh, and hope some of you can make that. It's just a magnificent facility. And now I'm going to get to the budgets. So I'll start with the CIP. Uh, just some numbers for refreshers. We submitted a $194 million six-year budget. County executive's recommendation was only $166 million, which was $28 million short, and uh, pretty much cut all of our increases in level of effort projects that required general obligation bonds. The council at the end of the day restored $18 million back, which brought the CIP to $184 million over the six years. So I just wanted to take a minute and talk about specific projects where we either um, 
were uh, supported by the council or that uh, things that got cut. And I'll, I'll start out with the good and then I'll go to the bad. Uh, starting with the good, uh, county executive made a substantial uh, cut in uh, non-local parkland acquisition. The re council restored uh, all of it uh, except $450,000. Moving to ball field improvements, which you know athletic fields is a big focus for us. County executives substantially cut it. The council not only fully restored it to our request, they added another uh, $750,000 from community use of public facilities for us to uh, continue renovating school, elementary, and middle fields. So again, we got our full request and some more. On to minor new construction uh, of non-local parks. The county executive cut that substantially. Uh, and uh, the council fully uh, funded it and also added money to restore Maydale Nature Center. The interesting thing about that uh, story is when the uh, discussion started at the council about Maydale, we said, fine, that's a great project, but we had a whole bunch of other projects prioritized in front of that that were defunded. So if you're going to put Maydale back in, please restore all those other projects, and that's exactly what they did. So real success story there. We not only got Maydale, we got all those other things that had been prioritized in front of it. Uh, Ovid, Hayes well, Wells Ovid Hayes and Wells Recreational Park is in as submitted. Okay, so we'll finally get going there. I know a lot of people are happy about that. That includes the carousel, right? That includes the carousel. Yay. Yes, it does. Not only relocating the historic carousel to Clarksburg, but a brand new carousel for the... Yeah. So, so the you can tell your friends in Clarksburg that we, in fact, are going to bat for them, contrary to popular belief. With only two months left, they got it done. <laughs> we did. Now, on to the big money. Uh, planned life cycle asset replacement, the thing that is not particularly glamorous for elected officials but is so essential to maintain the system. County executive cut $6 million of our request. Council fully restored it at the end, which is absolutely wonderful. Uh, restoration of historic structures was cut, uh, and then the, the, the big project there was continuing restoration of the Jessup Blair House, and that money was put back. Uh, and the, again, uh, sticking with the big ones, three trails projects, hard surface design and construction, hard surface renovation, and natural surface trails. County executive cut them all substantially, and the council fully funded our requests for all the trail programs. Last good news, urban park elements. Uh, this is our, again, along the theme of activating urban park. This is adding amenities, exciting amenities to our parks that will draw people in. We'd asked for 1.5 million, the executive cut it totally uh, to zero, and the council fully restored it, 1.5 million. So we will go forth and do exciting things in urban parks, there's no question. A uh, little bit of the bad news on the CIP. Uh, the Little Bennett Trail Connector project, uh, which we had asked for funding for construction in the out years, the council only put a little bit of planning money in the end of the CIP. So that project is in but substantially delayed. Um, on uh, stream protection and pollution prevention, uh, those two projects, we did not get our, our requests. 
but the good news is that we're going to go back to a joint T&E Fed committee to discuss funding that with water quality protection funding at the recommendation of the council president. So we may, there's still hope in those two areas. Uh, and the, uh, the last piece of bad news is we did not get the Walpark garage in this CIP, but the direction from the council was we support that project when it's ready uh, to go, come back, and we'll consider supplemental appropriation. What was the problem with that? Because if I well, – tell me, because I remember yes. that they were waiting for the developer or something. Yeah, what was the, happening? the developer next door to Wall Park is uh, Gables, and uh, they are uh, building a garage for their own private purposes, and they have reserved property to build spaces to replace the surface lot on Wall Park. And there was a lot of back-and-forth discussion during the deliberation on the CIP about certain prerequisites in front of Gables before they would actually move forward. One was roads, some roads need to be realigned, and the other was real estate related, that they still needed to gain rights to some real estate that the county controlled. Uh, and another private entity had a right of first refusal on. So I've just met with the county, with Gables, um, uh, with the White Flint coordinator, and we're trying to sort out all the real story here. And my position is, as soon as we're clear that Gables is moving forward with that garage and there's nothing standing in their way, we will go back to the council and put it in front of them for a decision. If the council decides to fund it, um, the parking for the aquatic center will be built as part of the for, uh, by Gables now. As part of their garage. If the council doesn't fund it, we would still at least have space reserved on that property to build it later. But that would be much more expensive, much less efficient for us to come in and have to do that later. And what we really want, of course, is to get White Flint at Civic Green, not a parking lot. We want them to have a park. So that's, that's our goal. So I would say the good news on the CIP is 80 to 90 percent good. No. Thank you for your support. Uh, on the CIP. Um, let me move to the operating budget. Uh, Mike, before you move on, I have a question. Um, what I can't remember what the status was of the merry-go-round that was supposed to go from Wheaton to, uh, to Clarksburg to Ovid Hazen Wells. Ovid Hazen. The first phase of Ovid Hazen Wells is funded. Do we have another carousel yet? Well, we, we, the enterprise fund has budgeted. We will make sure there is no downtime of a carousel in Wheaton. The enterprise fund is budgeted to buy a new carousel for Wheaton. Won't be historic. It'll probably be brand new. Well, I have a, a lead on a carousel. Okay. I was at Nima Cullen Resort this last weekend for a company retreat, and they have a carousel, and they're having a custom one made by Amish woodworker somewhere in the air region, and it's almost ready to, to replace the one they have, which is, looks brand new anyway. Um, so they might surplus theirs or tell you where you can get one made. I will or, have Christy uh, Turnbull, Chief of Enterprise, look into it. But the one they had up there was pretty nice. It, it may not be custom-made, but it, it, was, it was pretty nice. So okay. they may surplus one. We can look into it. Okay, on the operating budget, uh, as you know, uh, the, the recommendation of, uh, that came from the executive this year very different than the prior uh, year since the recession. It was full funding of our request, less about uh, half a million dollars that uh, we, we solved by um, um, 
deferring a, a, a bond issuance and having a better interest rate than anticipated. So basically there was no pain to that uh, cut, and that is what made it out of the council at the end of the day uh, was the uh, budget the uh, executive recommended plus a little, a little bit uh, extra in certain areas. So uh, the end number was uh, for the park fund was 96 million, 96.3. That doesn't include enterprise, special revenue. If you add those funds in, the uh, general uh, the budget to operate the parks is a little bit over $100 million uh, dollars, uh, annually. So it funded um, uh, increases for compensation for our employees, uh, operating budget impacts for new parks and amenities, uh, additional funding for mandates such as uh, uh, NPDES, uh, program access under the Americans with Disabilities Act, and then minimum wage increases. Uh, in addition, it included additional resources to address identified deficiencies in the work program, as well as emerging trends aimed at meeting the needs of the future. And those thematic areas uh, that you approved involved public safety, uh, activating urban parks, uh, and maintaining quality parks, trails, and ball fields, uh, in addition to achieving uh, departmental uh, efficiency. So in the end, 18, there is 18 new positions approved for the parks. Uh, approximately half of those fall in the area of um, uh, operating budget impact and uh, mandates. So it's the, half of them roughly are just keeping up with growth in the system, and then the other half are to move to the future with uh, priorities and efficiencies. So I'm very excited. I think the whole department is very excited, and uh, I think you should hold us all accountable throughout the year to make sure that uh, we deliver on the efficiencies and the, and the new services that we've uh, promised throughout the year, and that's my pledge, and I think the department is poised to move forward into the future with this budget. Yeah, there are two. Uh, I'd highlight in addition to what you said, you know, certainly the trails was a huge uh, success to get the both operating budget and uh, capital budget to support that and urban parks and ball fields. But the other two uh, that you may remember were the additional support for marketing and the um, performance officer. So that, I think, really gives us the opportunity over the next year to show that that money can deliver more revenue from marketing our programs more effectively and cutting costs by having somebody whose job is to figure out where we can get uh, efficiencies in our operations and the way we build stuff. So I think that is huge opportunity. And as you say, now's the hard part. Now we got we get the money. We got to prove that that was a good investment. But I'm as excited as you are. Maybe more so. I don't know. We could have a contest to see who's more excited. <laughs> I want to thank the entire board for uh, uh, supporting uh, the park's budget and its formation. A lot of great deliberation, and particularly the chair for um, aggressively pursuing it with our elected officials. It was a great team effort, including the board, as well as the staff. Okay. Um, and I'm sorry, I'm remiss if I don't thank my great team. That's the leadership mistake here. My leadership team that prepared the budget um, made sure everything was justified and that uh, nothing came up during the budget process 
where any analyst or official questioned its legitimacy. It was all a matter of whether the resources were there to support it. So I think that says a lot about the preparation of the budget. Absolutely. Okay, uh, time for the uh, operating budget adjustment request. For the record, uh, Nancy Steen, Budget Manager, Montgomery Parks, and I definitely agree with Mike. It's nice to come in with good news on the budget for a change. Uh, today, I'm here actually requesting approval for a budget adjustment for FY16 operating budget, and this request is to reallocate $624,600 in funding from personnel services so that we can utilize this money for other services and charges and for capital outlay. Uh, last week, you received an update on projections for this fiscal year from Joe Zimmerman, our Secretary-Treasurer. And that update, you were told that the department is projecting savings of just over $1.6 million for the park fund. And of that savings, $1.2 million of it is projected to be in personnel services. So we are requesting to have the opportunity to utilize some of those personnel savings to handle some of our critical operational requests. Uh, funding from that will be used to provide for demolition of a dairy barn that is in poor condition and it poses a safety risk. And the other funding will be used to purchase a number of unfunded capital equipment requests. As you know, we always have a number of equipment requests and not enough funding to cover for a lot of our older equipment. And so we have a variety of items on our request list and we've provided further detail on that list in our memo. After making these reference purchases, the department is still projecting to meet or exceed the FY16 targeted savings plan of just over $1.3 million. So therefore, since we are going to be making our savings plan, we are requesting that the planning board approve this funding transfer request. Can I ask you a quick question? I agree with the demolition, but isn't that a historic site? Isn't, I thought we weren't allowed. Um, I would uh, mm, have to answer that question. Um, I think it is on the property. I'm not sure that that particular barn is historic. I mean, I, I think it is a, an older barn. I think what they're more concerned about is it's truly a safety issue. I'm with you. Point. I'm with you 100%. I just, so. I was curious. Yeah, when they designate the site, they identify very specifically what is the historic resource, what is the contributing, what are the contributing resources, what's the historic setting. So there's all kinds of, you know, rules if you are in the historic setting or you're affecting a contributing resource, you have a lot of restrictions, but there may be things on the property that are not covered. Yeah. 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 I don't think there's an issue there, and I'm, I would have to defer to our property management people, but I'm sure they're well aware of what the guidelines are and what they so can and can't do. So. <laughs> so any more questions? Okay. Uh, motion? I move approval. For the budget adjustment? Right. Second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? That's approved. Thank you. Okay. Thank you.
other part. Okay. Do we have everybody we need for um, Snow for School Road? For the record, good afternoon. My name is Ed Axler, presenting um, the fourth agenda item, Snuffer School Road, uh, North Web Track, Mandatory Referral, MR 2014-03. The overall, the site is in the uh, Gaithersburg vicinity master plan, and what we're dealing with is the the segment, the purple segment between Center Way and Ridge Heights Drive. The segment in, in red, if, if you've been, if some of you might remember, I'm not sure, in October 2012, it was a separate mandatory referral from Center Way to Woodfield Road. Um, and, uh, Again, that also was the widened Snuffer School Road to four lanes. The presentation will be done in five parts. I'll be presenting part A, mandatory referral. Matt Harper will be presenting the park impacts. And Amy Lindsay will present the three forest conservation plans. The Project limits, as I said, is between uh, Ridge Heights, Ridge Heights Drive, and Centerway Lane, uh, Center Centerway Road. And in more detail, you see that on the east side you have the County Multi Agency Service Park and Lois Green Conservation Park. On the west side, you have Cabin John. Branch Park. This is a brief history that could would uh, I like to say the original road widening of Snuffer School Road from Centerway was from Centerway to Gosha as part of the policy area review test for Web Tract a long time ago. But however, when the county acquired the Web Tract for the County Service Park. They instituted the CIP project, they established the project, and they chose to widen 
Snarfuskol Road from Centerway to Ridge Heights drive the entire frontage of the service park. But in 2012, they reduced the funding of the project to only widen Snarfuskol Road from two to four lanes to Turkey Thicket Drive, or the southernmost entrance. In other words, the concept was that the truck traffic from the service park was going to leave Circuit a turkey thicket, go down Snofferskull Road to the south and New Center Way, not go to the north. That was an underlying concept there. The project description is to widen Snofferskull Road, as I said, between two to four lanes to Turkey Thicket Drive, then taper back to one to uh, two lanes to Ridge, Ridge Drive, Ridge Heights Drive. It, the, the major element of this project is to provide a safe access to and from the county service park. And um, also important is they're providing a shared youth, a master plan shared youth path along the east side, the entire length to Rich Heights Drive. So we're going to get our master plan shared youth path plus a sidewalk on the west side. They reconstruct two bridges and do stream restoration. Um, in terms of right-of-way, the, the existing right-of-way is 80 feet. The project requires 110 feet. The additional right-of-way is available within the county service park property and the lowest green property, um, lowest green uh, conservation park. That's where the along the on the east side, no right away will be tamed, obtained from the west side. This is an example of the cross sections that shows that on the east side, the the uh, shared youth pass the wet. The west side of the Sheriff's Path, no, the east side of the Sheriff's Pass, the east side of the sidewalk, and the two lane and the um, one lane and two lane section. It, the uh, construction will be done in two phase, first on the east and then on the west, and, um, and obviously will include reconstruction of the bridges, two bridges. And Conclusion, the staff recommendations are one and two refers to um, ADA accessible ramps that, um, and now one and three is ADA accessible ramp. Three is the trap providing traffic signals, which is part of the project. Four is uh, because of limited constraints, there's, we would like to see possibly more street trees if where we can fit them in where feasible. Uh, ensure adequate light in five and five is um, stream restoration as it reads. In conclusion, I'd like to please note that the planning board must take action on the forest conservation plans before the mandatory referral. And this is the end of my presentation. I'm happy to answer any questions. 
Okay. Uh, unless there are any immediate uh, questions or comments, I wanted to invite our friends from the County Department of Transportation to uh, make any presentation they'd like to. I'm sorry? We oh, do you want to do, do the Forest Conservation? Oh, I'm sorry. And there's speakers. Oh, okay. Sorry. If you could hold off just for a minute. Now, okay. For the record, Matt Harper with the Park Planning and Stewardship Division at Montgomery County Parks. Uh, so Ed's given you a bit of background on uh, the project itself. I just wanted to highlight some of the park impacts associated with um, with this, this road widening. Um, you have the context of where we are in Gaithersburg. Um, zooming in, uh, we have uh, the project sort of bisecting two parks. Uh, it's Lois White Green Conservation Park to the east and Cabin Branch Stream Valley Park to the west. Um, and basically crossing two, two streams, um, one being Cabin uh, Cabin Branch, uh, so sort of the main stream, and then a tributary of Cabin Branch, which is referred to in this project as Tributary 69. So I want to start out by talking about the uh, roadway project itself, and uh, as Ed had talked about, that sort of 30 feet on the northeast side uh, that extends into Lois White Green Conservation Park. This is the existing conditions as they are now. Uh, we're dealing with a very sort of extensive, like wide floodplain, uh, well forested um, along the Cap and Branch Stream Valley. And um, what we expect or, or what the design is going to show is something similar to um, what is shown here, uh, where it's going to be obviously widened. We've worked with Montgomery County DOT um, very hard to sort of minimize the impacts associated with this widening and we're um, that's sort of an ongoing process. The other thing that we've been working on them with is to ensure that those two crossings of Tributary 69 and of uh, Cabin Branch are sort of environmentally sensitive. Um, we're using natural channel stream design to sort of create some plunge pools at the bottom and ensure that there's fish passage uh, through both of those um, stream habitats. So the, that's sort of the part associated with the project. Um, as part of the 404 mitigation requirements of this project, um, uh, Montgomery County DOT has identified this 1,500 uh, linear feet of stream uh, in Cabin Branch to do stream restoration um, as part of the mitigation for the impacts to streams associated with the roadway itself. So um, the, there are some... Uh, existing conditions here, what we're looking at um, in this stream valley. We think this is um, a great project and something that we're definitely in favor of. And you can see there's some a lot of eroded banks. If we go back, yeah, a lot of eroded banks, sort of incised channel, um, sort of lost a lot of that connection of the stream to its floodplain. So the goals of the stream restoration would be to stabilize those banks, bring the channel up a little bit to get more access to that floodplain, sort of rejuvenate some of the wetlands that we find along there, and then also create that sort of aquatic habitat that we, um, that's always a goal in these projects to sort of make that 
um, a healthier system as a whole. So these are just some examples of projects that we've brought to you guys before that are now constructed, just sort of some of the techniques that we use to um, accomplish those goals, sort of grading the banks back, incorporating habitat, and um, stabilizing those eroded sections. Uh, this just shows where we are in the design, and I just want to say, you know, we've been working very closely um, with the OT on this project and, you know, plan to continue to do so. With that, I'll send it over to Amy. Right. For the record, Amy Lindsay, Area 2 Planning, here to present the regulatory portion of this uh, one item. There are three different regulatory plans associated with this item, which uh, is a little confusing. So I'm going to go through them uh, one at a time um, and show you how this all fits together. Part C is the Snowfer School Road Preliminary Forest Conservation Plan. Part D is the amended final forest conservation plan for the, the multi-agency services park. And part E is the amended final forest conservation plan for the Lois Y. Green Conservation Park. Once again, this just shows you uh, in context where all these items are. And this shows you the length of the road and with where the actual plans are located along it. The mandatory referral 2014038 plan essentially covers everything that those other two forest conservation plans don't cover. So I'm actually going to present that one last. This is the multi-agency services park. Um, amended final forest conservation plan MR2014738. Generally speaking, you wouldn't even see this amendment. It would be handled at the staff level because it's really just for the addition of the limits of disturbance. There is no additional forest or variance trees disturbed as part of this, but we felt it would be a giant hole if we didn't bring you the entire package. This is Lois Y. Green Conservation Park. And this is the location, as you heard with the parks presentation, where there is a lot of stream restoration activities. This, this shows you the limits of disturbance and the variance trees along the, the disturbance. Once again, this shows there, this is where tributary 69 is, there, then the cabin branch mainstream, and then there's also an intermittent tributary that has to be moved which is causing some of the disturbance as well. The two stream crossings and the one stream relocation. This amendment includes the disturbance that it comes onto that property for the road as well as the stream restoration activities and will include 2.8 acres of forest removal. Now, since that 2.8 acres of forest had been previously shown as retained, we've followed the board's policy of requiring a one-to-one -one replacement as if it was on, in a Category 1 conservation easement instead of on park property. Um, there is a variance for a removal of 10 trees and impacts to two trees that will also be mitigated for on-site. 
This is Part C, the, the Preliminary Forest Conservation Plan for Mandatory Referral 2014038. And essentially, this covers the limits of disturbance that are not on the MASP or on Lois Green Conservation Park. So that really includes this side of the bridge crossing, and there are some minor stream restoration activities over here. But this is where all the forest clearing on this plan occurs. It includes anything in the roadway and on adjacent property. And that the plan shows 0.5 acres of forest removal. And due to the worksheet, it requires 1.30 acres of reforestation and includes a variance for the removal of two trees and impacts to six trees. Here are the conditions for all three. They're in the staff reports in front of you. I just wanted to put them on the record in the PowerPoint. And with that, staff recommends uh, approval of the three forest conservation plans. And then the uh, park staff recommends approval of the project's impacts to parkland and the approval of the use of Lois Y. Green Conservation Park for Section 404 mitigation requirements. And finally, approval and transmittal of comments to Montgomery County DOT for the mandatory referral. Uh, Amy, uh, do you have a bigger picture of, is this where the end of the runway is, right before this park? Uh, yes. In fact, you can you can see a little bit of it here. Let me move up, I think. Yes. Yeah, there was a proposal by the uh, airport authority and uh, FAA to extend the runway 1,000 feet. How does that impact what you're doing here? I do not know. I have not seen that. So um, clearly that, that would have an impact at this scale. That looks like we would be in the floodplain. Just from my looking at it, if this is the particular runway they're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, one. I, did, um, I knew it was a recommendation to add 1,000 feet to it. I thought it was on this end. Um, I don't know what the status of it is. It was a recommendation by the FAA. Um, maybe you could check with the Revenue Authority or the Airport Authority to make sure that we're not doing anything in conflict with the plan they may have. Certainly. I, I, that, that's a, a wonderful idea of, yes, we do not want to plant trees where there should not be trees planted. Um, it, it is. So your, tree, your trees would actually end up at the end of the runway there? No, no, no. I, we, they haven't the figured out exactly where the trees are going to be planted, but the whole point is that we, we want to actually plan this out, and if they need to extend that runway, as you can see, there's some grading there as well. We wouldn't want to plant anything in any sort of imagined limits of disturbance. We'd rather plant a tree where we know it's going to grow. Yeah, I, don't, I don't know the current status or... That has not come in for park permit um, as of yet. And, oh, that is not close enough. That has that project has not come in for park permit, so we have not seen it yet. That would obviously have huge impacts to parkland. I know that there was an agreement a while ago, and I don't know how long ago, to extend 
you can see how there's an extensive grading onto parkland already, and I know that that was an agreement at the time. I know also that there has they're redoing some of the, I did see a planning level um, design to redo some of the stormwater management and extend the runway sort of uh, the width of it, but certainly nothing that has come through extends it in that direction. Yeah, I would, I don't, I don't know who the right, the Revenue Authority owns the airport, so it might be them, but I know there was a directive, my wife's a pilot, that's why I know all this stuff. Um, um, there was a directive by the FAA to, that they wanted the runway extended, and sometimes the federal government contributes money, and I, I just don't know the status of it. Um, Thank you for that heads up. Um, I will contact them and, and check with them because I know that, that we have had some back and forths with the, um, the airport previously in terms of trees needing to be removed and where they were going to be planted. And my last knowledge of it was that everything was still up in limbo, that they didn't want to actually replant those trees yet. So they hadn't gone forward with a number of things. But I will contact them to find out what their future plans are, certainly before we get to um, any of the the final designs of where the planting is going to be. Yeah, my recollection is that that end of the air, uh, the runway is much higher than the stream valley, even the built-up part. So I, I don't know. I, I don't know how they plan to deal with uh, parkland or not. But yeah, it would it would be significant parkland impacts if they were to want to extend. And I mean, like I said, that's right in the middle of the floodplain. So certainly something that we would be reviewing very closely. Okay. But nobody's going to plant any trees as a result of this project at the uh, end of the runway. We will make certain of that. Um, the details are still being worked out now, which is why there were a number of conditions associated with this approval. And one of them was to figure out exactly where those trees were going to, to go. And we will uh, contact the Revenue Authority yeah. to make certain. It would be nice to know if they're planning anything or even long term that, uh, so you know what to do in that section and not have to redo it. Okay. Is that, does that conclude the uh, staff presentation? Yes, it does. Okay. And uh, you're welcome to make any presentation you want. I was going to ask why you're going with 12, an outside lane over 12 feet wide. Why wouldn't 11 be uh, sufficient? That was actually worked out with our, oh, I'm sorry. I'm Dewa Silahi. I'm the project manager with Montgomery County DOT. Um, the lane widths were worked out with our division of traffic engineering and operations. That is the typical width that they um, recommend for projects. But based on what? What's the design speed of the road? We'll have to research that exact number and get it back to you. I don't want to give inaccurate information. Yeah, Mr. Axler, did you did you weigh in on this? About what I, the uh, it's posted forty miles an hour. Is design speed for forty miles an hour, or is it for more? 
I believe that's correct, Ed. Well, I, I think I'm no traffic engineer, but I think 11 feet is sufficient for a road where people are driving 40 miles an hour. I understand so these are designed to be engineered for to support a slightly higher than posted speed limit, but uh, I thought the practice now was to try to limit the lane widths to discourage speeding and also to limit impervious impacts. I mean, you could save yourself about 3,000 square feet of pavement over how many linear feet is this? 1,500 feet. And it seemed to me that was, at least that's my understanding of best practice, is not to just look up the number in the in the ITE manual, but to try to figure out what what's the speed you want to achieve and what's the minimum width to, to support a safe operation of the road. And because the trade-off is you encourage people to speed. And so, and so you know, it, the staff report does say that it's 40 miles per hour. It was confirmed. And I don't know offhand what the what IT or anyone else would say if a lane width should, should be at 40 miles an hour. But I think even an outside lane at 11 feet is ample to accommodate buses and fire trucks and, you know, other large vehicles. So I guess it uh, seems to me like we ought to make a comment that recommends that the lane width ought to be as narrow as possible to support the design speed and safe operation of the road. I would like to note that the um, only the in the two lane section, the four lane section, the outside, I guess the um, outer lane is uh, 12.3 feet wide. Correct me if I'm wrong. The other lanes you claim are 11 foot. Yeah, inside it says eleven is inside and twelve, twelve. So, and so you pro you want to have the outer lane? Well, I guess I'd like them to look at uh, why is what's the justification for a wider for wider than eleven feet? I mean, I know it's not the middle of a downtown, but if it were, I'd probably say ten feet. But eleven seems like it should be. I, I'd I'd like to the comment to reflect we should ask them to look at eleven feet as the. Okay. So, Tim Couples with Montgomery County DOT, we can absolutely look at that. Um, one thing that we would typically try and do, this project does have a bridge, we would like to have an extra foot of shy distance as you go over the bridge. On just, the bridge. Um, so we could take a look at and see what an appropriate transition might be and see what we can come up with. That would be great. Thank you. I would like to add one other thing. The whole concept of building this four-lane section between Turkey Thicket and Centerways to carry the truck traffic now, it just to double make sure that the 11 foot can support the truck traffic. Yeah, that's the key element. Get the trucks not going to the north. Right. Um, we didn't put it as a condition, but maybe you should put in to coordinate uh, work with uh, revenue authorities' plans for the uh, air park as one of the conditions. No. Of the, I just want to be, make clear of the mandatory referral or of the Lois Y. Green Forest Conservation Plan, which. What do you think? Uh, well, why, why don't you just put a comment? Why don't we just put a comment in that says that we should avoid putting any new plantings in the in the in any potentially. Well, I, I was uh, thinking beyond that that if the, if they're really planning to extend it in some period of time and you do work. On either side of it, it may be impacted. So, 
it's not just trees in front of the runway. It's if they're planning to extend it, it may go right into the stream. It looks like potentially. I, I do agree with you completely. I'm just trying to figure out how to write a legal condition that would would reflect that. Maybe uh, for the record. Uh, yeah, I was just suggesting you could just say, "Don't go anywhere near this." Uh, well, I think they need. You know, it's just like they need to coordinate with other agencies. It's just another agency they got to coordinate with. I don't, I don't know if that's in there somewhere. So I think it's not. possible to put a condition in the forest conservation plan that directs the applicant to coordinate with the revenue authority before planting or before, uh, you know, uh, Ms. Lindsay can help me out with this, but before. To ensure no conflict between any future. Exactly. Runway extension. But if the board's okay with it, I'm sure staff can come up with a condition that reflects that. That, I think that would be fine. Great. Um, just to clarify for the board as well, there should be five votes on this item, um, and we should start with the forest conservation plans and move on from there. Okay, unless there's something else you wanted to add. Five, five individual five, votes five, with five motions, yes. No, no, we had nothing else. We were just here to answer questions and just to thank staff. It was a very complex, especially with the forest conservation plans overlapping. Uh, There's a lot of hard work on everyone to get to this point, and we appreciate that effort. Thank you. Okay, uh, so you want to start with the forest conservation plan? Is that what you're saying, Nick? Uh, I, I am, although Ms. Lindsay looks like she has something else to. Yes, our parks department actually had two different motions. So while they they had one staff report, they had two motions. Okay, that's fine. So I've got all six of them written out just for handy convenience. Yes. Uh, is which one had the amendment? The uh, one about the road and the. That's Do I have to say as amended to all of them or just which? No, just SC2008018, so the last one okay. is Lois Y. Green Conservation Park. Okay. So I recommend approval of uh, Forest Conservation Plan MR2014038 as recommended. Second. On favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? Aye. That's approved. Recommend approval with conditions of amendment to final conservation plan MR2010738. Second. On favor? Aye. Opposed? Uh, recommend approval with conditions uh, as amended of the amendment to the final conservation plan SC2008018. Second. On favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? That's approved too. That's three. There, there's two more. Uh, Actually, uh, yeah. Keep reading. Uh, <laughs> so there are three there. Yeah, there's actually uh, Yes, the Parks Department clarified they, they'd like to have two separate votes for their item. Okay. So I recommend approval of projects impacts to parkland provided. Final roadway construction plans are submitted to the MNC PPC Department of Parks for review as part of the park permit process. Second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? That's approved. <laughs> Approval of the use of Lois Y. Green Conservation Park for Section 404 mitigation requirements provided final stream restoration plans are submitted to the MNC PPC Department of Parks for review as part of the park permit process. Second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? And? Approved. And? Staff recommendation for approval of the transmittal of the Comments to the Montgomery County Department of Transportation. As amended. As amended. Second. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? And that's six yeses. Thanks very much. Need some water? Yeah, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's uh, take a five-minute break. Thank you.
It's the Rock Spring White Flint 2 gang. Good afternoon. For the record, my name is Nancy Sturgeon. I'm the Master Plan Supervisor for the Area 2 Division. And this afternoon, we're going to provide you with a briefing on the Rock Spring Master Plan that area Andrea Gillis has been leading and the White Flint 2 Sector Plan that Nicosi has been leading. Uh, before I turn it over to them, I'm going to just give you a little bit of scheduling and information about things we've been working on that are related to both plans. Um, these plans started about a year ago. They were originally offset by about three months in the schedule. And at the semi-annual on April 5th, um, the council has aligned them so that they're basically on a concurrent schedule. Um, this was something we actually were hearing from the community that they would like us to address the area holistically. Um, as you can see from this slide, which was also the graphic in your packet for today, um, the two small area plans and Rock Spring is in the lower left and White Flint is White Flint 1 is actually the gray. That's going to pop out a little bit more than the actual boundaries for White Flint 2 from, from this perspective. But White Flint 2 is in a dashed red line around White Flint 1. And they're both within the 1992 North Bethesda Garrett Park sector plan. Um, and they are connected uh, most directly by Old Georgetown Road, as you can see. So they're only about a mile apart. We've been working um, for the past year. We've had about a half a dozen community meetings with both um, for both plans. We had one joint meeting last September on the school issue because at our kickoff meetings, um, we heard a lot from the community for the, res for the Walter Johnson cluster. Um, that there's concerns about school overcrowding. So when we, when we heard that at the kickoff, we had a joint meeting with MCPS, um, Montgomery County Public Schools, and with Pam Dunn working on the subdivision staging policy and the planners so that we could get a lot of information out about how all of this relates, how we plan for schools from both the master plan and the regulatory perspective. So we've also been working uh, most recently on the transportation modeling with the land use scenarios we developed, and Eric will go through that this afternoon. We also hired a consultant, Boland Smart, uh, to look at the possibility of adaptively reusing any of the office buildings in, along Executive Boulevard or the office park in Rock Spring. We have a draft of their study, and we're reviewing that. We're going to have them come on June 30th and make a presentation for the board about their findings. There's also been a, a report issued from a group of um, developers and, and county um, executive staff, uh, the Office Market Working Group, also looking at the issue countywide about office vacancies and they've issued a report, and we're taking some of their recommendations into consideration. And we also had an Urban Land Institute technical advisory panel on uh, December 1st and 2nd of 2015, uh, which brought together a lot of folks, a lot of the actual owners of the buildings, um, to brainstorm some ideas, too. And the, there's a one-sheet summary in your packet of some of those recommendations, and we're, we're also taking those... Uh, a look at those as we begin to develop our recommendations. 
So after today and the Boland Smart presentation in June, we're starting to write the plans. Uh, we will go back to the community on June 6th. We are scheduling another joint meeting with MCPS and us. And at that point, we'll be able to also report on this roundtable. There was a group that MCPS formed at the beginning of the year with all of the Walter Johnson cluster coordinators and uh, activists to brainstorm ideas about the school overcrowding. And this is a typical process that MCPS goes through in areas that need some special consideration. They're about to come out with their draft report, um, probably two weeks. So the meeting on June 6th will be a report out um, about some of the options, um, an update on the SSP, and an update on what the master plans will be able to say about the school issue. Um, we also, that decisions won't be made on the series of recommendations until the fall. Um, but it will be out and it will be considered by the superintendent who will choose a recommendation, which is our understanding. And then the Board of Education will probably choose one out of the 10 to 12 recommendations that have been considered in the report. So that's been very helpful to us as we're working on the master plan that the schools have been looking at some potential options, that so there's a path forward to deal with the crowding issues and all levels of the, of the cluster. Um, then we will come back to you with preliminary recommendations on July 28th. And then we'll, assuming you accept that draft, we'll bring you the working drafts in the fall on September 8th probably. So right when you come back from your break, we'll have our preliminary recommendations and then move into the hearing probably in October, work sessions in the fall, and transmitting the plans uh, by the beginning of the year. So that's the background and context on the schedule and everything else we're working on. In support of these plans, Andrew's going to give a presentation on Rock Spring, Nicosi's going to go over White Flint II, and Eric's going to talk about the transportation modeling results. Thank you. Good afternoon, um, Andrea Gillis with Area 2 Planning. I will be providing the overview of where we've been so far in Rock Spring and where we're going, um, some of the, the main topics of discussion that we've heard from the community meetings. Um, just to let you know that the transportation components will be leaving those to the end so that Eric can, can summarize um, both White Flint 2 and Rock Spring together at the same time. Um, so just as a refresher, um, and hopefully you all um, know where Rock Spring is, um, but it's within the, um, it's tucked within the I-270 spur and I-270. Old Georgetown um, Road is the primary arterial to the east. Um, Democracy Boulevard is to the south. Um, there is a portion that encompasses the Wildwood Shopping Center on the western side of the plan area. And then on the eastern side of the plan area, you have the um, Westfield Montgomery Mall. Um, as well as there's a Home Depot to the north and Orsman Ford um, development as well to the north. Um, just kind of a snapshot of the of the area. Um, there's quite a, 
a mix of land uses that already currently exist within the area. There are a lot of employers. This area is obviously, many people know it as the Rock Spring Office Park. Um, and one of the primary reasons that we're looking at this plan is sort of the changing dynamics within suburban office parks within the county. Um, but it still does have a lot of activity and it has a lot of employers. Um, estimates are about that there are about 20,000 people working in the area. That includes the mall area as well as the office park and some of the other retail shopping centers. Um, of note is that we have in this area currently built just 386 multifamily units. Um, so where you have a lot of non-commercial or non-residential development, there's very limited residential development in the area. It was obviously traditionally built as an office park, and that was the focus for, for many decades. Um, there are 168 um, dwelling units that are, were in the pipeline. They're under construction now. That's this yellow area in the center. Um, that is the EYA Montgomery Row project. Um, if you've been out there recently, you know that they're well underway. Um, so that's going to infuse another dynamic into this area as we move forward. Um, and mentioning the pipeline, there's also quite a lot of development improved, um, approved within the pipeline, and I'll talk a little bit about that later. Um, there's about 5.5 million square feet of office space alone um, of a total of about 8 million square feet of non-residential um, square footage. And obviously one of the issues and one of the things that we're looking carefully at is that there is a, about a 22% vacancy rate um, within the plan area as a whole. So where we've been, as Nancy mentioned, um, we've had quite a few meetings. Each of a, a, Rock Spring has had six meetings now. Our last meeting was actually this last Monday. Um, White Flint has had seven. <clears throat> So we've had a little over a dozen meetings together, starting with the kickoff in September 1st. Um, we've had a lot of engagement from community residents. There have been a lot of, primarily a lot of PTA groups that have come out, a lot of civic association members that have come out to the meeting, or come out to the meetings, um, in large part over concern within the schools. But there are also a lot of people that are concerned about the traffic issues as well um, in this area, particularly along Old Georgetown Road and Democracy. Um, we've heard quite a bit about that, especially since we've been, um, we introduced the modeling results on Monday. Um, but some of the big picture items that we've heard beyond school and traffic is also really focusing on that this isn't a pedestrian oriented environment. It's kind of isolated onto itself. You can't really penetrate the park. Um, you know, it's built for autos. Um, and it's kind of this island unto itself. Um, so people really want to look at different ways to actually access the planning area um, on foot, on bike, and not only just to access them, but also to have it be very safe when they do. Um, there are a lot of people that cross between Wildwood Shopping Center and into the park, and they don't feel exactly safe going across Old Georgetown Road. Um, people are looking at more open spaces and community gathering, gathering areas, bike lanes, um, Connectivity is, is a, has been one of the primary issues. And then also looking at infusing more amenities into this area. People feel that, you know, it's kind of great for the nine to five. There's obviously, um, you know, a lot of people working in the park, a lot of people working at the mall. Um, but after five o'clock, there's not a lot going on. Um, and also looking at a greater sense of place. As this area starts to evolve, what is the sense of place in Rock Spring? Uh, yes. Quick, quick question. Um, did we 
rezone this under the new CR zones as something other than it was? Was it designated some new zone? It's been uh, well. I have a zoning slide for you coming up, and we can go through that. Most of so it's it has a zoning it has a density attached to each one. Yes. Mm -hmm. And when you talked about eight million square feet of residential, that that's approved but not built, or no non-residential. Non eight million square feet of non-residential. And, and built that's or built. not built. That's built. And how about the residential? There's only 386 units. Built. Built. But there's potential of There's more. up to, there's 1,400 units in the pipeline. That includes the 186 that's currently under construction. But the pipeline's pretty old. Pipeline is old, yes. That's okay. another consideration, yep. So, you know, obviously one of the first things that we do when we go through these, these planning efforts is we look to the past and what's been done and what we can build upon. Um, and actually we have a really good guide um, I guess I just wanted to mention that this area, the Rock Spring Park, is actually in two planning areas, so we'll be requesting to amend two plans. Um, most of the information from, this, from the current Rock Spring Master Plan area is found in the 1992 North Bethesda Garrett Park Master Plan. Um, the mall area and north of it is within the 2002 Potomac Subregion Master Plan. Um, but there's some really great guidance in the 1992 North Bethesda Garrett Park Master Plan. Um, this is actually the concept plan from the 92 plan, um, which looks pretty familiar. Um, it really gives us a lot of guidance to what we're looking at today and how the park has started to shape itself today. Um, they already talked about a transit way going through this central portion of the park, which is Westlake West Lake Drive, Fernwood and Rock Spring Drive. So you know we can't see your mouth. We can't see it. You can't see the map? No. No. She's moving her mouse and we can't see it. Oh, because it's white. I guess it's white on white. Okay. I'm just telling her that she's moving her mouth, her hand thinking that we're following her, but we're not. Is there some, somewhere along this you're going to show us this is what was recommended in 92, but what has happened? That, that'll be the next slide. Okay, good. So they talked about the central access. They called it an access um, in 1992 and looking at how you connect off of that access. Um, but as you'll note, <laughs> as you note, they kind of kept the park self-contained within this master plan, and we wanted to look at expanding it and connecting to the surrounding neighborhoods. Um, so today... Um, looking at the central access or the spine area today, and can you see? I guess we can't. You can't see the mouse. That's <laughs> so weird. Do you have? That's what I'm looking for. Yeah. It's weird that it's not. We have a remote that's sitting around here somewhere. Oh, Let me see if. Yep. Perfect. Thank you. Hopefully that will work. Sorry, guys. So, the central access in the spine today um, and how things have kind of played out since the 1992 master plan when it wanted to focus on that central area. So we still have the North Bethesda Transitway that's in the countywide um, corridors 
master plan or functional plan. Um, it's still one of the 10 corridors designated for ideally in the future a BRT line. Um, it's focuses on the central area um, where we have the X's are the proposed stop areas um, on the, the BRT line. Oh, even better. Um, and also you'll note that contrary to what many people think, there is a lot of activity happening in Rock Spring, in the Rock Spring Master Plan area. Um, so there are four pipeline projects with a lot of development already approved within the area. Um, the first project is the, um, the, where the number one is, is the Oarsman Ford site, the old Oarsman Ford site. That actually has been approved for 340 residential, multifamily residential units and about 56 square feet of retail. Um, and it's just north of the newly opened transit center at the mall. Um, then you have um, this number, the area that's highlighted by number two, which is where the EYA development is. Um, as I said, under construction, and these are townhomes that are being developed, 168 units. I think this will also have an impact on the public realm and the frontage as well and how you start um, shaping the form in that area. Because one of the things that I did want to point out and one of the things that there's a lot of concern over is that in all along the spine area, the um, sidewalks are right up to the street. So although the, you do have sidewalks, you have a lot of lush landscape, it's not exactly oriented yet toward the pedestrian. Um, and the third one is where you've got major pipeline development, and that's the Rock Spring Center development. Um, many people know it as Canyon Ranch or the Davis Tract. Um, in And that's been approval. Those, those approvals have been in place since about 1999. So that's where um, you've had a, quite a while where we've had improvement, um, approvals in, pipeline approval in that area. And that's where the 386 dwelling units have been. It's the Berkshire Apartments. Um, to the north. So you have about, still about 860 residential units that are approved for that area in different forms of high-rise multifamily and mid-rise um, developments, as well as 1.1 million square feet of a combination of office, retail, entertainment uses. So this could really be a significant development within the Rock Spring area that starts to really change the dynamic. And again, focusing on that central spine. And then number four, which is just north of the Wildwood Shopping Center, is the Abino Residential Development that has been proposed. Well, it actually has, has received approvals, and that's about 58 dwelling units, um, multifamily dwelling units um, for that portion of the area. We did do that a while ago, yes. So it's been... I get my math right, 16 or 17 years with Rock Strings Rock approval Spring. and nothing has happened. Well, the Berkshires, but the, the remaining portion of it, yes. Um, so we started to look at, given the pipeline development, given what we've heard from the community, um, given, you know, what was already in contained in, in the master plan, sort of updated and came up with an updated plan concept for the area. Um, again, emphasizing the central spine. Um, ideally, in the future, we do have some sort of mass transit. That's been one of the concerns in this area is, you know, looking at how to balance redevelopment in an area where you aren't right next to Metro. 
You know, everyone's talking about, oh, we should do th- CR, we need masses and matters development, but at the same time, we're not on top of metro here. It's about, t- it's just under two miles from the Grosvenor metro. So a transit way. <laughs> I'm sorry? Does that bridge exist? This one right yes. here? The blue, the, where the road, yeah. Yes. It does. It does. What street is that? It, that's Westlake. Well, West I guess Lake. it goes Fernwood, Fernwood. Westlake. Yeah. Fernwood at Old Democracy becomes Westlake as you go into the park and over the bridge to Montgomery Mall. It is there, and it it does have sidewalks. There's also access to I-70 off the bridge. Um, There is also a connection here um, as well. Um, That bridge doesn't have any bike lanes or anything, right? Because I'm thinking of the bridge in um, Alexandria that connects to the National Harbor. That's a beautiful bridge. Yeah, and a lot of people bring that up actually as an example of potentially what could be looked at in this area in the future as redevelopment occurs. Um, A lot of people talk about that. You have the mall so close, especially for um, professional employees that are in this area. They could just, a lot of them go there for lunch, but they drive. So it would be, although some do walk. it's not the most pleasant experience, but they do walk. So um, so we've got the spine, and we're looking at connections off the spine, not just vehicular, but also green links. There is a lot of lush landscape in this area, but there are no parks. There are no public parks within the plan area. They're all in the surrounding area. You've got Stratton Park to the south, and Ca- obviously Cabin John is a huge amenity. And that's another opportunity that we're looking at to make sure that in the future there's better connections to Cabin John Park. Um, not just getting to the mall, but also getting to the park areas. Um, as we start looking at this area as a place for more residents. Um, and then really focusing development, not only the improvements along um, the Spine Road, some pedestrian and bicycle improvements along the Spine Road, but also starting to form activity areas along that spine and focusing development in that area, any new development in that area or any infill development. Um, people have told us that they feel like you get into the park and you don't really know where you're going once you're in the park. You kind of get lost. So we want to look at, you know, how you sort of lessen the gap, even if it's the perception gap between the Wildwood Shopping Center to the mall, for example. It's a 1.25 miles, 1.3 miles, um, which for a lot of people is not a significant walk. It's a, you know, a, a normal stroll but it feels like a really long walk, how things are established right now. Um, And also, we just indicate through this concept that as the area were to redevelop, and this would be sort of in the phase of major redevelopment, um, is to look at some infusing some new streets in this area because we do have very large blocks. Um, But as Eric will point out, we do have a very good road network currently, and we have a lot of capacity in this area. So it's more so as as redevelopment occurs. Andrea, for the for the Kevin John Park, is there a master plan coming up for that park, like we're doing in Wheaton? I don't. Or or when was the last? Going? No. Just out of curiosity, because if there is something up going on, you know, shortly. Rachel's, Rachel's saying there was one done about ten years ago for Kevin John, but it is is. Um, the blue road, um, I guess it's Westlake on one side and something else on the other. Um, is that supposed to be a boulevard in the 92 plan or 90, 92 plan, right? Right. Yeah, in the 92 so plan. So has any of that happened? But also the North Bethesda Transit Way came out of the 92 plan, yeah. running along that same spine. 
from Montgomery Mall. Yeah, but has, it, has any of the roadway turned into no. the ultimate no. roadway at all? No, no but right-of-way has been dedicated as projects have come in, for example, Rock Spring Center, mm -hmm. um, obviously, and EYA. Um, so there, the right-of-way is there for the transitway, but it's... But the, uh, the transitway is is just part of it. I mean, it's supposed right. to be a boulevard with trees and grass and uh, a median and all the things that make a road look more beautiful and, than what we have now. Right, and I think the first time you're going to see that is when with the completion of the EYA project because those components, that section are included in those components yeah, or in that development. The only way we traditionally get those road improvements is when a development comes in. So the only development that actually has been built that's starting to achieve that vision is the EYA project, which is under construction. And, uh, you know, if someday the Davis Tract redeveloped, they'd have to do their portion, which would, again, help create the sense of a boulevard. But there's no county CIP project to actually construct uh, improvements in that area. And before we move off this slide, I just want to note that part of what we're seeing is that the change in this area is planning for new residents um, in the future. And that's already starting with the EYA project right in the center there. It's really pretty interesting that what is an office park, you know, EYA came and that was an office pad site. It was approved for office. Um, and you know, now it's under construction for townhouses that are going to be completed soon. Yeah. And then if you pair that with the Oarsman site across from Montgomery Mall, new residents there, and Rock Springs Center on the east side of this area, and the retail that's there, destination mall retail on the west side and neighborhood retail on the east side, that really spoke to us as a new, starting to form a new community. Yeah, I, at the Affordable Housing Conference, uh, Bob Youngentab was on a panel actually with Glenn, and he said either afterwards or during that this is their best-selling project of all their projects all over the place. Yeah. This is the best-selling. They're, they're over half sold, and they're, you know, they can't catch up with the construction. So I would have never guessed that. but exactly. Because it's such a non-residential area, but apparently... You know, the schools, the mall, the uh, giant shopping center, all those, the Wildwood must all be yeah. reachable within a half a mile. It's and, uh, a highly accessible area, mm -hmm. and let's, we should also point out that Marriott is located right across the street from EYA, and that's the big unknown about whether they stay or go. <laughs> but I, I do think it speaks to the fact that residential, even though the Davis Tract hasn't built out, that the residential market likes this area and that, um, you know, again, as staff has been saying, there's lots of office, there's lots of retail. Sort of what's missing is that residential component to sort of tie things together. And it seems like that is a market possibility. It's not a pie-in-the-sky idea. The, the three restaurants in this mall, they just closed this week because they weren't having a lot of people going into that mall. In, the, come mall. in the mall. One of them was a great pizzeria, which I was really surprised because they had really good pizza. But it was, they just didn't have the people coming in. So 
They built that new uh, eatery, uh, which has everything mm -hmm. as far as what you want. Um, and they may, have, they may have done some damage, too. Um, yeah, there is, there is a lot of retail. There are a lot of restaurants in the area. Um, because there's also Georgetown Square, which is um, currently right here where the Giant is. And they've been doing some renovations and been adding some additional restaurants. And that's a huge draw from the students from Walter Johnson. Um, and frankly, in context with ever with the big upgrade of Montgomery Mall. I mean they put millions of dollars into that with the Arc Light movie theater and all of that. And with what's happening at Pike and Rose and all the things happening along the Pike, what we are hearing from the Cameliers is you know they're trying to catch some retail in the market at some point and Maybe they've missed a few opportunities, um, but it's it's tough with everything around them. There's a lot. They also have a lot of approvals they haven't done anything with. So I we you are know, you can hear a lot of screaming, but aware right. We've met with them several times. Yeah, <laughs> it's so important they could have built one of these buildings that got approved already. <laughs> um, so that takes us to the existing zoning. Um, so. You'll notice that I'll start with the what is not the big central um, zoning in the center, um, but there is a lot of um, retail zoning um, within this area. The mall has general retail zoning, um, and then you have neighborhood um, retail zoning on the east side um, with Georgetown Square and with the Wildwood Shopping Center, which is which does very well in the area, um, and the surrounding neighborhood. Um, very much uses that shopping center. Balducci's? Yeah, that's the Wildwood Shopping Center. Exactly. Everybody mentions <laughs> Balducci's. Um, we do also already have some CR and CRT zoning within the plan area. Um, the Rock Springs Center, um, which is the, you know, the large property that we've been talking about, they do have CR, they have commercial residential zoning um, on that property. Um, they actually received that through a floating zone um, from that was um, made allowable through the 1992 plan. Um, and then there's CRT above, um, north of the Wildwood Shopping Center where the Abano residential development is approved. And then you also have CRT to the north of the, um, the mall, except for this little office building that, well, it's not so little, um, this office building that is north of the Oarsman Ford site. Um, and in here, there's a Home Depot. There's also, back in here, is the there's a post office. Um, where you'll see a lot of the residential zoning is where the school is. Um, the school is only talking about potentially expanding, so we have to take that into consideration as well. And then in the middle of the park, you have the EOF zone. Um, and there's been a lot of discussion about, you know, the employment office zone and, you know, its appropriateness in different areas and especially in potentially transitioning areas. Um, I think that's one of the, you know, things that we can talk about is that, you know, EOF, there's this idea that, you know, it's just for office. But really when we did the um, update or when you all approved the update to the, um, the zoning code, it did open it up for a mix of uses within the EUF zone. It, it is, it, it does allow residential now? It does allow residential. So it allows 30% residential and 30% retail service. Things is like it, restaurants are permitted Was there a reason right? we limited it at the I, time? I think it was a carryover from 
some of the old office zones had um, a percentage of productivity housing that was allowed within those zones, and I think that was a carryover from some of the old um, office zones where you could get some housing out so of it. So that's, that's in the zoning ordinance that you can't – we couldn't change. I mean, we'd have to change the zoning code to change the Correct. percentage. Yes. The Correct. percentage, yes. yes. Is there – I, this may be something you consider whether there's a reason the EO zone, EOF zone shouldn't work like the CRT zone where there's a residential and office component and you can do either. Just yeah. like I, it doesn't seem much different than Bethesda when you get down to it as far as what the market. And and that's some of the conversation that we've been having and some of, some of the guidance that we'd like to hear from you is you know, looking at this area and looking at the zoning, you know, a lot of the plans that we've spoken to recently are very big transform transformational plans like White Flint. And, you know, we want to really, in a short to midterm, change the area. I think in here we're looking at it more incrementally and a more measured change. There's already a lot of development that's approved within the pipeline. Um, so looking at, I think, and there's also a lot of capacity within the EOF area, and the fact that you can do zoning within that, or I'm sorry, residential within the EOF area, um, you know, we're looking at how you can sort of more incrementally and measured accomplish the vision in this area, because we want to make sure that it's more of an issue, we think, of form and how to get some of these more public realm improvements rather than a massive transformation of the park. And also I think an important point to mention is a number of the office buildings that are in Rock Spring are not old buildings. Some of them have been built as recently as like, I think you were saying 2001, 2002. These are not buildings that are going to be torn down uh, for like a total redevelopment. This is a place where we might see a filling in of some of the spaces that currently are used in other ways, but we don't see a massive tearing down of buildings and a complete redevelopment. So we want to look at the, the EOF zone as to whether it's a zone that works for that filling in. Um, well, uh, you know, um, all it takes is Marriott to move out of there and and have that empty space to um, have somebody who owns it start to say, what am I going to do now? Right. Um, and there have been a number of articles, one I gave to Gwen a couple of weeks ago that was in the Wall Street Journal about how jurisdictions are attacking situations like this where their vacancy rates are going to 25%, 30%. Um, and the successful ones are allowing a lot of change mm -hmm. um, because the increase the incremental change actually happens because of the market, not because you want to, you know, not everybody's going to do it. Nobody wants to knock down a building that's as expensive as these buildings are without, you know, really thinking about it. So nothing's going to happen right away. They're going to try very hard to fill them up. But there may be some if they lose a government lease or some right. big tenant that they right. – and they have to compete with everybody else um, – that, that the renovation costs and everything else may may just say, you know, maybe we should go to residential or go to mix or go to retail residential. Yeah, although I would say from a market perspective on the Davis tract, you have raw land, not talking about tearing anything down. You have raw land that has approvals for many, many, many residential units and 1.1 million non-residential, and that has not moved forward. And I have to 
say maybe it's a unique situation, but there's probably also some market. Um, there's a story there about the market. Ownership. And one of the things I've said before is there's ownership issues. You know, certain owners have a measured plan that they're going to do so much a year, or or have a plan for cash flow, and they don't want to ruin it. So, and some are ready to go right away. So it's, you know, the owners in here may be very much in what their what their plan may be versus what they're allowed to do. Yeah, I, I think if you talk to uh, people who own uh, office buildings, not just here but around the county, that um, on the one hand, they recognize there's issues with uh, vacancies. On the other hand, uh, a lot of them are not ready to capitulate. They are saying, you know, we think that the that suburban office is not dead, that we're, we can – we can lease the space. They're not at a point where they're saying we are prepared to take extraordinary measures to reposition our properties or, or redevelop them. And combined with, I think, what you've laid out here, which is that it doesn't appear there's a capacity problem. This is not a situation where nobody has any opportunity to build something, not, not just the total amount of square footage that could be built, that opportunity, but the mix of uses that there's already a – there's a lot of flexibility there to right. put in more residential or really what, any, just about anything you'd want to build. So I think that one of the questions is in these plans is how to uh, encourage uh, some of these property owners to take the opportunities that are there as they, as they emerge, not necessarily by throwing new capacity at them or adding a lot of flexibility because they have a lot of capacity and flexibility, but figure out what is the combination of of, uh, you know, the, the, the zoning and the other, uh, and some things maybe that the public sector can do to try to align everybody's incentives in the direction of trying to, uh, especially in the case of Rock Spring, to uh, achieve some of the bigger picture goals that the 92 plan laid out, particularly this spine along uh, Rock Spring and, and Fernwood, and to try to uh, encourage a coherent uh, infill as well as some uh, amount of redevelopment along that uh, spine, not just for the long-term goal of getting the transit line uh, built with some supportive uh, land use pattern around it, but even in the near term to get that to, to focus the energy within the office park and sort of raise the level of uh, interest for people to want to spend more than uh, nine to five in this Neighborhood. Yeah, I'm, um, I, I, I can't wait for Eric to tell us what is committed and what's left and what you're proposing because uh, we don't have the numbers. So this would be an unusual situation where we had actual lots of capacity remaining. I mean, I, I've not heard that too often around here. So, Is it time for Mr. Gray? At um, least it's time for no. It's time Mr. for white flame. Oh, you're doing traffic all at once, not yeah, by. Yeah, we're going to do traffic all at once too first. And I just want, with this presentation, if you wanted to look further at it, I'll pass it to to Nicosi. Um, but we did look at three alternatives. We gave those three alternatives to Eric to to model. Um, the alternative one for Rock Spring was just looking at pipeline because there is so much already in the pipeline. Alternative two was looking at. Um, with the inclusion of the pipeline starting to infill in some of those areas where you do have capacity under the current zoning to build some residential units. 
um, and just a slight more um, amount of non-residential square footage. And then alternative three is where we started looking at um, if you actually redeveloped under more of a mixed-use zone um, some of the larger properties, what kind of impact that would have on the roads. Um, and then we also did the same thing both um, for um, White Flint 2 as well as for Rock Spring. We sent over the calculations um, on how the impacts would be for the schools. So MCPS also has that information. They're looking at the two plan areas together and how the numbers in the two plan areas together would affect um, schools moving forward. But I do want to make sure it's clear. Alternative 2 is existing zoning. That's with no zoning changes. That is the capacity. Yeah. And there's still more within that that was just looking at different assumptions and some of the more possible options that we could see for infill opportunities. And so I, I, I guess I don't understand. What, uh, 10 million is in the pipeline or? No. So it's the pipeline have, plus 700,000? Yes. So you have 8.2 existing built. 1.1 is in the pipeline, which gets you about 9.3 million um, builds plus pipeline. And then an alternative two, because there already is so much non-residential square footage out there, um, including office and retail, we didn't add a lot of additional non-residential square footage to those scenarios. Um, so that's where you start to see an increase in alternative two, and then there's actually a slight decrease when you get to, because alternative three, the emphasis was more on residential versus um, additional non-residential square footage. But I, I'm confused about what Gwen just said about alternative two. Is that the, the envelope for the current plan, or is that something... It's a, it's a mix. So that's what that's not with changing any of the zoning, looking at certain properties along the spine specifically, keeping with the concept, some of the properties along the spine, looking at them using that 30% residential um, and what they could, the amount of units that they could potentially get within that 30% um, of the yeah. EOF. We also looked in GR and NR as well. Is there, is there any demand from the owners or developers about height, or it's all about flexibility? Yeah, this well, is just a density exercise in a way so that we can come up with something in orders of magnitude between these three that give us something to test traffic in schools with. It doesn't get to anything other than that, frankly. And from that, we work off of, you know, what our, what our next step would be, what's the traffic implication, and we would choose something in the middle of this as a and preliminary. why did you, well, I guess you can tell us later, but why did you pick just the spine versus properties that are just off of it? I mean, it's, they're within. There are some of them. Feet. Actually, there are some of them in alternative two. The focus was the spine, but there are some properties off of, um, off of the spine that were included in it, some of them that are vacant. Um, some of them that, there are some properties in here that are already reached. They're max FAR. So I didn't include those in, or we didn't look at that because they've already maxed out their density. Um, so we looked at ones that still had density left um, to, to develop under the 30%, um, and that we're still in the more central area. This, this is a new idea, but um, in, the, in the Bethesda plan, I think it was 100% of us actually agreed with the concept of dealing with height and not density. The only argument about was mm -hmm. whether the density we'd all talked about was in the plan or not in the plan. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think uh, the chair's analysis was very persuasive about 
you know, the real argument is um, is between the owners as to fill up the density and who's first. And mm-hmm. I, I kind of think both this and maybe even White Flint Two should should have a, a density cap that that is a first come first serve. And if you if you don't use it um, and somebody else takes it, then too bad. But I, I, I think one of the problems we have in our master plans is we, we try to select for 20 years who's going to really go ahead and who isn't. And, and we haven't been too good at it. So, the problem uh, you know, I kind of like the idea of saying if you're ready to go and you, we don't use up the traffic capacity, you can go. The problem uh, is in alternative one and alternative two, they have this density allowed today. They, we, we aren't giving them anything. We're reporting on what is possible with the zoning that they have today, not That's alternative changing. two or one? Both. Two. Both. Alternative three is the only one that contemplates some change in the zoning. But <coughs> alternatives one and two are what is allowed today. They don't have to get in line or, or anything, they have that zoning today. And well, how, uh, I guess the question is, how do you create some incentive for the people who really want to go to go and not hold up potential? The only way you get parkland, the only way you get the right-of-way and the boulevard you want is the developer has to do it as part of his plan or contribute to it if they're not right on it. Um, so, you know, I... We should try, and you you have this is just preliminary, but you should try to find a way that that developers, if they don't use what their capacity is, and somebody else takes it, and there's a cap, then like if there's 2,600 units, and somebody else can do it, if we give more density, for example, if maybe that's the cap, and then other people can get it, and if they don't get there in time, they don't get it because having approval for I don't know how many million square feet the. Rock Spring Tower is was uh, 17 years. A little crazy to wait for something that has such an impact on this planning area. And at some point, yeah, there, you know, there's uh, there, well, there's certainly it certainly bears uh, considering what uh, the situations will be with the uh, APFO extensions because we had a number of county council members who said in the last go round of extensions that they're done, that this is it. There's no more, no more uh, pushing back the validity period. So, um, you know, I could uh, argue that in line with what you're saying, it might be uh, helpful to say, you know, if you're serious, you got to start building something. Um, and if, if you're not ready, that's fine, but somebody else ought to get a shot. And even if you might get ready in the next couple of years, that there's benefit to uh, requiring people to come forward with a new plan because in, li- in light of the goals of trying to reinforce the spine, get some of these connections to the surrounding neighborhoods, some of those are were present in the 92 plan, some mm-hmm. not quite as maybe uh, find a point put, it, put on it, but that there is some value to saying uh, you've got to submit a plan that conforms to 2016 ideas about what the specifics are that need to be done here if you expect to have capacity available mm-hmm. and that, uh, you know, we're, we're certainly not trying to disrupt people's uh, 
reasonable expectations about, you know, they've put money and effort into developing a plan, but that doesn't last forever. And, uh, you know, that's especially since there's what we're talking about here is not a lack of capacity. There's plenty of capacity to, to go around. So I, and I think that's consistent like, with what you right. are saying. Yeah, the ideas about how we might incentivize or whether there need to be caps or first one in the door kind of ways to get something going are, are good conversations to have and we'll, you know, take, take those back and muddle, work them, work up something and, and we're paying attention to Bethesda and with the work that you all are doing in other plans as well. Um, that's not what this exercise is. This is just, you know, we, we have to pick and choose if but properties. The big, the big fights we have, and we haven't gotten to Whiteflint 2 yet, but the big fights we have are about density. You know, that generally there's an agreement that if you're next to a high-rise building, you can have a high-rise of some nature, and when you're close to your neighborhood, you've got to be 70 feet or less. So the argument is, is it 1.5, 2.3? Um, and, and the plan that uh, Casey recommended really seems to apply, at least there, mm -hmm. where we don't have to have that. We don't have to look at every property. We don't have to have an argument about what the density should be. I was listening. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think it's great because it, it encourages those people who want, who really are able to go and want to go to go and the people that are, you know, just hoarding density because or planning to sell their property or something else. Because one of the problems we have in this county is master plans just don't come to fruition they're they're great on paper but they just don't happen and um, maybe this the, the the competition to know that someday your density may be not there maybe an incentive to somebody to say maybe we weren't quite ready to go but we better go um, yeah we thought the um, uh, entitlement period was um, fall of 2017 for Rock Spring Center but apparently there are two extra years that um, hadn't been accounted for there so we're into 2019. Well, that's not that far away. You got to you got to plan your building and start um, f filing your permits and stuff right. within a year. Or so True. that's that's pretty around the corner. I think the Redskins uh, won a Super Bowl or two in the intervening period. <laughs> what what Lots um, of things have happened? What, like if you had a, a development that already used all its FAR, so it didn't have a capacity to do the 30 percent, for example, because it used everything. Um, is there any incentive to give them more if they have open land and then use I, up capacity? Or I think that's what we would look at as far as, so one of the options that we have to look at is keeping the base zone and increasing the density. Uh -huh. So, because some of them do have lower FARs on the EOF properties. So we could look at if we thought that it was still going, you know, primarily an office use made sense, but the incorporation of some residential um, but they needed more capacity. We could just look at increasing the the density cap, or suggesting a, a CR as a floating zone in the future when folks are ready to actually do something with their property for those that don't have CR, or, or make the EOF or make an, the EOF. an O and an R, or one thing we batted around is that instead of a percentage, say if a master plan is recommending. Um, that the that the zone or the future of the area could include more of a mix of uses, then that percentage doesn't apply. Something like that. Um, there are different ways to get at this, but it sounds like we might be 
slight on the same page well, with that. So maybe worse as far as vacancies. Um, mm -hmm. The report that I, you you all um, hired the consultant to tell us about was pretty pretty damning, and it was it's worse in Virginia, mm -hmm. and it's I think we're not too far away from that. Yeah. Right. Uh, anything from this end of the table? Well, what I'm getting out of this is that we all are kind of uh, accepting the idea that you seem to be trying to communicate that there's a lot of capacity here. That's not really the problem. That there's a significant amount of flexibility. That maybe there's some different mix of zones that might or might not help to give people a nudge. There's issues with trying to create some incentive to maybe use it or lose it in order to get some some people off the dime or at least focus their attention on you know if they're if they're going to do something and they want to and they want to know that it's going to be available they ought to do it sooner rather than, than later uh, and I don't think we're getting any pushback on the idea of the emphasis on the spine both for the land use and the transportation part of that ultimately transit but in the in the meantime to try to focus and concentrate the you know where the the uh, energy is as I say and also better uh, you know permeability for lack of a better word uh, for for pedestrians, uh, bicyclists, and others to get in and out of here. I was, you didn't mention this specifically, but I noticed, and I know you've talked about this before, the park on the southern edge, the park up to the, the north uh, east there, as well as Cabin John. There's three, and not to mention Walter Johnson High School, those are all three, you know, significant areas where there's ball fields, trails, right. trees, other recreational amenities, all kinds of interesting things to do and uh, and facilities that are not particularly accessible. And and you you did mention the, the mall and the the retail and the restaurants and all that stuff. So and I think uh, it sounds like we're all on board with the idea of trying to improve access to those. Prefer both with with or without a car seems to uh, be. Uh, or yeah, this is kind of another idea, uh, but you talked about trying to giving extra to along the spine road. Maybe you could um, give something to the people further away if they contribute uh, to the improvement because you have the right of way or they dedicate parkland or, you know, something that gets you wh what you want because not everybody along the spine road is going to develop and yet you want to connect it all. So, if there's someone a little further away, I don't think it's really very far away. The, the, the planning area is very tight. Yeah, you don't have a nexus problem with anything in this area because it's all basically within a quarter mile of the of the spine. So even if it's not literally on their site that they would be dedicating space that they could contribute. Or if there's something like a pedestrian you know, bridge or something like that, that, that could be a contribution to this uh, access problem. Uh, before we leave this uh, subject, I wanted to mention, I think uh, everybody on the board knows that we are participating, in fact, increasingly, I think, taking the lead on this project to try to program some park-type events in this office park this summer. And that, that idea is really an extension of this urban park activation idea. What's different is that it's designed to show the tenants in this area and the property owners that the county and we are serious about trying to make this place more attractive 
in, and bring more activity and energy and life to it in the near term. So if tenants are thinking, you know, that's interesting, you have a master plan exercise, but, you know, even if there was immediate interest in redevelopment, the master plan's going to be adopted for a couple of years, and probably nothing really significant is going to get built as a result for quite a while after that. But we're trying to make a down payment to show them that we are, you know, acting in good faith to immediately address some of the perceived shortcomings of this area for those uh, tenants. And the county has agreed to start a shuttle service running directly from the metro to here in the mall with no other stops. So that's also an attempt to address some of the complaints that people have made about, you know, the, it's too cut off uh, specifically from transit. Yeah, and that, that uh, thank you for bringing all those things up um, about the activation. I think it's, um, it's almost an offshoot of the office working group. They had a, some short-term things, and I think it's spun off of that, which is terrific. And actually, the board last week approved to reappropriate $75,000 to this effort um, to help out. Uh, so, yeah, we're re really happy to see all of that as whatever can be done in the short term. And that trans the, the buses that they're thinking about would actually take the same route as the transit way without actually taking the right-of-way for it. It would do the same route from the Grosner Metro Station over here. So if that works, then um, it would be nice to – it's almost like putting that in place and not waiting for the actual transit way, which was recommended 25 years yeah, ago. Yeah, trying to lay so. the groundwork for it. Yeah. All right. Thank okay. you. Okay. Thanks. Mr. Chairman, members of the board, good afternoon. And Coach Yearwood, um, planning staff, apologies for my throat. Um, briefing on Whitefin 2. Um, briefly, in terms of overview of where we are in terms of the location um, within the district. So Whitefin 2 surrounds the 2010 approved uh, Whitefin sector plan the 2009 Twinbrook Sector Plan, the City of Rockville, Municipal Limits. So we're west of White Flint 1 um, in 2010, Executive Boulevard, portions of 355. Um, and then we're on the east side as well as the CSX tracks, park lawn. Um, uses are very varied, institutional, retail, commercial, um, industrial along the tracks, um, and then clearly the executive boulevard office park. We've had a, a variety of public meetings starting uh, June 25th with an open house. As Andrea and, and, and Nancy mentioned, the, the Walter Johnson public meeting on schools. Um, and then we had follow-up discussions with the public on transportation matters and the parks and open space. We did a deep dive in terms of transportation modeling, uh, parks and open space that the Parks Department held, um, led. Um, then we had a public forum with property owners trying to um, get folks who have 
um, property within the plan area who have any near-term or long-term notions of redeveloping their properties, what they may want to be doing, and to show that to the public. We also had civic associations and other stakeholders uh, come forward. We, we are planning to do a second round of this, um, ideally June 20th, um, to get additional property owners that we've been meeting with to step forward and to share with the public what their, their plans are. And then the last public meeting we had on May 16th, we showed initial concept, plan land use alternatives, and transportation analysis results. So just to summarize, obviously, public schools will be leading the, 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 the front here regarding uh, public comments. Um, secondly, following a lot of things about transportation, obviously major roadways like Old Georgetown Road and, and Rockville Pike. Um, but also some opportunities people are looking at are how to provide greater uh, connections between White Flint 1 and Twinbrook, either via um, additional roadways or via um, the bikeway network, and then how to provide new um, parks and open spaces um, at a variety of commercial properties um, that we have uh, within the plan area and also within the office park. Uh, in terms of our outreach as well with property owners, we've highlighted here um, property owners who have shown us initial concept plans within the plan area. So um, obviously one of the largest property owners within the district is Montrose Crossing, which is number one here. Um, it's uh, owned by Federal Realty. Federal Realty owns two properties within um, this district. Uh, Federal Plaza and Montrose Crossing. Um, we've also seen plans from the Wilco and Wilgus properties, which is right adjacent to uh, Montrose Road as well as Montrose Parkway, west of uh, Pike and Rose is here. Um, an interesting project proposal from Ron Paul property. And then we're anticipating something in the not too distant future from Guardian Realty, which is adjacent to um, White, White Flint One. And let me just interject that these are um, these are very conceptual plans, and this is not a development plan that is ready to come in the door. But this is what this is the way the process works, as I'm sure you know. When we start a master plan, property owners that may have had no thoughts anytime soon of doing anything put together plans because obviously they want to get in and get their ideas before us if they think, you know, this is their one shot in 20, 25 years. So I just want to mention these aren't things that were in the works before the plan. They're just very illustrative and conceptual. Thank you. Um, in terms of the existing land use, we're primarily non-residential. Um, we do have uh, a series of multifamily projects, which in the plan area we have um, the Midtown North Bethesda, which is part of Montrose Crossing. We have the Marymount Condo, um, apartments and condominium. Um, we have the Morgan here, the Monterey that's been around since the late 60s. And then on the east side of the plan area, we have t three additional multifamily uh, projects, including Walnut Condominium and um, Oxford Square at White Flint. And we also have, obviously, the existing um, Randolph Hills uh, residential community that's around, that's within a portion of it, is, is within the plan area. Um, Lux Manor uh, residential community that's further west and south of the plan area as well. How, how did you, um, it looks like they're two almost very separate areas. How did you decide to combine them or keep, instead of keeping them separate or not even do one of them, like the one on the 
east side of the railroad tracks is probably less ripe than the one on the left well, side of the railroad tracks. Well, so. in, in 2012, when we started this effort and before it was placed on pause, we, one of the reasons why we're looking, um, essentially you have three plan areas in one in some ways. You have the office park, we have the things along Rockville Pike, and then the east side. So the 2010 plan for White Flint had a mark station recommendation at this location here at Nixon Court. And part of that, rec part of that plan said, as, as part of White Flint 2, we will evaluate um, both sides of the CSX track. So we wanted to bring in everything here and really look at, for example, the light industrial uses that are adjacent to the CSX tracks. That's one. Um, regarding this component here, we, the, the key issue there is really getting the right-of-way um, fixed for future bus rapid transit. Today's 134 feet. In order to be consistent with this portion of White Flint, it needs to be between 150 and 162. So, I guess one of the things we've learned at the Westpark plan, we ended up looking at areas that probably weren't susceptible to near-term planning, 20 years even, and we we got in a big war about it for really not a lot of good reasons, and then the council just sort of eliminated the whole thing. Uh, so uh, it. It, it, and I guess Eric can tell us this, but it looks like there are two different traffic problems, one side and the other, and whether you can control the density by looking at the whole thing or whether you divide it and say one side's okay and the other side's not okay or vice versa, or they're both not okay, but for different reasons. It just seems very hard to sort of apply the traffic modeling to this sort of I don't know, it looks like a bow tie, I guess, or... The only thing I would tie, add yes. to that is, um, you know, we come to the board with a scope for every plan at the very, very, very beginning, and we talk to you about the boundaries of the plan. You've gotten smarter. Well, that's possible, <laughs> but it's a little hard to sort of change boundaries midstream after we've gone through a scope and worked on about separating the traffic issues one from the other. Is that all right? Well, don't don't, uh, don't get excited about traffic. You'll, I'm not excited about it. Don't, well, just to hear what they have. I think when, when you hear what you have to say, you'll realize that that's uh, not going to be a big uh, focus. We will we'll get to Eric' uh, presentation on on traffic soon, uh, Commissioner. Um, in terms of existing zoning, um, based on the the, the Plan area, we do have a variety of zones. We have um, the EOF on Executive Boulevard. We have some based on the 2014 uh, conversion. Um, Montrose Crossing is now commercial residential as well as Pike Center. And then portions here on uh, west side of 55 is when the CRT, um, Lowman's Plaza got converted over into a commercial residential as well. Um, the light industrial zones, and then we have the single family R60, R90. And then on this side, we have a lot of um, R200 with some institutional uses, including the JCC that's located here at Matros Road and, and East Jefferson. Uh, as Andrea highlighted previously in her presentation, uh, within the North Bethesda 92 plan, as well as looking back at, at the 2010 plan for, for White Flint, I'm um, really looking to fill out um, these two portions, these e east and west segments that have not been addressed. 
Um, so we did a 2010 plan here. We did a plan for Twinbrook in 09. So we're looking to come back and look at these two different areas, these three different areas that we talked about previously. Uh, we've broken up the areas in four greater districts, and as we move forward, we'll drill down even further to deal with a lot of land use and zoning recommendations on a, on a district by district basis. Um, this is our concept framework that we're working with that we've developed. Um, I'm just going to walk you through briefly about it. Is that um, starting from the west side here? Um, a couple things are highlighted. Obviously, the existing Whitefin Metro Station, the existing Twinbrook Metro Station, Rockville Pike, uh, Town Road, um, Executive Boulevard, Park Lawn over here. Um, so from here is that one of the things that we're looking at is, is to, to really. Uh, this plan is really focusing on infill opportunities and being more strategic. Uh, we're not, um, it's not a complete transformation like what's happened in White Flint 1. Um, so we're trying to be more targeted and strategic and focusing our applications on how, where we want to place new mixed-use development. So it, within this area here at uh, Future Town Road and existing executive, we would like to extend some of the mixed-use development that's in Pike and Rose as well as Gables, White Flint, further to the west. Um, we'd also, the question is how far do you go down executive? But right now, we see a real nexus between what's happening on the east side here, the realignment of, ex of executive on Georgetown Road, um, et cetera. As we head north, um, in terms of the, the ability to really provide some infill, this is a vacant property here, you begin to provide a linkage between things that are happening here at, in White Flint 1 to 355. Um, and then obviously uh, within this area here, we have significant commercial shopping centers that we see an extension from the transformation of some of the shopping centers within White Flint 1 also occurring here and having more residential, which you already have here at Midtown North Bethesda with the high rise that's there. Um, we do see taking advantage of existing um, treed area. We have a, a creek behind the office park, sort of introducing a more um, formal or informal, if you wish, uh, pedestrian connection that begins to link um, some of the pedestrian promenade that will be as part of uh, main market within White Flint One, extending that um, further west and then heading up uh, towards Montrose Road. There are some existing um, privately held uh, freed area in this vicinity right next to the Charrington uh, townhouses. We'd like to keep as many of that um, area, tr much of that area as possible. Uh, can I interrupt? Yes, sir. And the reason I'm doing this is that the last time we had discussions like this and presentation were made, and we didn't say anything. And then later when we discussed the plan, we were told, hey, you saw this before. How can you say this now? So if we have a comment, I think we should make it now, and then nobody can say, hey, you never said anything. Okay. So okay, I'm trying to make that. <laughs> so I'm not, I'm trying, not trying to interrupt you, but um, no, go ahead. <laughs> you've, you've got some green space along Wooden Parkway, which to me is not particularly usable parkland. That whole area is wooded, not just the piece you showed mm -hmm. as a strip, both sides of that new road that goes through by the gas station, I mm -hmm. guess. Um, I'd rather see a park that's in the middle of substance or a square or something that can serve the residents across the street of uh, the old Montrose Road and 
and the new development that happens there, rather than a strip of woods along this high-speed Wooten Parkway, which I don't think is particularly usable. So just as a general goal, unless you can put a bike path through it, like the one you're proposing behind the office buildings on uh, pedestrian connection, I, I think these little strip parks, which may be buffers for residents or, or buffers on the road, don't serve the purpose of activated usable parks. So if you're going to have a park in that big triangle thing, and it's all wooded except for where the houses are, then put it in the middle and make it really usable. Maybe make it off that little spine road that goes through there. Um, and the other parks, there's another sort of strip park on the right side. Uh, Before you get to that, says can open you space. Out, could you point out what parks. you're talking about? I, I um, there's space. the Wooten Parkway. Yeah, I'm having a hard time seeing There's it. a green, there's a Green or open space or park? That's not a park. What is it? That's Montrose it's Park. Open, it's it's, it's open currently space. it's it's a wooded privately. Yeah. Yeah. But the but the brown the brown part that's immediate to the right correct. of it is all wooded too, correct. all the way to the it, corner. It is correct, correct. So I'm saying if you're going to create a green space, make it a usable green space that, in my opinion, that can serve all the residents both existing on the corner. There's a big high rise on the corner of Rockville Pike and the old Montrose Road, I mean, a lot of units, and there, there's no park for them. Well, my, my comment on that is, you know, smaller spaces don't necessarily need to be designated as public parks because, for one thing, they create a nightmare to maintain for anyone that's taken, if the Parks Department would have to take them over and maintain them. If they would be as, you know, in the in the hands of the private, private parks, you know, maybe it comes from the community development there, or something for the developer, that's one thing. But tiny little parks like that, I don't consider, and I don't think that's what these are intended to be. These aren't intended to be parks. Maybe we do need a park in the area. But maybe we do need a park in the area, but I don't think we could, should consider that these are what we would define as parks. Certainly I would. Well, I, ta I take your point to be that uh, along Wooten Parkway, which is north of here, I believe, but on this map, that area, I think on uh, Montrose, that some of it appears to have been developed kind of along the same theory as Columbia, Maryland, which is to say neighborhoods that sort of turn their back on the major streets and they're sort of surrounded by trees and everybody thought that looked nice. But it's really kind of ultimately isolating, doesn't create any usable uh, park space or anything like that. And, you know, it's sort of pleasant to drive along, but functionally yeah. uh, not really much going on there. Okay, I just want to make sure I understood that. And I, and, That's what I, mean. and I agree with that. Uh, I take it what they're saying is not that they're going to take ex any extraordinary measures to uh, try to do anything to, to increase or to, although since it does back up onto, I think, uh, other, other structures, not, a, not all of it's maybe residential, but uh, it's a little bit hard to see what, perhaps in retrospect, that development pattern along Montrose is not uh, ideal or efficient uh, or doesn't produce necessarily great green space or whether it's privately owned or publicly owned, but hard to see how that could be unwound in a way that would be uh, constructive. Yeah, one, one of the things that, that we're thinking of is that because of the amount, the type of development 
that we're seeing conceptually and what we're thinking about in this area is that having some amount of uh, either, if it's privately owned, potentially it's possible. We haven't made a determination one way or the other, but having some amount of the existing vegetation be retained is a benefit for obviously the existing Charrington townhouses, uh, the future residents, and also you do have a very nice um, uh, shared use path along the Montrose Parkway that runs right adjacent um, to the existing um, tree area. If you're going to, if someone wants to do development, they have an opportunity to dedicate park space, and um, they're going to build units or whatever. And so, the park space should also benefit them. That's why they're going to dedicate it. So the park that would serve whatever new units are there and the people across the street that already exist, you know, maybe a better use than just a strip along Montrose Road, yep. no matter how wide it is, and and then it could be really activated. Um, so yeah, if, if they're going to develop something, they're going to go high or whatever your height recommendations are, then they got they get an opportunity to dedicate some substantial park space behind them, whether it's private or public, and, and you can really use it. And if I understand you correctly, I think I agree with you that what you're saying is we're not looking to give anybody any extra credit for preserving this green space along the highway, basically. Yeah, and and uh, you've done it across the street, it looks like. You have a park right in the middle of all that brown uh, develop, potential development, and maybe it could be even bigger, um, but it, it's centrally located to the to the people potentially they're going to use it. Yeah. Um, okay, we'll, we'll Yeah, I mean, that bike path, comments. Uh, to be blunt, is an example of a old-school suburban bike planning that sort of said, uh, the bad news is we're going to blast a highway through here. The good news is there's a bike pass, so you should be happy about it. And it doesn't really function very well because the distances to be covered, the, the public realm between wherever it is you started and wherever you're getting to is, uh, even though it's physically safe and separated from traffic, it's basically you're on a highway. So it's kind of like the ICC bike trail, not really a lot of fun for most people. But we're not here to... Uh, Review the sins of the past. Okay. <laughs> no. Um, heading, heading east to the plan area in terms of this concept, uh, we're looking to do a couple of things. Um, one is um, some neighborhood centers here at Lomans, a potential one at um, the Randolph Hill Shopping Center, retention of the existing um, in, industrial um, that's adjacent um, to the tracks. Um, I previously mentioned about investments regarding the Western workaround and, and how we're looking at that area. So clearly, um, these properties here, um, in terms of having a relationship between potential an extension of Rose Avenue onto the Willow property, um, and then some the relationship between the Guardian Realty site and maybe another property or two down the block to <clears throat> the Gables White Flint approved plan. And then the future development that will be between Grand Park and um, and Old Georgetown Road. Our connectivity concept is really looking at how we could create more um, alternatives um, within, especially within this block here between 55 and East Jefferson, um, how to provide greater connectivity between both the east side, east and west. And likewise, um, taking advantage of the recently built 
um, Stonehenge Place Street, which is right here, how we could have that go further south to Executive, and then obviously the, the potential extension um, to um, Town Road and, and Future Rose Avenue. And why wouldn't you, uh, I, there's probably something built in the way, but I, I can't really tell. Uh, is there a reason why you wouldn't continue to extend it to the to the north or to the south to complete that sort of, uh, you know, workaround? This area here? Yeah. Uh, we, we do have the very significant Merrimont apartments and condominiums uh, there. Okay. And what's to the south of there? Uh, south of this you have right here is the JCC. Oh, no, I mean the south of where you show that new street connection. All the way south, down by, I guess, where you say Future Market Street. Uh, I take it you can't connect. Uh, yes, I mean, you have um, environmental limits here. You do have a stream um, that that's within this vicinity right here. Um, we, we're As it's how this has been illustrated, we sort of penciled in. Um, this potential, but it's some area that we've not yet really focused on and see if that's clearly um, possible in our recommendations. And there's a single-family neighborhood adjacent to that, um, the green border that we're showing, where Lux Manor School is right there, single-family home. So we really can't extend it into that area. And one of the challenges for Executive Boulevard is that the, the, the properties are very vertical in nature. Um, so in terms of getting streets that either heading no westerly direction or even north-south streets are, are very challenging to put them in place, especially public streets or even private streets. Um, we, we talked a lot about um, the green space along um, uh, existing Montrose Road, but this is our concept in terms of we're really seeing where properties have the potential to redevelop or where we have existing zoning that would lead towards future redevelopment to provide a variety of uh, neighborhood greens or urban plazas. So uh, this is a sort of a continuation of our framework that we established via the 2010 uh, White Flint Sector Plan. Um, Bit about land use alternatives, like Andrea talked about earlier for, for Rock Spring. Um, for White Flint 2, um, we essentially the first alternative, alternative 1 or existing likely, just looks at the existing zoning pattern that's there today. What's been approved via the conversion in 2014, where we have commercial residential, where we have ELF, where we have uh, light industrial. Um, and then we retained um, some of the existing multifamily in the different scenarios or different alternatives, the single family and the industrial zones. And then we have some caveats regarding uh, the mixture of the different districts as we move forward looking at them. Um, and this, this is the first alternative, alternative one, um, existing conditions, roughly 3,200, 2.7 million square feet uh, of non-residential development. Um, the second alternative, adds a bit more, um, and then the third alternative um, goes, a, goes a bit higher, just increasing the amount of potential of uh, either commercial residential zoning or, or CRT. Um, and then this is the, the grand total of alternative one, second alternative, and the third, which takes things up to 5,700 uh, units, obviously more uh, non-residential, and compared to what we have um, today. So we're going to pivot a bit in this presentation, talk briefly about... Oh. So 
if that exi- that exists right now, 6.4 million, how do you do more residential? Uh, if or is there if there isn't a capacity problem? Uh, well, I mean, because the 6.4 million is built, right? It's not that, that's existing non-residential. That's your all your office park, your right. industrial, etc. Yeah. So. I guess how do you do those other scenarios? Because you, well, we, show, you show less office. Well, as I mentioned, in terms of the caveats, we, the office retail industrial order does sometimes vary by the different districts in terms of some of the assumptions we made. Um, so go back some, to the slide with the chart. Mm-hmm. How do you go from 6.4 million existing non-residential back to the other three scenarios? Well, on alternative one, we're using the existing zoning, right? Well, except that you have 6.4 million on the ground, or it's just existing zoning. That's just existing development, the built development today. 6.4 million non-residential is existing, actually built, not just approved. Correct. So, to get back to the alternative one, two, or three, does some of that has to disappear? Is that the plan? In this, what we've illustrated here, this is sort of new development. Obviously, you'll have some teardowns of. Oh, that's on top of what's there. Yes. Not. Oh, 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 that wasn't clear. I got it. So you're going to have additional potential, all those three scenarios, and additional potential number of units. Is, is it one or the other or combination or both? Well, on, on, the, on the residential side, we will be adding on to the 1904. Right. Um, on the non-residential side, you'll have some variation because um, if you have a commercial center, you could knock it down and add a bit more. Um, for example, uh, for example, Packet Rose, 300,000 square feet of retail, and they added back on add on back to more than 300,000 square foot of retail. So you're making certain assumptions about redevelopment of some property. Correct. Correct. And that's as how well we as some infill or whatever. Correct. So, so Correct. Un, under these scenarios, if someone took a six point, whatever they have of the 6.4 and decided to knock it down, that would add to the top number because the top number is in addition to what's existing. So if they actually eliminated a building, for example, and they could <laughs> exchange it for something new that's not really on your chart it's yeah we, 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 we that, yes that's another exercise that we have done post white plains one effort to go what, back do in you, do you know the vacancies here as well um well on executive boulevard we we did have three vacant buildings um but recently it was announced that one building will be absorbing 150,000 square feet abt is moving from bethesda into rock spring um, and they're, by and large, the, the vacancies have been less than 20% for the, the office component of the planning. Currently about on 20%. Executive, on executive part, primarily where all the offices are. Um, in terms of schools, Andrea mentioned it briefly, we have two segments of um, two school clusters. Um, primarily it's Walter Johnson Cluster, illustrated here in this graphic. So most of... <laughs> Executive Boulevard and everything on the west side of 355, as well as the east side for the two major shopping centers, as well as the track area is within the Walter Johnson cluster, and then everything else and highlighted here in red is within the Down County um, consortium. So we have to balance things for as we think about the school impact. So 
Um, these are the, the student yield rates for both the Down County area consortium as well as the Walter Johnson cluster um, for all three alternatives. We did make um, a new assumption versus the 2010 effort where in the 2010 plan we assumed everything would be multifamily, five levels or more. Um, in this effort we're assuming roughly 10% will be townhouses and then the rest will be multifamily just to provide a variety um, in the unit yield. Um, and then this is a combination of both Rock Spring and White Spring 2 uh, projected student yield overall um, the three alternatives. Obviously, the, the last one is where we're, we're much higher, um, and that's actually similar to the White Flint 1 effort where we're forecasting um, roughly 410 uh, elementary students over that 9,800 uh, units um, for the White Flint 1 plan. Um, so if there are any other questions for me on White Flint 2, I will turn it over well, the, to I, Eric. I think maybe here it even is more pertinent. The less we can argue about FARs per site, I would love to not, I don't know if the chair agrees, but I would love to not have to do that again, that we just deal with heights and overall capacity and and then different FARs fit in things and do do a, a final cap at whatever uh, Eric and the staff ag agrees is a fair number, and then hopefully we'll get people who really can do something. May, may even work here more. Well, I, I appreciate that uh, vote of confidence, but um, I'm not sure it – well, listen to what he has to say about traffic, and then we can revisit that. I think on the residential units, uh, the, you know, there will be a lot of, uh, you know, discussion, I think, with the community about schools' impact. I think uh, this, well, this uh, Walter Johnson cluster roundtable – process hopefully is going to produce a, a number of different options to meet that. But part of, I think one of the questions that uh, citizens are going to ask who are not uh, in the real estate business is going to be, what's your theory about why we need more residential? And I think there's some pretty good answers to that, not only as it applies to uh, desirability of increasing supply of housing, including market rate housing in places that are relatively close to the core, if not exactly adjacent to transit, but also in making these places more attractive for office, that it's about uh, trying to create conditions where people will want to work because it's a great place to be because the people who live there are supporting things like restaurants and uh, retail and some of the other uh, amenities. Uh, so I, I think We'll uh, hear what Eric has to say about traffic, but I think some of this debate about how much capacity is appropriate is going to depend on convincing people that there's a compelling reason why we ought to build any new residential anywhere. I mean, that's something a lot of people are having a lot of trouble uh, accepting. And and as I say, I, I'm, I believe there's really good reasons to build more residential uh, in this area in particular. But that's, I think, where the jugular vein of this uh, debate is going to be. But let's uh, hear from Mr. Gray. Thank you. For the record, Eric Gray with Motion Planning and Policy. And uh, before I begin, I wanted to uh, uh, make a point of clarification. Uh, there's been a lot of reference to uh, Eric being responsible for the transportation modeling. That's only partially true. Actually, it's uh, Jessup Lee 
on our staff who's been with us about a, a little over a year now, responsible for actually running the model and taking the results from that tool and putting it into our process that we do, do all the number crunching for the intersection analysis and summarizing the results. So Jess have really uh, is responsible for doing that. So I'm here reporting on the information that uh, Jess has produced. So I just want to make that clear. Um, the uh, focus of the analysis that we've done for both Rock Spring Park and Rock Spring and, um, and uh, White Flint 2 is uh, I really characterize it as a uh, preliminary analysis. This is our first cut at uh, doing this analysis, and the focus is on the intersections at this particular point in time. And I think it's also important to understand that uh, really the analysis that we've done so far, I think, is really can be characterized as conservative in that uh, for the key assumptions, we don't assume any additional uh, geometric or operational intersection improvements at the intersection. So basically what's out there today in terms of the, uh, the, the way that the intersections are configured is what we assume the analysis. Uh, we're not assuming uh, BRT, at least not at this particular point in any of the future scenarios. Uh, clearly in the context of um, White Flint 2, BRT along 355 and along Randolph Road would be relevant and pertinent for, this, for, for that plan. And in the context of um, Rock Spring, the North Bethesda Transitway between Grosvenor and, uh, the, and the mall uh, would be relevant. But at least at this particular point, those assumptions are not in this round of analysis. And also, we're not assuming any uh, non-order driver mode share goals, at least not at this particular point in this analysis. So I think that's uh, it's important to understand. So this is really conservative. Also, last but not least, even though it's not on this slide, we're not assuming any of the um, conceptual streets that uh, uh, Andrea and uh, Nicosi mentioned uh, in their presentation. So we're, we're not there yet. Uh, the reason that we're doing this transportation analysis is to form the evaluation of the alternative land use scenarios that uh, Nicosi and Andrea spoke about. And we're analyzing White Flint 2 and Rock Spring uh, in uh, concurrently. And I think that this is appropriate because I think it recognizes the relative close proximity of the two sector plan areas. And then to the degree that that proximity is there and we can capture some synergy between uh, the two areas, we think that's important. So when, we, when we're looking at Rock Spring, the assumptions for um, White Flint 2 are in the background for that analysis and vice versa. So I think that's important to understand. And uh, so and it's, it's really important to do that, I think, because it really enhances, I think, the integrity of the analysis that we're doing. But also, frank, quite frankly, it minimizes the, the number of model runs that my staff has to do. So I think that's really important as well. So uh, and, uh, and because this is sort of, sort of the first bite of the apple, there will be additional traffic analysis that will follow. We'll take these results. We'll interpret them, understand them, and see what else we need to do in terms of looking at traffic uh, for, this, for these two areas. Uh, in terms of the, uh, uh, the analysis, and also just as point of just full disclosure, this is a CLV analysis, okay? And uh, so I say that and I'm going to duck. Uh, because uh, we, we do recognize that, that uh, we're still using CLV is still the the, the, the regime that we're that we're using. So the information that the, the analysis approach that we've done and the information that, that's reported is very similar. Actually, it's a carbon copy of what you've seen in some of your some of our previous plans. Most recently, I guess in context of Bethesda downtown plan. I know, and so the information that we're going to be reporting and the and the format that you're going to see it is very similar to what you've seen before. So we'll we'll talk about that. 
So uh, in terms of the um, Rock Spring Park area, uh, you see the intersections that we, that we analyzed, and there were, there were 14 of them. You see them depicted here in this graphic. Uh, we looked at existing conditions, and these are the results. And what you're looking at are what I call intersection level service dot maps. And so on the left-hand side of the dot represents uh, level of service in the a.m. peak hour. And uh, the right side of the, of the dot represents level of service in the p.m. peak hour. And so the purpose of summarizing this information is to identify where we see hot spots or warm, to, warm spots in the analysis. And so at least in terms of existing conditions, what you see is at least, at least in the p.m. peak hour, that at the Democracy in Fernwood and along Old Georgetown Road at Democracy and also at Tuckerman, even though at Tuckerman is physically outside the uh, sector plan area, it certainly is, is proximate to that area. We see that there are at least uh, Tuckerman is clearly a hot spot at Tuckerman and Old Georgetown and at Democracy in Old Georgetown and Democracy in Fernwood, at least in the PM peak hour, those are warm, warm spots, if you will. Then we looked at the alternatives. This is alternative one, uh, and you can look see the results there. They're, frankly, they're fairly similar to what you saw in, in existing conditions. There are some, there's at least one, row, one intersection internal in the area that's here. In, uh, here in the PMP hour that is uh, showing, at least is, is, is approaching capacity. But again, overall, I think the results, results, the results indicate that, um, you know, there, is, uh, there, there seems to be capacity in the area for alternative, alternative one. And I'm going to take you quickly to alternatives, show you alternative two. If you look at that, and then you look at alternative three, really, and then you go back, frankly, you know, the results in terms of level of service don't change. They're exactly the same. Now, that doesn't mean that the, there's not more traffic in one versus the other. It just means that the intersection, that the, that the CLV value didn't change in, between the alternatives enough to warrant a change in level of service. So there are differences in the numbers, but in terms of overall level of service, they're relative, relatively the same. And I think this is reflective of the fact that if you look at the scenarios that uh, Andrew presented, that the differences between those scenarios are relatively modest. So, you know, I would suspect, and I think these results bear out, that the impact on traffic is, is essentially the same among the three alternatives. So I think that's really one, I guess that's probably the key takeaway from, uh, for Rock Spring uh, in terms of the traffic analysis that we've done so far. So that was alternative two and alternative three. So again, the takeaway, basically we're talking uh, the same overall level of service among the three alternatives. Moving into White Flint 2, uh, this is the study area for White Flint 2. You see the bow tie there. And then we also looked at uh, existing conditions and three, alternative, and three alternatives. These are the existing conditions for uh, uh, Rock Spring, I'm sorry, for, for White Flint 2. Uh, and, you know, frankly, it doesn't really look all that bad in terms of uh, level of service. You do see along 355, get to the here to the south at, um, at, um, at Nicholson, uh, that you do have uh, uh, approaching congestion in the PM peak hour uh, in that location. Also, these intersections along 355 are physically 
certainly proximate to, but physically outside of the uh, Rock Spring, I'm sorry, the, the White Flint II uh, sector plan area. We do see some locations along the Montrose, along uh, Montrose, I'm sorry, Randolph Road in the PM peak hour that do show uh, approaching uh, level of service, uh, uh, level of service, in, um, so, uh, approaching congestion conditions in, uh, in that location. Again, looking at the alternatives, the alternatives, we do see some differences now relative to what we saw in existing conditions, and that's primarily along 355 and along um, town, town Road in Old Georgetown, and to some degree, and, to some degree, and also going, going north along 355 here, and to some degree, you do see some increasing congestion along Montrose Parkway relative to, uh, and Randolph, Randolph Road Corridor relative to what we saw in existing conditions. And I think that really is reflective of the fact that, you know, 355 is really the key driver of um, what's happening in terms of traffic in this area. And uh, so, you know, it, uh, this area is going to be heavily influenced by through traffic. And so I think unlike Rock Spring Park, where you didn't see much differences, I think that within Rock so within White Flint 2, you see the combination of the different alternatives and also the combination of additional through traffic on 355 as contributing to uh, increasing level of service con uh, congestion problems uh, in, this, in this area. And then we go to alternative, alternative two. Again, uh, same, general, same general picture, but you do see some um, uh, uh, more problematic uh, congestion conditions along Old Georgetown and town, and to some degree increasing along 355. You see that there. And similarly, if you go to alternative three, uh, the congestion conditions get more, more pronounced. You see uh, higher levels of service along 350, again, along the major travel corridors, 355, town, and also along uh, Randolph and Montrose, Montrose Parkway. So that is really, uh, so I think that uh, to the extent that additional traffic analysis is warranted and the, some of the other measures that, that, I, that I mentioned that we didn't do, may come into play in this area is looking at what would be the impact of, of uh, perhaps maybe having non-order driver mode shares in this area akin to what we did in White Flint 1. I mean, the question is, well, why not do that? I mean, the areas are adjacent to each other. Uh, and the, the other thing is, you know, uh, look, looking at the impact of, uh, to the extent that we can implement um, conceptual streets in this area, what impact would that have on traffic? And last but not least, but also considering BRT to see what impact that could have as well. Well, we're not there yet, so this is basically where we are at this particular point. I think that's it. Yeah, well, I, I think that um, on, the, on the White Flint 2 part, uh, relatively, it seems that a relatively moderate uh, well, let's put it this way, some, some approaches that are not uh, particularly ambitious on mode share mm -hmm. or assumptions about, you know, trying to uh, connect a couple of additional streets and seeing what, you know, can be done to, you know, take some of the load off of some of these sure. uh, intersections in the plan area. That seems like that ought to be uh, within the realm of possibility without doing anything yeah, I, I, I would say so, and I didn't. Super aggressive. And I didn't, even though I mean, the other uh, fix, if you will, is to you know widen the intersections. Of course, I didn't say that. I think that would be sort of a last resort because I think that doing that certainly runs counter 
to uh, the vision we want for this area. We wanted, I think we want to be consistent with what we did in White Flint 1. I mean, that is in the, I guess, within the realm of possibility, but that's something that uh, I think we would uh, certainly uh, would, would play down in terms of looking at um, uh, as a remedy. Yeah. Uh, so you see, you see my point here that, that uh, I think that it may not be yeah, traffic is. I, I think schools are going to be the big uh, hot hot point of discussion. Um, you know, to me, it's not necessarily one or the other as much as it is how to get people who are in these areas to move ahead and do the changes we want to see. So I'm looking for some incentive, whether it's a school cap or a, you know, as far as new kids or a traffic cap or something that that encourages people to move ahead on plans that we approve. And again, it, um, the, the concept of approving height versus FAR is the same. It's just a matter of where do you stop, where do you say you've reached your limit? Because I think these office parks are just going to be very, very difficult to fill in the future, and we don't want to be seeing 30 or 35 percent vacancy and then and then say now what have we done, when there may be some people who would really convert. I, I know from this area that there are a lot of some major government leases. Um, and, and if an agency, when their lease is up, decides they want to move to some other location, a building gets empty. Uh, it almost happened at the um, Nuclear Regulatory Agency where they had a fight about whether they were going to take the, the next building that Al Al Alcor built. Um, or whether they were going to do something else, and they ended up using it for some other agency. But that was a close call. That could have been a big empty building right there in Whiteland, actually. So um, I think we have. I think it's great that you're ahead of the curve, um, hopefully. Uh, but if there are some people that can introduce residential here and within limitations of whatever the <laughs> wherever the bleeding starts. Uh, um, you know, I think that we should encourage whoever can really do something and not just have people hoarding capacity and sitting on it for 17 years and 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 counting. I guess it could go up to 20 if it goes to 2019. <laughs> Agreed. Uh, any thoughts over here? Very good. Yeah, so I think you're hearing on both these, uh, you know, I think the board is interested in in ideas about how to, uh, you know, accommodate uh, property owners who are serious about moving forward and not uh, inviting a lot of, you know, sort of speculative accumulation of, of uh, capacity. Uh, and uh, as I said, um, well, and secondly, I think looking at some TDM or, uh, you know, mode share approaches to trying to get the traffic take the edge off of the traffic uh, issue. And lastly, I think this is kind of an opportunity to make the case for housing. That, you know, at some point, I think it's the role of this uh, agency to uh, provide some intellectual leadership to uh, explain why it is that we, you know, what is the, the, the county's theory and to try to, you know, sell that case to the county council and to to residents to say this is this is what we think is is needed and this is why, and um, this these plans seem to me to be a, a, an opportunity for that as well as a as a challenge and potentially a point of contention 
because uh, I hear this from a lot of people, like, why do we need more housing? And I think that people don't really understand uh, or, or may not fully appreciate the, how slow the pace of new residential development has been over the past several years because their perception is, I see cranes on Wisconsin Avenue in Bethesda, with cranes on Georgia Avenue in Silver Spring, the Wheaton Exchange, you know, at the Safeway. I see North Bethesda Market. It looks like, oh, my God, that's a lot of development. Actually, the total number of units per year is well below the 25-year average, and that's causing issues with affordability. It's causing issues with uh, access to jobs and, and other amenities, and... Um, this is sort of an opportunity for us to explain that and contextualize that because those are fair questions and they go beyond this plan. But as long as people are going to be pressing us to say, well, what's, why, you know, why that we should start with the, with the, uh, fundamentals and say, this is not just because we think that, uh, you know, property owners should have an opportunity to, uh, uh, redevelop. This is about, the public's interest in creating uh, places for people to live that are desirable and to uh, make this uh, continue to be an attractive place to live and work. Actually, actually in this area, now you mentioned it, um, there really isn't much um, controlled affordable housing at all. So if, it, if the new units, whatever you recommend, have their 12.5% at a minimum of affordable housing, um, that's a big number. That would end up right in the right place, right, I think. Where we need it, yeah. But it's true that perception, um, certainly in the meetings that we've had on these two plans, is that we're overbuilding for housing, that, you know, that White Flint 1 is, they're stuck on some numbers. Um, 9,800 dwelling units is a potential maximum amount that could happen someday, maybe, but it probably won't. And six years after that plan was approved, we only have a couple hundred dwelling units under construction. So um, we're not keeping pace with um, the need as as you've expressed, uh, Chair Anderson. Something we should so. keep in the forefront of our minds even when working on Bethesda. I didn't think you were that convincing, but you were. All right. <laughs> That's gratifying. I appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> Speak into the microphone. Um, I'm going to get that on tape. Uh, uh, okay, thank you all uh, very much. That's thank helpful. you very much. Did you much. get the direction you needed? Yes, this was great. Thank you very much. Great. Thank you. We'll be back. And I hope you'll thank everybody else who's working on this, too. You mentioned uh, Jessup Lee, but everybody, we know it's not just the people who come here. And we do know they're working hard. Let's uh, take a little break before the next item.
Good afternoon. For the record, I'm Catherine Nelson, and this is Fred Boyd on the Area 3 Planning Group. Um, also here today from WSSC are Ken Dixon, the project manager, and Tom Hilton. They will be giving a um, detailed report of this uh, analysis and study. Also with us, um, Dave Lake from the Department of Environmental Protection, and I understand that uh, Keith Levchenko from the County Council is uh, on his way. Before you today is a review of the Ten Mile Creek Sewer Facility Study. Uh, the Planning Board's comments from today will be transmitted to the County Council, who will also be reviewing this facility plan. This is an unusual process in that the Council doesn't usually get involved at this level, but due to the sensitivity of this area, they have uh, chosen to have more oversight into this process. The Planning Board was briefed at the beginning of this uh, study uh, in January of 2015, and uh, we will have WSSC go into detail about the process uh, of, of outreach and engineering that has taken place uh, since then to bring you this draft plan today. This study was done in response to recommendations from the Ten Mile Creek Master Plan Amendment from 2014. The recommendations, um, just in summary, they required a comprehensive um, plan for the sewer service, something that would be efficient, something that would be uh, environmentally sensitive, especially within this very sensitive area. And um, the system was also to be designed to serve the historic district. Mr. Boyd, did you want to say more about the uh, master Fred plan? Boyd, for the record, from the, the Area 3 planning team, I just would, would add that the other more technical elements that this, that this plan flows from, um, the council um, expanded the recommendations that, that you made for, for Ten Mile Creek to include this study as the condition of approval of a comprehensive category change amendment to the 10-year water and sewer plan. The original 1994 Clarksburg plan de determined that the most appropriate way to deal with um, sewer issues in, in, um, in Clarksburg was through the, the methodology of um, comprehensive amendments to the 10-year water and sewer plan. One has been done. For stage four in Clarksburg, it was approved last year, and as a condition of that approval, the study that we're discussing today was undertaken. I'm jumping to the end of Mr. Dixon's uh, presentation uh, to alternative 12. This is the recommended alternative within the study. And just briefly, it includes a pump station here on the Egan-Matlin property, which will serve um, this whole northern area. And then there's another pump station on the Miles Coppola property, which will serve the historic district and Miles Coppola, and the fire station, um, which has come, come back online uh, since this study was started. Finally, to the south uh, on the Pulte King property, um, Different sections uh, are treated differently. This section, in fact, can uh, gravity over to Cabin Branch and also this southern area. And then the, the middle area has um, pressure sewers. 
So there's a combination in the south uh, uh, of pressure sewers and gravity systems. Staff is in support of their recommendation, and we'd like to turn it over now to Ken Dixon. Good afternoon, uh, Chairman, uh, Ch Chairman Anderson and uh, commissioners. Uh, my, at, for the record, my name is Tom Hilton. I'm planning group leader with WSSC, and with me is Ken Dixon, wastewater planning unit coordinator. Uh, as you know, we're here today to brief you on the findings of the Clarksburg 10-mile Creek uh, sewer facility study and to recommend the findings of the study for your consideration. The process of studying this area has been ongoing for quite some time, and a consider considerable amount of effort has gone into the evaluation. The local community, through the Citizens Advisory Committee, uh, Montgomery County DEP, Montgomery County Planning, and the local landowners have all been extensively engaged throughout the, de the development of this study. Uh, we feel the recommendation provides a balanced approach that addresses the concerns and needs of the interested parties and meets the intent of the 10-mile uh, Creek Limited Master Plan Amendment. So with that, I'd like to turn the presentation over to Mr. Dixon. Thank you, Tom. Uh, for the record, again, I'm Ken Dixon. I'm the planning unit coordinator in terms of wastewater unit, um, planning unit for the uh, planning group. All right, we're going to go quickly through this presentation because some of the points have already been gone over, but just real quickly, um, I'll probably kind of briefly, quickly go through the background since Catherine's already gone through a lot of that. But uh, we'll go through the CAC process, the history, um, some of uh, some charts showing that the sewer study alternatives that we went through. I know you um, received a package of the full report, so we won't rehash the whole report here, but we'll, we'll kind of go through how we came to our decision. We did um, receive the package, but... The, the staff report references attachment one as where the recommendation is, but we only have attachment two. So if you could make sure to highlight. Unless, right. I thought maybe attachment one was figure 312, but that doesn't really make sense. Okay. So this, just this one sheet that is a map. That's what you meant. Okay. Got it. Oh, yeah. It's just in small type. Real small. No, it's okay. We got it together. Okay, moving on. All right. So um, again, we'll go through the alternatives. We'll go through some of the, some other issues that were um, um, dealt with, I guess, during the um, the sewer study process. The um, the business case evaluation, which sort of went to the um, it's just this extra step WSC is taking now to evaluate its projects. And, um, you know, the recommendations that we made, um, which was our recommended alternative that uh, Ms. Nelson already mentioned, and also the next steps moving forward. All right. Won't go through this. Uh, obviously, uh, this was uh, mentioned by Catherine. Um, I would note, though, that uh, there was a previous WSC study done for the um, Stage 3 and 4 area facility plan. Now, Stage 4 was not was just sort of a cursory review. It was mainly for stage three, which was the cabin branch area. I would remind the, um, the planning board that the stage three plan came in for mandatory referral because some of the um, gravity sewer that traversed through um, Black Hill Park, which supported, which was uh, the major infrastructure, infrastructure extension up to the stage three and four areas um, was required. So we did go through a mandatory referral process for that stage three master plan. Um, the limitations we did on this study, obviously, we, we considered the major infrastructure to get the, you know, wastewater from the individual properties and historic Clarksburg 
um, to our um, existing infrastructure. We did not consider maybe what was actually going on on site. That will probably come later through a more detailed process through the um, development review process with both uh, Park and Planning and um, WSSC. Um, also, um, the detailed development site plans have not yet been finalized, so a lot of this information is cursory, but we did work with the uh, property owners to get the, the best guesses in terms of some uh, conceptual ideas on what the, where they'd like to see their sewer go. Um, also, the um, site-specific infrastructure plans, again, will, will be refined as uh, the, the uh, development plans progress. Just to give you a general overview of the existing WSC facilities, um, the Crystal Rock pump station is, uh, I believe, to the south here. Um, and uh, it also pumps to our Seneca wastewater treatment plant, which is our major facility. But um, most of the major WSC facilities in this area have sufficient capacity to handle the wastewater from the development area. Um, also, we also like to note there is an existing pump station in Force Main that serves the Montgomery County Correctional Facility off of uh, I-270. And um, that Force Main also goes uh, under a tunnel under uh, I-270 to Gateway Center Drive, where there is an existing sewer on the east side of uh, I-270 and serves some of the uh, previous uh, development in the Clarksburg Town Center and other areas. All right, so let's talk about the significant properties. I'm sure you all are familiar with them from the, um, from the limited master plan amendment. There's the uh, Egan Matlin property to the north, the Miles uh, Coppola property to the um, also to the uh, south of, of uh, Egan Matlin, but also northwest of uh, I-270. Again, the county-owned property, which includes the um, existing um, detention facility, and the Pulte King property, uh, which is the furthest property to the west, and also borders on some of the uh, areas of Ten Mile Creek watershed. Um, I would also note that the Cabin Branch property, again, this is the stage three area that was mentioned in the master plan and much of the infrastructure uh, for stage four, for particularly for Pulte King, is going to be, have to be served by the Cabin Branch uh, development project. And um, that's to the south. And that was also, again, what came through previously in mandatory referral. Also, we, uh, we did gain an understanding from the county and both uh, the planning board, you all, that there was a strength, strong interest to have the sewer infrastructure facility plan consider alternatives to serve the uh, historic district of Clarksburg. Um, we know that there are existing septic system conditions out there that require the need for extension of uh, public sewer up there. And uh, we have had correspondence from uh, our previous um, General Manager, uh, CEO Jerry Johnson, back in 2004, that um, the uh, preferred location of our pump station um, would uh, there, there would be a central wastewater pumping station that would serve the upper part of the Ten Mile Creek area, and would also serve the Clarksburg Historic District. I'm sorry, and that um, the um, WC will both work with the county and to include the pumping station in our capital improvements program and that we would also design and construct that critical pump station provided that uh, our system development charge funding is available. Also, our current uh, general manager CEO, Carla Reed, reiterated in the uh, letter that went out to um, the uh, planning board chair, the uh, council chair, and the uh, county executive legate that uh, we're still committed to building that pump station. All right, let's talk about the CAC, the uh, process and history. Um, 
The CAC was comprised of 11 community members of uh, the Clarksburg area, some of them uh, representing various interests, uh, be that environmental, be that uh, Chamber of Commerce, also be that the various landowners represented in the uh, 10 Mile Creek area. Uh, they were the 11 people that uh, regularly attended the meetings. There's a listing of the names that I provided, but it's also in the report. Um, there's an awful lot of text here, but I'll kind of briefly go through it here. Um, the committee was non-voting. Um, we did have representatives from DEP, from the Parks Department, uh, from the, the council and the executive's office attending at the meetings. Um, they were present. They also participated in some of the discussions. Um, the process was basically a review of this, the alternatives that we would present to the CAC. Uh, at times during the meetings, we would propose alternatives. We would get comments and feedback from various members of the CAC to um, look at other alternatives, other options, mitigative measures, and uh, we would uh, obviously go back and try to go vet those uh, suggestions and come back and provide them to the CAC. Um, once we went through all the um, alternatives, and uh, there's a number of them as you can see in the package, um, we proposed a draft sewer infrastructure plan and we provided that to the Citizens Advisory Committee for review and comment. Um, Upon receiving their comments and also some of the comments from uh, DEP and uh, Park and Planning staff, we completed a final draft plan, which also added the, um, our response to the CAC input as well as uh, the, the input they provided at the back of the plan. Um, overall, there were 12 alternatives that were reviewed and vetted by WSSC. Um, that's in the package that you all received. Um, that was forwarded again to the um, you all, the planning board, the council, and the county executive's office um, for this briefing process. Now, the meetings that were held initially, uh, when we started with uh, five alternatives, we had a meeting on December 17, 2014. We held that at Rocky Hill Middle School. Um, there was quite a reaction to that first initial public <laughs> meeting, and um, we were able to. Um, Actually, uh, we had a couple of briefings. Uh, Catherine mentioned in January 2015, we've met with you all here on the planning board. We also met with the T&E committee um, and um, our commissioners later that February to explain to them the process that we were going to go through for this sewer study. Um, the meetings were held generally uh, between February and uh, September 2015. Um, uh, we met for most of those months uh, at the Up County Regional Service Center in Germantown. Um, the uh, working draft report was provided in October. Um, we received uh, CAC comments in uh, December 2015, and um, as of this March, we provided the um, report recommendation memo that I sent to our general manager through uh, Tom and uh, uh, our upper management, and also uh, the letter that you all received from Carla was uh, written on uh, March 25th. All right, very briefly, we're going to go through some of the alternatives that we did. They're in basically kind of bar charts showing you the um, alternatives that we went to. But I added a note here. Uh, some of the initial alternatives that we went through, we kind of went through an iterative process with this study. The alternatives one and two were basically mostly gravity sewer. Uh, there was a pump station that was uh, centrally located on the Pulte property, very close to, I guess, the 10 Mile Creek uh, stream. And... Um, we did receive feedback from uh, many members of the CAC that that was not an option that should be considered. And uh, we realized that because of the impact to the buffer areas, the uh, 
the environmental concerns that uh, we would not consider them, so we eliminated it from future um, further consideration in the study. So a couple slides, you're not going to see alternatives one and two, but they are in the report. All right, as you can see, um, from alternative three to alternative 12, there was a significant amount of uh, gravity sewer length, um, force main, which is um, a um, pipe that receives flow from the uh, pumping station, and a low pressure sewer, which is also, uh, it receives flow from the individual gravity, I'm sorry, the grinder pump units that will serve the individual houses. So throughout this process, there are varying lengths of uh, alternatives that we looked at. And um, Catherine mentioned alternative 12. So as you can see, there's, there's a significant length of uh, low pressure sewer and gravity sewer, but we significant, as going through this process, we did reduce the, uh, the amount of uh, sewer lengths. In addition to that, we also want to talk about the sewer lengths and buffers. Uh, the buffer areas that were denoted in the limited master plan amendment um, in going through this process, we did find that there were some iterations where there were some areas that were traversing through buffer areas. And um, we received feedback from uh, your staff, from some of the members of the CAC that were concerned about the environmental impacts, that we should look at various alternatives. So as you can see, um, some, some of the later alternatives, we significantly reduced the impact of the both gravity sewer and force main uh, in the buffer areas. All right. Stream crossings. Um, through alternatives 3 and 12, uh, there were a number of stream crossings. As you can see, when alternative 3, we started with 14, which obviously would have a significant impact on the, uh, the streams in uh, the 10 Mile Creek watershed. And um, through the iterative process, we ultimately reduced that for in alternative 12 to only being an impact where there were a total of three stream, stream crossings. And I believe in the package that uh, Catherine submitted, um, it, it mentioned that those stream crossings are mainly in roadways. So. Uh, number of pump stations, um, because of the topography of the area, it requires that, you know, obviously that all gravity can't be used so that we had to employ some use of uh, pumping, be that through a centralized pumping station or through a grinder system. So we started initially with, um, I think, of maybe one pump station and alternatives one and two, and, uh, you know, gradually uh, moved up to possibly six in <laughs> uh, some of the, later, the earlier alternatives, but eventually we reduced our, uh, the amount of impact to um, three pump stations, which I think also includes the existing pump station on the um, detention center site. Originally, we had thought about maybe trying to combine some alignments to possibly eliminate the, um, the um, pump station on the detention center facility, but realistically, um, we would have had to build significant sewer through the um, county property, and I don't think the county was very interested in having us do construction and uh, development or just building new sewers through that area, uh, that wooded area. So we, we understood that we should probably leave that uh, pump station enforcement in place. All right, this is just saying that the uh, the impervious areas, um, this is just an assumption that was made in the general report. Obviously, there'll be some more detail once the um, actual pump stations are designed. Um, but we assumed maybe about 3,200 square feet per wastewater pump station. And of course, this corresponds to the number of wastewater pump stations. You have one, you have 3,200 feet, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we wound up with a, uh, approximately two new wastewater pump stations. So the additional um, square footage of uh, impervious area we would have would be about 6,400 square feet for alternative 12. 
going through some of the additional issues that we encountered during the CAC process. Um, Gateway Drive, we mentioned, uh, particularly um, there would probably be, uh, like most likely in the alternative that we're recommending, um, an extension that would lead to be, uh, be served in the Gateway Center Drive area from both the uh, Egan Matlin and um, Miles Coppola properties in historic Clarksburg. Being is that that's mostly gravity sewer, um, a few pump stations, um, it would require um, obviously access to the existing sewer and gateway center drive. There are some, because of the um, various changing lengths of the sewer, as you move further downstream, the, um, the you know, the, you see the diameters increasing dramatically as we move um, down gateway center drive. But in the earlier parts where there's this 12-inch sewer, um, based on the uh, topography and the slope. Um, there may be a few small bottlenecks. I don't think that'll be an area that'll right away affect the um, connection to the uh, eastern properties in Ten Mile Creek. But in um, perhaps in the future, uh, we know that there is an existing property, the Comset property that's down there, and it's our understanding that there may be some future additional development or redevelopment of that property. So we may have to relook re at that uh, sewer capacity and that bottleneck and gateway drive at that point. Also, um, we were looking at the uh, design requirements for force mains. During the um, study, I'm sure you are familiar with the, um, the only wastewater pumping station of force main breaks that uh, happened and um, got made quite uh, the uh, news headlines during that period uh, last summer. And um, there were some uh, significant SSOs that occurred due to those force main breaks in that uh, only wastewater pumping station force main. Um, of course, there was a, a concern expressed from the members of the CAC that, okay, if we're going to build pump stations and put force mains in, is there things or are there mitigation measures we can put in to assure that, you know, uh, a major break like that and possible uh, major uh, sewer sanitary sewer overflow from the force main from a pump facility uh, impacting the local environment. So based on our design guidelines, um, we actually have procedures in place to determine potential for hydrogen sulfide. That's the gas that's generated um, because of the anaerobic process that comes out of the uh, wastewater pump station. It comes into the force main. Um, there's, a, there's a Pomeroy's equation that we use in the calculation. Um, but uh, we are under the process right now of going through a, a review of our business case process in terms of evaluating whether we should look at new pipe materials or additional force main resili resiliency, such as maybe adding a redundant pipe or something like that. And right now we're in a preliminary process of doing that. But uh, those measures hopefully would be aimed at increasing the reliability and extending the life of the uh, force main pipes. Um, any new technology or modification of the design guidelines we have would, would be adopted by us, but we would have to go through a careful and, and thorough internal analysis. And again, we're going through a business case evaluation, and I'll provide more on that later. Um, currently, um, we have a standard procedure policy regarding grinder systems. Um, we have a number of them in our system, but usually uh, we don't, it's not a high preference on our system and all intents and purposes, of course, the most cost-effective way to um, transmit wastewater is using a gravity system. And uh, when that's not available, you try to use centralized pumping. And then in terms of our preference, we um, low-pressure grinder systems is our third preference based on this policy. This is our standard procedure uh, in ENG 0410, which was established back in 2004. 
Um, yes, we have 1,300 grinder pumps in uh, Montgomery County, uh, over the 200, 2,000, sorry, that we have. Um, most of the systems are very small. They don't serve, uh, they serve maybe a small number of homes. We have the occasional rare case where it may serve more than 50 homes, but as a result of the past experience in our system, um, we adopted the guidelines uh, that I mentioned earlier, our standard procedure to decide to limit the grinder systems to residential properties as much as we can, but if the non-residential property, a commercial property, decides to maybe get a grinder pump, we would require a dedicated unit for each property. We would not provide, say, a combined system where because um, to serve the overall commercial property because there's a possibility of the change out of the property from one type of use to another type of use, and there may be a higher amount of water flow or, or, or um, sewer generation. So it may um, be problematic if we combine, you know, rather than having one unit per each uh, uh, non-residential property, commercial property. But there's also uh, other criteria you put in our uh, policy that also results to um, the generation of uh, odors. A lot of times what happens is the the wastewater process, particularly in the grinder pump system, there's a low-pressure pipe. Uh, the grinder uh, basically grinds the uh, sewage into a sludge, ejects it into this uh, pump, uh, which ejects it into a um, small PVC low-pressure system. The process is very anaerobic, I suppose. In, in other words, there's very little oxygen introduced into the system. But usually way downstream of the grinder pump low-pressure system, there is a, usually a um, gravity system that receives the sewer from the uh, low-pressure system. So when you're introducing a gravity system which has oxygen coming through possibly the uh, manholes, even though the manholes are supposed to be airtight as much as possible, um, there is an introduction of oxygen. Sometimes that creates odor issues in some cases. Um, but we have developed a criteria to determine related to the detention time in the low-pressure system that may, uh, where odors may be generated. So we try to uh, determine that in the design of the low-pressure system. And again, um, there are also other technical limitations such as flow and pressure head on the low-pressure grinder system. Um, typically, we're just, uh, as a utility, we just want to pre present some of the advantages and disadvantages that we uh, had talked about during the CAC. Um, there is an advantage to a grinder pump system, obviously, uh, because as opposed to a gravity sewer, we have to have a constant slope and, uh, you know, it has to be downhill to provide the gravity uh, flow. Uh, a grinder pump can be constructed at discrete grade. It can have the proper depth of cover, sort of like a, a water main. Um, it's not as dependent, obviously, on gravity and elevation. There are smaller diameter mains, typically maybe one and a quarter inch to about two inches of diameter. Um, now, for a, a typical gravity sewer, the minimum uh, diameter requirement we have is eight inches, and the material is um, PVC or duct and iron. If it's in a stream crossing for a gravity sewer, they are most of the uh, low pressure sewers are small PVC pipes as well. Pressure sewers, of course, are a little cheaper to install than gravity sewer. You don't have to dig as deep. It's probably not as much construction. Uh, some of the other safety mitigation you have to do with a grinder with a gravity system. Um, it can be more cost-effective than a centralized pump station, particularly where you have fewer than 50 units or so. That's what we found in our uses. Um, there are some disadvantages, though, to these systems. Um, there is no redundant equipment, such as pumps and motors. There is, most cases, there's no redundancy. There's no backup. At a, at a pump station, you have a uh, generator. You have a backup system in case the, uh, the pumps go out. So 
There is no redundancy unless somebody has a generator perhaps at their house. Um, the low pressure system is obviously subject to higher and pressure limitations. Um, for the majority of our systems, they're owned and maintained by the homeowner, those, these grinder pumps. Um, there's also monitoring and alarms that can be done through the um, provider by, with the homeowner, but those can vary. Sometimes the, the, the alarm panels can be inside the home. Somebody, sometimes they can be outside the home. As we mentioned earlier, sometimes the odors can be difficult to control. Um, and also, if you have a number of pumps that exceed the maximum number of pumps um, as you design a grinder pump system, it may cause some operational and maintenance issues as well. Um, compared to centralized gravity pump stations, um, we do believe they provide a lower level of, software, of service of, to the customer because uh, there's, there is no staff with a grinder pump system to kind of come, come along as opposed to a wave fire pump station where you have a dedicated staff that can go and go through the system. All right, very quickly, I'm going to try and go into our recommendations. Um, we have a uh, staff in our technical services group, an environmental group, that kind of looked at pre preliminary evaluation of specific development plans um, other than the proposed. Uh, well, they, they looked at the general um, concepts that we had in the study. Um, they determined that, um, for the most part, um, there was an inquiry from the CAC that, well, is it possible to use low-pressure sewer for the whole service area? So we had them look at that determination now. We determined that at the Pulte King property, that's the property that's the furthest west and closest to 10 Mile Creek, due to the high densities that are proposed in that area, we think that um, it would be feasible to serve that area, but the entire sewer study area can't just be served by grinder pumps. We have to use um, gravity in some conditions because there are some conditions where if we employ uh, grinder pumps, it would basically be downhill pumping. And when you pump downhill, you're creating a situation where you can create a possibility of uh, uh, hydrogen sulfide forming in the pipe, particularly in points where you have uh, high points or low points in the pipe, and then that causes uh, that um, causes some problems with the, the the integrity of the pipe, and you may have an issue happening with what's happening at the only pump station in Forest Main earlier this summer or last summer. Um, there will be some mitigation we feel that may be required if when the Pulte King property builds out or while it's building out. Um, we know that in the past there have been some limited access sewers that have been built that have not been allowed to connect. Uh, we, our technical services staff recommended that between the low pressure system and the gravity system in Cabin Branch, there probably needs to be a pipe that would have no other connections. It may be a different type pipe material, but it would avoid the, the issue of possible sulfide gas forming and then possibly traveling into any home uh, house connections that would be connected to that sewer. So it would uh, it would probably need some sort of length of gravity sewer that would have no um, sewer, uh, sewer house connections along it. Um, just as a caveat, there would be further design and review of these low-pressure systems for the Pulte King and some of the other 10 Mile Creek properties. By the way, there are some other uh, low-pressure systems at the um, proposed at the uh, Egan property and perhaps at the um, Miles Copeland property. But as those developments are submitted in for um, our hydraulic planning analysis and um, obviously the development review here at Park and Planning, we would uh, ensure those systems meet current WC design, design guidelines and any standards we would uh, use currently or that would develop in the future. Now, the Pulte King property 
in some of the study areas we used, uh, we did look at serving it with a, with a wastewater pump station. Uh, it, it could be served by a wastewater pump station in Force Main, and we did mention that higher level of service that you do have. But um, we're, uh, because of the environmental concerns and, I guess, the proximity of Pulte King to Ten Mile Creek, we decided that uh, we could probably allow an exemption to our grinder systems policy, considering that uh, you all uh, determined that uh, we try to minimize, of course, the disturbance and impacts to the environmental resources of the Ten Mile Creek area. Uh, again, uh, alternative 12, as Catherine mentioned, uh, the Pulte King property is mostly served by gravity uh, sewers. There are a couple areas uh, or one central area of that development that was sort of sketched out on the uh, map that would be served by a grinder pump low pressure system based on our recommendation. Um, I mentioned the uh, business case evaluation. This is what we used to determine um, the uh, life cycle cost, list, the risk, and level of service. Um, normally, we go through a full business case evaluation, which means we, we vet the alternatives, we, um, we assign costs, we assign uh, different uh, factors to the business case evaluation. This is actually um, something that's being uh, developed and now being implemented as part of WSSC's um, normal policy. Um, what this is is that this is um, sort of uh, beginning the tracking of our assets as we introduce them into our system that they will be introduced and that we'll be able to track and manage our assets moving forward because now the WSSC is doing a, an asset management program. Um, we're requiring these business cases when new major facilities are being constructed or built within the WSSC service area. Now, again, um, in this case, we did an abbreviated business case evaluation because obviously we were doing a sewer study and um, we um, – decided to um, just kind of do the last step of doing the um, sort of an economic analysis. And um, what this business case evaluation does, again, it looks at the uh, life cycle cost analysis, which um, obviously looks at uh, the, the cost to design, build, and operate and uh, maintain over the life of the facility, and also um, looks at the additional risks that WSSC would absorb in implementing these alternatives. Um, for reasons of the study, um, there were very similar alternatives, and um, they seemed to have, uh, at least they were leaning towards the least environmental impact. We kind of, uh, the in minimum steam crossings, we evaluated alternatives 9 through 12 in the business case evaluation. That's what BCE stands for, sorry. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, alternative 12 had a, a high um, annuitized net present value uh, for us. Um, also, uh, Alternatives 11 and 12 um, were tied for the lowest risk absorption. Um, for 11 and 12, we kind of did an analysis where we both looked at it with the pump station and also for the grinder pump system. Um, because of the large differences in the annuitized value, but there were some small differences in the risk absorption, we decided to go with alternative 12, which is the um, recommended alternative that uh, Catherine mentioned earlier. Again, um, we propose a new pump station at the Egan property, Matlin property. We also propose the central um, Miles Coppola property. And um, going back to the uh, beginning of my presentation, I mentioned that um, we had committed to uh, constructing and building a pump station. This is the critical pump station here that's going to serve this upper um, Ten Mile Creek area, the Egan property, and also the historic district. So this pump station, in order to accommodate in getting the flow to the um, uh, 
um, Gateway Center Drive, uh, we'd have to implement that pump station at Miles, and uh, WSCC would would build and construct that pump station. The uh, other pump station, um, the Egan pump station, would probably likely be developer uh, funded and built with uh, hope of, I guess, getting uh, WSCC SDC uh, credits. Um, again, the pump station at the correctional facility would remain operational. Um, the total pressure sewer length is about 6,100 feet. The gravity sewer length is about 8,100 feet. We estimate, um, again, approximately about a 300 uh, individual grinder pump units for both, uh, I think, the, um, the upper property up here. I forgot to mention also there is an additional property here in purple up here that was not included in the property, but it is included in the 10 Mile Creek service area uh, and in this study. Uh, the total number of pump stations, including the existing pump station, would be three. Uh, there would be no additional tunnel crossings required under I-270, and the estimated cost in terms of capital O&M rounds out to about $9 million. And again, the, the minimum uh, impact of stream crossings would be about three. So um, in terms of next steps, um, we've already uh, worked in uh, as part of the asset management process in introducing a project into the CIP. Um, there's a project initiation form that, uh, that we have to do, our, our PIF, so we've already commenced that process um, uh, the mile for the miles pump station. Um, again, as I mentioned throughout this presentation, any additional development and other related CIP projects would um, proceed as development projects are submitted for review through, um, obviously, your department, uh, Department of Environmental Protection, and, of course, our WSSC Development Services Group. Um, Pulte King, as of interest, can develop independently of the other 10 Mile Creek properties. They're not dependent on any other infrastructure other than uh, the existing infrastructure that's uh, either been constructed or being uh, completed in the cabin branch service area. Um, but we would note that, obviously, specific development proposals coming in for the additional properties may require additional coordination between us, our organizations, both uh, DEP, um, Montgomery County Planning Department, and um, our development services group. And also in keeping with the um, limited mass plan amendment and the findings of the sewer study. Also, I would also like to mention that we did have great participation from both uh, DEP staff um, and park and planning staff during the study. Um, DEP staff helped us out in terms of some looking at some of the environmental issues involved in some of the watersheds. So, again, we'd like to thank them for their participation in this process, and we had definitely uh, some great talks with them. And um, actually, that ends my um, presentation. Sorry for being so long and uh, keeping you off from dinner, but... <laughs> Uh, we'd be happy to take any questions, any discussion you all have. As far as the, the total you. cost, is this like average? I mean, I was trying to calculate it's like roughly 20,000 linear feet when you add up all the, the pipes. Say it again. Is, is this the average? The cost was $9 million something? Is this cost typical yeah. Yeah, for the scale of the uh, of the project? project? Like do you normally expect a, a – It's order of magnitude. So, I mean, obviously there may be some – um, it's not the final cost figure, but um, I mean, this is just typically what we uh, what use. We consider uh, we had a consultant work with us, and they they use basic uh, WSSC uh, information in terms of um, you know cost per linear foot of pipe per diameter. And, is it normally uh, like around four fifty? Is that I was just trying trying to get a handle what, around my, what the like cost linear is. Foot per pipe? Um, yeah. I mean, we could get you those numbers. I want according. I would be interested even if you don't have the answer now. I just would yeah, be it might be detailed in the report yeah. with some of the assumptions they use. The, the cost for, for the different sizes of pipe will vary based upon the size and the length of pipe. And, and certain 
uh, conditions, whether it's in a congested road or whether it's in a field or something mm -hmm. like that. So that the sense. cost will vary, but we use our basic um, cost per unit uh, foot uh, prices based upon recent uh, contracts that we have. Okay. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Okay. We have a couple of people who wanted to speak. Mm -hmm. um, oh, I wanted to make one more comment. Um, this is the, uh, the, the on your screen. is uh, It's also in the package. There's the website. Where this whole process has been a public process. We have posted it to our WSC website. All of the uh, meeting minutes, the uh, reports, uh, this presentation also as well probably be uploaded up there. But we just wanted to let people know that the information is available on our website. Okay, great. Sorry. Thank you. Thank you. you. Uh, so I think we have Kathy West and Ann Slidell, or Ann Sinkew. I thought. You're keeping me guessing. Did you want to speak? Well, come on up. Now's the time. Good afternoon, Chair Anderson and members of the board. Uh, my name is Kathy Wiss, and I'm here today to represent the Friends of Ten Mile Creek and Little Seneca Reservoir, an organization that was formed to protect and preserve this unique and special place in Montgomery County. We support the planning staff's re recommendation to endorse WSSC Alternatives uh, 12. Two members of our group and I were honored to serve on the Citizens Advisory Committee established by WSSC. We worked hard for almost a year learning about sewer systems, discussing their pros and cons, and reviewing new designs. We would really like to thank Kenneth Dixon and the WSSC staff for graciously listening to our questions and responding to our comments, which were many. When I last spoke to you on January 15, 2015, I expressed our deep concern that WSSC's plans to provide sewers in the Ten Mile Creek watershed would have a devastating impact on the creek. Alternative one, which is no longer being considered, called for four miles of gravity sewers in the creek as tributaries and protected buffers. Uh, although this one was uh, considered to be to have too great an impact to pursue further, the one that was presented at the time with the least environmental impact, alternative five, was far from providing the protections required in the master plan amendment. It would still have required half a mile of gravity sewers and force mains in the buffers and multiple stream crossings, as you saw in Mr. Dixon's slides. It also called for four new pumping stations within the buffers and next to fragile uh, water resources. In contrast, alternative 12, the one preferred by WSSC and recommended by staff, would have no gravity sewers or force mains in the creek or its buffers, has fewer pumping stations and locates them outside the buffers, and calls for stream crossings only in the rights of way of existing roads. This meets the intent of the master plan amendment to, quote, locate sewer main alignments and pumping station sites to minimize, as feasible, disturbance of environmental buffers and forested areas. What makes this feasible is WSSC's acceptance of low-pressure sewers with grinder pumps in areas of the watershed where gravity sewers would require traversing the creek or its buffers. 
This is particularly important on the Pulte property, where most of the other alternatives would cause irreparable damage to Ten Mile Creek's most sensitive tributaries, LSTM 110 and LSTM 111, if you can remember back from many hearings years ago. Low-pressure sewers have been in use worldwide since 1970. They are frequently used in environmentally sensitive areas because their small, flexible pipes can follow the natural contour of the land up or down without having to depend on gravity. They can be rooted around natural features like ephemeral streams and wetlands, nor do they need deep, costly excavation to install. Pump stations can be eliminated, as has been done in Alternative 12. Our concern about pump stations and force mains is the volume of sanitary sewer overflows if they fail or leak. And WSSC has to maintain a, a listing of these on the web. And if you go there, you'll see that the overflow, the magnitude of the overflows can be in the thousands, if not millions, of gallons of sewage. And the reports always show you what creek they're flowing into. And Tumult Creek is steeply sloped, so any leak is going to roll very quickly down the hill and into the creek and ultimately into the reservoir. Uh, this raw sewage, um, and to clean it up, uh, it's very costly, uh, and also to repair it. But it's also an irreparable uh, cost to the environment. In contrast, overflows from low-pressure sewers are small, often no more than a gallon or two. And you can see this because all overflows are reported, even if it's in someone's front yard. Um, for a low-pressure system to operate, each home is outfitted with a grinder pump the size of a washing machine. It's usually uh, placed mostly underground so that all you can see is the top cover. They do require electricity to operate, but the cost is relatively low, about the same as a coffee maker. Extra capacity is built in. There's a, a big tank in case of a power outage. Uh, and they do have alarms, as Mr. Dixon said. Or a backup generator can be installed. It seems to be increasingly common uh, for the population as a whole if one looks at the displays at Home Depot, usually at the entrance door. Grinder pumps are already in use in the Ten Mile Creek watershed in the Woodcrest section east of Route 355, just sort of opposite uh, the, Matting, the Egan Mattingly property, Matlin property. Another way WSSC has found to avoid the creek and its buffers is to excavate more deeply in places near Route 355. Blasting for deep gravity sewers and force mains could cause vibrations that crack plaster in older homes or bedrock underlying the area. We appreciate WSSC's willingness to monitor homes in the historic district, but also urge WSSC and county agencies to monitor the effect of blasting on water resources, which could also respond to shifts underground. The Friends of Ten Mile Creek support provision of sewers to the historic district as soon as possible. Alternative 12 is predicated on this. Most of the earlier alternatives, including Alternative 11, align sewers and force mains along the, the bypass, which has yet to be built. Placement within the rights-of-way of existing roads, Route 355 and Clarksburg Road, allow sewers to be built now, both for the Historic District and the Egan-Matlin property. One question remains, how to provide sewer access to the northern part of the Miles Coppola property. 
When this area is developed, we urge that everything be done to avoid intrusion into seeps, springs, ephemeral streams, and wetlands that surround it. And we do have a final concern. Um, the, all of the maps erroneously have purple lines showing, purporting to designate the buildable areas on Pulte's property. Um, these include within them four stream segments in their protected buffers, which are off-limits to development. Uh, they were never reviewed or approved by a government agency. We were told that Pulte had supplied them. Uh, but in earlier communications, we requested that these boundaries be redrawn to actually accurately show full avoidance of all streams and their protected buffers. And I reiterate this request now. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Ms. Sinkyu. When it turns red, yeah, there you go. Hi, my name is Ann Sinkyu. Um, Slidell Road in Boyd's. Um, I have nothing prepared because I didn't know about this meeting. I just got back from Europe. But I have two main things to say, and I would like to pass around to you an article from the Palm Beach Post. And then tomorrow I will send to you an article from, you wouldn't believe it, but Rome, Italy both of which are so, so, so much praising Montgomery County and its, yeah, take them all in, good, praising our preservation of agricultural land. It was astounding to me to be in Italy and hear that people are talking about Montgomery County Maryland, but they were. And so I won't take up your time. I think Hans Reimer made a beautiful um, condensing of the point of Ten Mile Creek. So I probably don't need to reiterate it. So what he said is, I guess, basically what I would have to say and I just want to thank you guys for we are really known, not just in the United States, but, and I will send you, there was an article in Italy. That's quite amazing. I will. I will. So thank you all. Okay. <laughs> okay, right, because I speak a little, but I was working at it this afternoon, and it took me too long, and I just, okay. Th thank you. Oh, yeah, and Rose, Rose Krasnow is quoted in this. Probably. No, 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 wait, I want to put my spin on <laughs> just, yes. Yeah, well, thanks for bringing that to our attention. We see that uh, Rose Krasnow is quoted in the story, so very good. Uh, all right, so any uh, comments or questions? Um, you know, I think on the map, uh, really the important thing is that the map is not, uh, has no regulatory implication for the uh, future development review of the property. Is that, is that safe to say? 
In other words, when a development application is submitted, there will be a review of the uh, buffers according to the uh, other environmental regulations, the master plan, et cetera. It will not be by reference to a map that appears in the uh, in this document. Yes. The details um, of this concept will be worked out in the development process. Yeah. But nobody should be concerned that because somebody has included a map in here that appears to make some uh, representation about what's developable and what's not, that that is, has anything to do with one way or the other. That's right. Uh, okay. Thank you. Okay. So could we get a, a motion? You have to first thing, thank you for all the work. I know that the people in the historic Clarksburg have waited a long time. And so this is a happy occasion. I will gladly um, move that we approve the transmission of comments to, to the council. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? That motion carries. Thank you all for coming. Thank you. See you soon, I'm sure. <laughs>
Is the AV on? Yes. I think we're ready to go, Ms. Banks, okay. whenever you want to start. Okay. Oops, my mic's on. Okay. Uh, for the record, Aaron Banks. I am the project manager for the Greater Lindsville Sector Plan uh, staff team. Um, this is my last work session as project manager. Um, Melissa Williams will be taking over, and she's been um, with the plan um, since we restarted it and um, fully capable of taking over. She's not here tonight, but she's fully up to speed on what's going on, and I um, just want to thank everybody for putting up with me on the past couple work sessions. Well, so I know we'll have a chance to say goodbye, and you're going to have a, a little going-away party, but I wanted to say publicly uh, that I've really enjoyed uh, getting to know you a little bit, working with you. We're very sorry to see you go. Uh, and as I told you last time when you had uh, filled me in on your plans, if you ever want to come back, we'd lo love to uh, have you. You've been uh, fantastic. So Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, so I'll go ahead and get started. This is work session number three. Um, and I've got a bunch of staff members here tonight. Um, Christina Sasaki is new. She's... Um, a new new planner with parks, um, been doing a lot of design for the um, some of the park recommendations that we'll have before you tonight. Um, Chuck Kynes is here, also from parks. We have Matt Folden here from planning and transportation is his specialty. Lisa Gavoni is here. She's our housing specialist to talk about some affordable housing data when we talk about Summit Hills. And then I have Lara Shipman, um, our urban designer to my right, as well as Michael Brown, who's the Area 1 Master Plan Supervisor now. So um, without further ado, um, this is Work Session 3, and we'll be covering um, the remainder of the, the three sites that we did not cover in the last work session, um, and those are all in one district, um, the Woodside 16th Street Station Area District. And then we'll cover um, some transportation uh, elements of the plan and parks and open space. Um, work Session number 4, um, would be a continuation of some of the infrastructure elements with an emphasis on public schools where we'd have Bruce Crispell come in on June 9th and talk about the school um, or the student generation rates that um, would result from the um, proposed zoning changes. And then we'd also cover some text edits on June 9th and then June 23rd, um, some, some other text edits and uh, hopefully a planning board vote out to um, send the the plan up to the county executive and county council. So um, what we're asking from the planning board tonight is to finalize the zoning recommendations, um, and that, that requires decisions on three sites in the Woodside 16th Street Station Area District, um, a decision on the parks and open space recommendations and some related text changes. Um, we'd like for you to reaffirm the major transportation elements of the plan. Matt Folden has presented these in detail um, back in December. Um, so for brevity's sake, we have a lot of transportation slides as backup slides if questions arise. But um, Matt is mainly here tonight to answer questions that come up that relate to transportation. And then um, we would like you all to agree for us to proceed to work session four um, with the school's briefing and final edits in June. So we really have to finish that zoning so that we can give those numbers to Bruce for June 9th. So um, a recap from work session number two. Um, this map has um, been handed out to the board and was part of the planning board memo. Um, this just covers all the decisions that were made in work session two, and we also have it in um, an Excel chart for you here. Um, 
and well, we can answer any questions if we need to go back to um, some of those decisions that were made. Um, and so tonight we'll be covering um, the Woodside 16th Street Station area zoning first. Um, and as I mentioned, there's three sites. This first site is the Spring Center site. Then there's the Summit Hill site, 2A and 2B. And site three is the 8600 apartment site. So we'll cover one and three first because the planning board, if you remember, asked us to do some um, development test fits for these sites. And so Lara has put those together for you about um, the feasible, the feasibility of the FARs we've recommended um, for in terms of infill and new development. So um, site one um, is the Spring Center site, as I mentioned. Um, and that zoning is CRT 0.75 currently, and we're recommending a 3.0 FAR to establish uh, a mixed-use node right um, really on top of that Woodside 16th Street, 16th Street Station, um, Purple Line Station. And then Site 3 is the 8600 apartment site um, where there's an existing uh, apartment building zoned R10, and the proposed zoning there is CRT 2.5 and that's to allow for infill development around existing buildings or potentially whole-scale redevelopment if um, that building is, is aging out. So um, this is the density proposed for this district in terms of the number of net new units, so what you would visibly, um, I guess, feel on the ground in terms of the number of new versus what's there today. Um, and now I'll let Laura talk about um, these test fits. So again, I'm Laura Shipman. I'm the community designer on the team. Before we take a look at the zoning and development test fits requested by the board, we wanted to remind you that comparable development to the scale and FAR of proposed zoning for the two station areas can be found right across Spring Street at the Fenwick Apartments. This development is 60 feet in height and 109 dwelling units per acre, or approximately three FAR. There are two floors of underground parking, and units line the CSX tracks to the rear of the property. As we, as we consider zoning for the station areas, this is a feasible, moderate scale and density that we should keep in mind. Next slide, please. As we discussed last work session, with the construction of the Purple Line Station, Spring Center will be a constrained site with approximately 3.5 acres remaining as developable property. Next slide. Today, buildings on the Spring Center site are pulled back from the street and fronted with surface parking. Along with narrow sidewalks, this creates an uninviting place for people to walk. Next slide. Tomorrow, the site is envisioned as a transit-served, mixed-use center designed to include buildings with active ground floors lining 16th Street to relate to the sidewalk and make it more inviting to get to the Purple Line Station. Next slide. So this test fit of Site 1 seeks to meet this planned vision and also maximizes the FAR for the proposed zoning with two FAR of residential mid-rise development to the north or on the left-hand side of your screen and one FAR of mixed-use office retail development to the right. The concept includes a central plaza and kiss and ride adjacent to the station platform and parking is provided in two floors underground below the residential structure and 3.5 floors of structured parking shown with the green roof between the two office buildings with the ground floors lined with retail. The proposed zoning also allows flexibility for other mid-rise scenarios 
where more commercial is provided or primarily residential with retail ground floors can also be developed. Ultimately, again, the intention of the zoning is to provide a density allocation that promotes a mixed-use environment around the station and mid-rise walkable development along the street edge. So we'll pause here to discuss whether the board affirms the proposed zoning at CRT 3 C 1.5 R 2.0 height of 70, or if there are any revisions. Well, I I wanted to make sure that I saw Ms. Sanders is here and anybody else who did not get a chance to talk about these three uh, sites that we're going to consider tonight. I don't want to – I want to make sure – Everybody's had a chance, but if, they, if you've already been up to the table to speak on these sites, uh, we don't really need to hear from you again. But, Barbara, did you want to? Good evening. Um, Barbara Sanders, a 36-year resident of the Woodside neighborhood on the CSX side of the neighborhood. Um, I don't personally live in a place that will be most affected by the heights, but I was a little concerned about the shadow line um, of the north side against um, Springwood because that's the lowest elevation of the Woodside neighborhood. Yeah, and I, when um, you talked to me after the last work session, I was thinking the width of the tracks is pretty good, but um, there may be issues with uh, lights from the – I know there's people who live in, in the that edge of the neighborhood now who complain about the lights on the back end of the existing shopping center. And uh, I think that if these were apartments or something, the lights would actually maybe be softer, but they might be at a higher right. elevation. So I just wanted to get a sense of what is the impact of what you're foreseeing here on what uh, the people who are in those houses on the other side of railroad tracks are going to be seeing. Likely what they would see is similar to what you see from the CSX tracks looking at uh, Fenwick Station Apartments. Um, it would be a mid-rise scale up to 70 feet. Um, likely that the, the back facade would be articulated with windows and different materials. Um, again, because of the width of the right-of-way of the tracks, um, the shadow impact should be minimal, but um, you would be seeing a height that's, that's at a mid-rise scale about what's, what you see over there at Fenwick Apartments. thing is, the Springwood is below the size of the um, tracks themselves. So that makes six, six levels even higher to that part of the neighborhood. The neighborhood is going downhill at that section. I'm just, I'm a little concerned about the height of, of the second half of that building. <laughs> Back half along the tracks? Well, along the tracks, yes, especially. In, in, the, in the plan that's been done there, we can... Uh, you, the zone allows you to build right to the property line. You don't have to have any uh, setbacks. So with the CR zone, uh, setbacks are set at site plan. Um, so you wouldn't have to have um, setbacks. The set, setbacks would probably be zero or whatever um, is agreed upon at the site plan. I think if it's a concern of the board, 
we could add a sentence in the plan that simply says that the um, at the time of development anywhere along this site, the relationship to the single-family homes across the tracks should be taken into account and efforts should be made to, tra to create a smooth transition. That's good. Um, I, you know, it's unusual here because we don't have a property owner coming in and lobbying for their density. We're sort of doing it in the abstract. Um, I think while what you've shown is probably feasible, I think it's unlikely, but um, we don't know what we're going to see. So, you know, it gives all the flexibility. And if you have the wording in the master plan, that gives some the controls over design. Um, yeah, I might. It's, it's I kind might. of in the middle of everything where it's out of the way. There's nobody right around it. I might go one step more specific and say that the treatment that Ed should that that the um, it should relate to the edge of the neighborhood in a way that is uh, similar to the edge with Spring Street, because I think that edge works really well. It's actually it goes up pretty fast, you know. It's you know 50, 60 foot buildings right there on the edge, but the street is reasonably wide, um, and I think pathway that, too. I'm sorry. There's the pathway is before before the building in relation to yeah. the Woodside neighborhood. So I'm, I think that these are sort of similar, Spring Street versus the railroad tracks as far as, as width, just eyeballing it. But I think that what Ms. Sanders says is uh, worth, uh, you know, uh, considering and make, to make sure that the whatever the houses are that are along that edge are, you know, basically similarly situated, that, they're, that what they're – what they have to look at should be just like what anybody else on the edge of the CBD, like on Spring Street, has to look at, it, taking account of the topography. Does that make, I don't know if there's a way to translate that into something that's We could ensure articulation and, and uh, make sure that the, the massing and the bulk is broken down on the facade and also uh, through perhaps setbacks, I mean stepbacks. Yeah. Or in the, in the plan you uh, referred to on Spring Street, is the the interior is like this where it's a courtyard or is it a parking garage? So the interior is actually a courtyard and underground parking of okay. two floors. Underneath the courtyard. Underneath the underneath the courtyard. And that's the idea you have here. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> oh, uh, one other thing on this point, and this is I think also important on other edge situations. If the parking went behind the building, like if there were structured parking behind it. I think it would be important to screen the lights for the for the headlights. This is something we see in a lot of these special exception cases, like you know uh, daycare centers and dentist offices, that people are worried that at night, if there's some commercial property, even a residential property right next to them, that you know the glare of the headlights cuts right across into their you know b backyards. And if it's a parking deck, it seems like it would be relatively easy to to deal with that, you know. But that we should. Say something specific about you know the uh, the effect of any any uh, uh, parking deck lighting on the adjacent properties. W would you like that here, or would you like that in the design guidelines? Well, probably in the design guidelines. I mean, it, it okay. may apply in other places, but okay. I think it's a, just especially applicable here. Okay. So okay. it sounds like we confirm that zoning. Yeah. Okay. So we'll move on to eighty six hundred apartments. If you could do the next slide. 
All right, next we'll take a look at the feasibility of infill development on Site 3, as requested by the Board last work session. Today, 8,600 apartments is zoned R10 and has approximately one FAR of residential built in a 10-floor building surrounded by surface parking. The site is also constrained by varied topography and a 100-foot stream buffer to the rear. Next slide. Here is a view of 8,600 apartments from 16th Street showing an uninviting environment for pedestrians with a disconnected sidewalk and the building separated from the street by surface parking. Next slide. Future infill development of townhouses, next slide, or mid-rise, or a mid-rise building along the street with sidewalk and landscape improvements could create a more inviting environment for people walking or connecting to the bus stop and Purple Line station across the street. Next slide. The first of two test fits proposes townhouses lining 16th Street to improve walkability and mid-rise apartments infilling the rear parking lots with new parking underground. Interior landscape courtyards would replace the remaining large areas of surface parking to provide usable outdoor space for residents. This configuration generates approximately 115 new units and 1.75 FAR of total residential, including the existing apartments. Next slide. This second test fit proposes mid-rise apartments stacked above street-level townhouses lining 16th Street and higher mid-rise apartments infilling the rear parking lots with new parking underground. This configuration generates approximately 190 new units and 2.4 FAR of total residential, including the existing apartments. Next slide. And just to get a sense of the potential scale and quality of these internal courtyards once development is infilled on the site, we can look to the recently approved 8,300 flats in Bethesda with a 90 foot, with 90 foot buildings and 50 to 60 foot wide courtyards with great access to natural light and outdoor public space. And if actually, Aaron, if you could go back to the previous slide, we'll just pause and discuss here whether or not the, the board affirms the proposed zoning at CRT 2.5, C2.25, R2.5, height of 70, or if there are any revisions. Can I ask a question? Um, the current building is 100 feet tall. Yes. Um, are you hoping someday that that's replaced or you're – the 100 feet is okay, or what, how do you view that? Right. We're recommending that um, the existing building would remain and that um, infill development could um, happen around it, or there could be a future um, new development of the entire site at 70 feet. But this, this um, zoning would allow for infill at a mid-rise scale or at a lower-rise scale that just better relates to the streets. I think what he's getting at is the existing building. Non-conforming. We did have the um, a representative of the the owner of 8600 write in. Heather is here um, requesting to um, the board approve the FAR but give a height of 100 feet. Yeah, let, let me um, before you talk. Let me ask you a question. Um, I, I think the objectives that you've sought to achieve, which were the beginning statements, if you can achieve those with a different height, do, does do you have to? Do you have to do it your way? I mean, what you want are are those three or four things that are important for 16th Street and uh, the surrounding area. I wonder if you could you you could concentrate on that being an objective, and and leave the interior to meet that objective. And if they don't meet it, they can't they can't change. But uh, it. Well, I want to reinforce that 
we have only come up with these schemes of how density could be distributed on the site because the board asked for it. We aren't suggesting that this is the only way to accomplish this. I think we had heard from the board some skepticism that density could be accommodated, and our only goal here is to do what the board had asked and show you how it could be. I do agree that the most critical thing that was expressed in these uh, examples was getting uh, buildings up to the street and creating a better streetscape. There are many ways you could accomplish that, though. I, I, I'm ready to hear from Heather, though, and speak for a second. Thank you very much, and I'll be brief. Um, I actually was not representing this property at the previous work session, but now I am. So here on behalf of Bradford Place, LLC, who knew planning board work sessions could be such good business development. Um, <laughs> in any case, I'll be very brief. Um, we do agree with the density recommendations, and actually uh, Matt Lakin of Rogers Consulting is here, and we did um, go back and have our consultants take a look following the work session because we did hear that the board wanted to know whether the recommended density was achievable, and, and we do concur that it is um, in particular, if the surface parking is uh, put into a structured or an underground scenario. Uh, the only concern that we had, and I think that uh, Mr. Dreyfus may have been somewhat alluding to it, um, is that the height recommendation is a height of 70, and we would think that the 100 feet would be more appropriate. That's what the building is at right now. Um, and it's, you know, as you can see, next to a six-lane 16th Street, next to railroad tracks, next to existing multifamily, and not near any single family. So if the whole site did redevelop, we do think that the 100 would be more appropriate than the 70, but that's our only difference with staff's recommendation. And can I, quick question, so right behind this building, as you're saying, there's no single homes or uh, nothing, right? No. Because no. I can barely see it from this picture. It's, um, it's kind of, it's kind of surrounded a bit, I don't know if you guys have an aerial that you, you can go to. You don't have something better? Okay. And those apartments that are, these are apartments? Yes. Right, it's the Barrington. They're low-rise apartments. So what, what do you say 70? So our recommendation for 70 in this, pretty much the majority of this district, is because this, this isn't downtown Silver Spring. It's moving into an edge uh, community. And so we are recommending a, a moderate density, mid-rise scale as you transition into this, into the Lintonsville area, greater Lintonsville area. Yeah, I think if if we're really lucky, we'd get like mid-rise right along 16th and maybe structured parking behind the existing apartment building. Um, but I think that actually would be very uh, – a big improvement over what's there now. 16th goes up in the air there and then goes over the bridge, so that's really in a hole. I mean, it's down – pretty far down. Part of it is so, – so some of the parking could be tuck under um, it would, and then it, it would look at – part of it would look at the side of the highway – because um, I, I remember during the snow thing, they were dumping snow over the edge, and it was a pretty – but in the concept you did, if they had 100 feet and just decided to do that somewhere, that the footprint would be reduced. You would not have all that footprint that you showed because you'd be using the FAR on height instead of instead of on uh, massing. So Right, and also what, what should be considered is that – just like you're saying, the height of the road is where the um, height is measured from at the front of the building. The so 16th the building, side? The 16th Street side. And so the buildings behind may go higher because they're at a lower elevation, but the buildings closest to the street would be at a mid-rise scale that relates to the pedestrian um, at, at its highest height, at 70 feet. So, so the ones 
closest to 16th Street would could be 100 feet. We're, we're saying that those should be I mean, at 70. From, because they meet from the street, right? Right, from the I street. I mean, from the grade that they're at now, it would be so a lot the, taller than 70. No. Right, so they would be measured from the grade of the street at the front of the property. Oh, at the front is the other side? The front is the is the 16th Street side. So in the front, they'd be 70 feet tall, but in the back facing the existing building, they probably would be more than 70 feet. They might appear like 90 or 100 feet because it's a sloped site. And like, uh, like they were uh, saying a second ago, the, you could have some parking that would tuck in under it. So it's not, I'm sure you're not going to like have a unit that looks out onto the side of the grade on the on the highway you'd, it'd be like the 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 building would basically be so the yeah i i you know i'm gonna agree with the stuff so you know and i just want to highlight that i'm just so thankful that you guys follow the you know our recommendation or advice that you know the idea is not to displace people in this case I mean, we need to be creative, and you're showing creativity here. I love the townhouses on 16th Street. I think that's my my the winner right there. That's the biggest thing, and I love the fact that the owner is agreeing with us. So it's a win-win. So thank you for that. Certainly, uh, except for the height, but we, we're, we're happy with it. Well, yeah, on, on the height thing, I, I think obviously nobody wants to um, make this building nonconforming, but I'm a little bit concerned just that people, you know, if you if you say the zoning for the whole site is 100 feet that that starts scaring people and it and it's it sets an expectation that we don't want to set so i know you don't like uh you know no there's issues with like split zoning lines and things like that but i think that the language of the plan should i, I guess my first choice is just to say that the existing building should be conforming but that the height is 70 and uh there should just be clarity that you know the footprint of the existing building is not uh yeah, you know, it doesn't have anything to do with what the maximum height is on the rest of the. And you're, you're sure on 16th you don't want it to go a little higher because that's only a comp. I mean, you're losing a whole floor on 16th, the 16th Street facing side by limiting it to 70 instead of saying something like uh, uh, 90 based on a, on review, because. Well, I actually think it's more effectively like 80 or 85 because of the the grade, and I think the building, the entrance to the building is probably likely to be facing away from 16th because of the of the weird topography against 16th Street. So I think you're probably, you know, that first level is probably going to be like a lobby or perhaps a parking deck, and then effectively the first floor becomes like as you get above, above grade and then goes up. On the 16th know. Street side? Yeah, because, yeah, on the 16th Street side you're, exactly. Aren't, I think you, aren't you down... Below 16th Street grade at that point, or no? I think if you walk along 16th, it does appear that there's sort of a it's, it there's a dip. It is. It doesn't it look is. like that in your rendering, but right. That's what I'm saying. We're losing. We're, we might be losing. So, those, so it would be measured. So see those cars that you see are, are below grade. Right, but what and I'm saying in is the entrance, the other way. it gives them more. It's right. actually the entrance would be at street at level. Street, mm -hmm. then they get more. Mm -hmm. But when you measure height, don't you measure the average of the front of the building? The front of the building along the street? Mm -hmm. Along the street. So the part of the building that would be down where the cars are not visible would be a lower height elevation. You wouldn't start at the entrance. 
So it's not 70 feet from the entrance elevations. It's 70 feet from the average in front of the building, which would be probably a lot. You'd be a lot taller than 70 feet. Right? Is that? He's asking if, if the measurement is from the street level where the cars are, right here? It's, it's, it's not from the entrance. From the street. From the street. From the street. It's from the street. So it's the whole face of the yes. building on the yes. street. On the street. So because it's down low, you're really going to add 10 or 20 feet to the 70, probably. Because it slopes down. Right. On both sides of the entrance. Okay. Um, next, we'll talk about the Summit Hill site. And if the board is okay with it, we'd like to get through um, about 15 slides. It's a lot of slides, but we really want to articulate the vision we had for Summit Hills um, in the sector plan. Um, and I think it's best that if all the people who are here to, from staff to talk about their part of the Summit Hills vision, um, we, we, we get through it all and then. We already heard the summer, Summit Hills vision. Well, let them let let do their thing. We, we've got a lot more detail for you um, about why we did what we did in the sector plan um, because we know that there's a great deal of concern on a number of different issues on this site. So um, bear with us. The existing zoning is R10 uh, over the whole site. Um, we are recommending, um, I'm sorry, and, and there's 0 0.75 over the community center for the site. Um, we are recommending 2.5 um, where you see 2A and a 3.0 FAR where you see 2B um, because of our recommendation for a Spring Street extension, um, which, which would create a natural divide in the site, and 2B would relate more to um, downtown Silver Spring and 2A more to um, to sort of a new area west of Sp Spring Street extended. So we really envision an improved Summit Hills community that leverages its prominent location near major employment centers, D.C., Silver Spring, Bethesda, um, and multiple investments in public infrastructure. You've got a Purple Line Station, uh, Silver Spring, Red Line Station, and a Mark Station in downtown Silver Spring. So the Summit Hills redevelopment would allow for logical street connections to major thoroughfares, publicly accessible parks and open spaces, environmentally friendly design, and housing units available to a wider range of income levels. So, um, again, as I mentioned, these are all the thing, the, the major elements of the vision that uh, the sector plan hopes to achieve. And we've listed out the strengths and challenges. I won't read them to you. I know you're familiar with them. But the main thing is it's a 30-acre site with one owner. So there's a lot of potential here um, for um, a really cohesive redevelopment scheme. Um, there's multiple planning board options for this site. We thought we would list them out, and we'll come back to them after we get through the next few slides. But um, the board could retain the sector plan recommended zoning as is. They could modify it. Um, to add site-specific language requiring future um, rent-restricted units be larger units because there are a number of three- and four-bedroom units um, in this development. Um, you could limit the extent of the redevelopment, whether it be um, to certain buildings or a certain portion of the site. Um, there's different ways to, to limit it. And you could also recommend zoning changes um, only occur following Purple Line construction via maybe a floating zone or a future uh, minor master plan amendment 
or you could not rezone it at all. But staff sees the risk in that, in that um, market rate affordable units today would be subject to potential rent increases with its, with this new proximity to the Purple Line and Silver, the growth in Silver Spring. Um, and the amenities would remain as they exist today, um, which, as um, we have heard from Summit Hill's representation, that it is limited and under the R10 zoning, there's basically no opportunities to expand the site. Some, are you going to tell us what the height is now in the construction? Is it concrete buildings? So the building heights range from five floors to ten floors, so about up to 100 feet, 100 feet where we have um, recommended 145 feet. I mean, the you've recommended 145. At the um, if you go back to that zoning map, I'm sorry. Just at the corner. Yeah, at that 2B. The 2B is where we've recommended 145 uh, feet. Okay, and and potentially the road goes through a building there. I think. Potentially. The road would only happen in the case of total redevelopment. It wouldn't. Well, I think the whole, the road may be a totally other decision, which may change some of this. So I don't know where everybody else is on the road, but I'm not too thrilled about the road. Well, we really envision four scenarios that to say the least would be possible. Um, and the scenario three, um, where we, under each scenario, we list out what could happen. So the first scenario, no redevelopment. No, no new parks and open spaces. Obviously, no through connection, no, no, uh, no housing units in any um, rental uh, affordable housing programs, um, and there'd be, it'd be, it would remain as is under the 1950s construction with limited stormwater and environmentally friendly design. Um, and then scenario two, where there'd be potentially some infill around the existing buildings, we could potentially get the Civic Green we're recommending, but we don't, we don't think a the Spring Street Extended would happen with that, and there might be some um, limited rent-restricted affordable housing. Scenario three, which is the staff-preferred scenario, which we think um, would achieve this, the sector plan vision for the property, you'd be looking at um, substantially more infill, some redevelopment of existing buildings. We think there'd be an opportunity to um, get the uh, Civic Green and then um, Daylight Fenwick Branch. And to be clear, Parks will get into this more, but when we talk about the daylighting of Fenwick Branch and this uh, Stream Valley Park over here, we're talk not asking the owner, the current owner, to build that park. We're asking, we'd be asking for dedication of the land, you know, in Fee Simple and Encumbered. Um, and we also don't know if a through connection would happen with Scenario 3 um, being realistic but we do think there'd be an opportunity to gain some rent-restricted affordable housing. Scenario four is complete redevelopment of the site where basically everything envisioned in the sector plan would happen. So um, we want to first talk about the park's recommendations that we have um, if the Summit Hills vision were achieved. And then um, Lisa's here, and she's done some extensive um, research on the, um, the affordable housing situation that currently exists on Summit Hills. So I'll let um, Chuck speak. Thank you for the record, Chuck Kynes with Park Planning and Stewardship, Montgomery Parks. Uh, before we dive into Summit Hills in detail, I'm going to hand it over to Christine in a few minutes. Um, I'd like to provide an overview, since this is really the only Parks Work session, I want to provide an overview of all the topics we're going to cover today uh, re regarding parks in response to public testimony and in response to board comments that we've heard in the past. So um, the first one is that 
the comments that we've heard is that the proposed new density will put pressure on parks that are already heavily programmed. We've heard this from residents uh, time and time and again. And what you're going to hear tonight is that the proposed system of parks and trails will greatly increase both the quantity and the quality uh, and connection to parks for the sector plan area as a whole. Uh, the next uh, comment that we heard uh, is that the Summit Hill owners are concerned about the public amenities, which Aaron has already addressed uh, briefly, and not enough density to make the economics work. And what we're showing you is the, is the options uh, of what we might get at different uh, scales of redevelopment. And then the final one is the new development adjacent to Rosemary Hills Littonsville Local Park should be compatible with park amenities. This is, again, another community concern. And our response is that the additions to the park will help provide compatibility while expanding the land area and associated amenities. Next slide. Just to remind the board of the context of uh, Littonsville, um, as you can see on this map, Rosemary Hills Littonsville Local Park is the only parkland within the sector plan boundaries. However, um, this community is immediately adjacent to Rock Creek Stream Valley Park and Ray's Meadow Local Park, and in proximate location to uh, Meadowbrook Local Park um, and um, Rock Creek National Park as well. So the, the oh, and then when the Purple Line is built, you also have the Capitol Crescent Trail uh, passing through, which provides a lot of recreational value and the connection to Rock Creek Stream Valley uh, Park Trail. So uh, next slide. When we, just as a reminder to the board, when we're uh, looking at long-range planning for an area such as Greater Littonsville, uh, we implement our hierarchy, which was approved by the board in the PROS plan in 2012, Parks, Recreation, and Open Space Plan. In each sector plan area, uh, we try to achieve uh, an active recreation destination, a central civic green, an interconnected system of sidewalks and trails that connect our parks and open spaces, and wooded areas that provide a sense of contact with nature. And then for each neighborhood, we try to recommend a neighborhood green or buffer park uh, or a community use recreation park, and uh, for each block, building and residence, uh, other types of spaces. Next slide. Finally, uh, when we were looking at this sector plan area uh, and the recommendations that it provided, uh, you know, we looked at ways to provide better connections and spaces, and what are the opportunities to provide focal civic open spaces. So what this slide is trying to show the board uh, and the people watching from home is that the, um, the recommended, recommended parks uh, are uh, located in a central way and that we are cognizant that we're trying to connect them uh, in a coherent way as well, not only to each other but to Purple Line stations as well. I'm now going to hand it off to Christina so we can uh, dive into details of Summit Hills. For the record, I'm Christina Sasaki, Parks Planner Coordinator with Park Planning Stewardship Division. So uh, the next slide, please. So just to remind the board here, um, and if for the ones that are following the sector plan, will be in page 61 and also in pages 70 to 72. Uh, we, in the sector plan, they propose three types of parks within Summit Hills property. Uh, the park that will provide the most changes but also the greatest benefits to this district would be the Urban Greenway Park. Uh, this park would daylight the Fenwick Branch, that is the existing stream that is currently shown under the surface parking lot in the aerial picture there. Um, 
you know, in the historically that stream, you should actually go east of the entire site. So it was channelized and was put onto the site. The next slide. Uh, just to remind everybody that we're going to be focused on the Urban Greenway Park. Next slide. So similar to building test fit, we did a park test fit. So we work with our parks resource analysis engineer experts, and we define a stream configuration and also a trail alignment that could work on this site with the least impact to the existing buildings. So this option would require the replacement of approximately 430 parking spaces into new structure parking. This scenario depends on not only infill, but a certain amount of redevelopment should be in place. But our goal today is not to discuss how much development will be needed to develop this park, but instead we are offering the minimum area that was going to be required to implement this park. So when the property owner is ready to develop and takes his next step, the land allocation can be taken into consideration. And But most important here in what we achieve is this exercise, we preserve the adjacent residential buildings. So we are not demolishing any of the build, existing buildings. Um, so in this way, if comes the phasing of the redevelopment, then the property owner will have more flexibility. Um, we understand that the planning board got a pretty good idea of the benefits and definition of daylighting stream from the West Bar project. But in case you have any questions on that subject, we have with us here J. Cole, our leader in environmental analysis, uh, that will be able to answer any questions. So I don't know if you have. I, I fully agree with the objectives, but how, if there isn't, what, what makes the developer make this donation? Or, I mean, what, I, to me it seems that to get this, you have to give them enough density and height to be able to compensate for the land mass they're using, losing because they have a limited amount of land mass. So if you figure that most of these buildings probably won't get knocked down unless there's some incentive to do it, concrete buildings. And the reason I didn't fight about the one we just had is that it's unlikely that that concrete high-rise building is going anywhere. So the 100 feet is going to be 100 feet. Um, so arguing about the stuff that's going to be added was really not worth the energy. So here, to, to implement the park, you have to take away parking spaces that are there now, which are surface. Um, so they have to put that parking somewhere, which means they've got to build a structure or put it underground. And they have to probably knock down a building to do it. So to me, if you gave them the density and enough height that they, without restricting where the line is, the little corner or the rest of it, to incentivize them to, and one of the conditions is you got to dedicate the parkland, which opens the stream, and you have to have affordable housing as part of the requirement. Then you got a chance of getting what you're looking for. If you if you put a road through it, all the road, the right of way, the grading along the road takes away a lot of land, and it makes it even more difficult. And this is sort of a very isolated piece that almost is an island of itself. So you really don't have to, in my view, worry a lot about what you allow for height or density as long as you get what I, th what I think we all agree you should get, which is an open stream 
and, and a park. So, and, and restrictions to make it affordable housing. So I, I'm fully in agreement with what you want. I think it's achievable, but only if there's some way the developer can compensate for what the cost is going to be to take away a surface lot, build a structure, and probably knock down some buildings. So, all right. Well, I think that's that's kind of where I am. Uh, subject before you may draw any conclusions, particularly on the. I, I didn't mean to lead right into you, but I probably did. <laughs> okay. You were saying. <laughs> well, I, I just want to finalize with this slide that, and I'm going to hand over to Lisa, that as you all know, the planning board also serves as the park commissioners and understand the value of parks to our community. So the presence of parks near neighborhoods promote a series of benefits that are sometimes taken for granted. The challenge will be to come up with an integrative and creative solutions that allow remaining land to have multiple and shared land uses. So we hope that, you know, this study that we've shown um, can prove that there are ways to start accommodating both parks and affordable housing um, since they are compatible land uses. And I understand there is a need for the economic incentive and the density. Uh, but that said, um, I think that, you know, the fact every time that we take uh, one land use element, and we start saying, how can we actually accommodate within parks? You know, I understand that there is a zoning, but within parks, can we actually start working with our um, experts and try to understand that the urban land is very uh, scarce? So how can we actually provide that benefit while maintaining affordable housing or any type of residential or any type for the land use? So it, it was more a strategy for land use, so when they are ready, they will go for it. For now, I pass to Lisa. Um, for the record, I'm Lisa Gavoni, and I'm going to talk about affordable housing in Summit Hills. So first, I want to give you kind of how we envision Summit Hills fitting into the county's affordability goals. So Summit Hills, like many of the apartment buildings in Montgomery County, is an older building that, due to its age, has filtered down to the affordability ranges below the area median income of 107000 for a family of four. However, things like transit, amenity, and location can erode or even prevent this filtering process from continuing. So the rental housing market in Montgomery County is unbalanced. So due to the age of the buildings and other factors, 38% of the rental housing supply, but only 23% of the renter population fall into this affordability range that Summit Hills is in, the 80 to 100% category. But as we know, the greatest need for affordability is at the lower levels, the below, the MPD level and below. So in order to create a more balanced market, we envision a strategy for Summit Hills which allows for a balance between redevelopment, rehabilitation, and preservation when appropriate. So the goal really is a market that leverages existing and new transit connections, employment centers, and amenities to serve the renter population that is very diverse in Montgomery County. So I think in previous work sessions we had talked about Bethesda, Commissioner Presley had mentioned that she wanted, you know, some numbers of really what, how these buildings and these units fit into the overall market. So I created a chart that kind of shows where Summit Hills fits into not only the Littonsville market, but how it compares to downtown Silver Spring and Montgomery County as a whole. So here's a chart that shows that Summit Hills' true affordability is in the size of its units. At a size of over a 1,000 square feet per apartment, the average asking price per square feet is lower than both downtown Silver Spring and Montgomery County, but the average unit price is more expensive because the average unit in Summit Hills tends to be two-bedroom compared to other places in the county. 
So I just wanted to know if there's any questions about this chart. <laughs> All right, so next slide. So here is a chart comparing the effective rent per square foot in downtown Silver Spring, Lintonsville, and Summon Hills for the past 10 years. So Summon Hills has an average effective rent per square foot increase of about 1.94% per year, which out actually outpaces inflation, which has averaged about 1.77%. Okay, I just want to make it – I think I understand this, but I want to test that. So the the – the graph shows Summit Hills as being less expensive per square foot, even though the units are more, uh, the, the price of a unit, the, the rent of a unit is higher because of the difference in size. Yes. Okay. So, so this is showing that Summit Hills, its rent increase has actually outpaced inflation. So it's, we're not seeing it filter down even more that we would think we would see as buildings age. And I think that's a really important fact because when you add things like the purple line in transit and you increase its desirability of location, this filtering process is even going to s- slow down even more. So we not we, we don't have any rent-restricted units here. So that's one. The next slide, please. So you're saying that the market works? The market works. <laughs> they're charging the rent they can get. And yes. It will go and, up, think, and it'll go up when the trolley comes. And they're doing a very good job. As you saw from the first slide, they have a 0.7% vacancy. That's less than 1%. So any, generally anything less than 7% is very good. Anything less than 5% says that you should build. And they're getting concession rate of 0%. So they're getting what they're asking for without having to ask for anything else. So obviously this is a very popular place to live. And I think, again, I'm going to give you my non-technical, completely observational comment because I drive past Summit Hills every day when folks are coming home around 6 o'clock, and I see literally a trail of people walking from the metro to Summit Hills, and they are all young millennials. They are not – they are not – Families, there were. I've seen families there. Well, I'm, was sure, there I'm sure there are some, but so I will tell you it's a mix. that when you look at who's coming home at six o'clock at night and walking in the door at Summit Hill, it is a um, it is a parade of millennials coming home from working in D.C. And that's so great are you because suggesting we have- that they're the ones who need who need the affordable. No, no, no. I'm just saying that they actually. I think what uh, she's getting at is not- even, even allowing for the fact that the unit sizes are, have uh, tend to be uh, more family oriented in the sense they have more bedrooms. That you know you may be getting like two young professionals living uh, together. It's not necessarily that it's a family with kids that gets that unit because it's not income restricted. A a two-bedroom, thousand-square-foot apartment is not, like, gracious. It's But compared to Silver Spring, where it's bigger than 900 or 850, but it's still, I wouldn't call a big big apartment. But if you look at the first slide, I have the average square feet. So downtown Silver Spring is 800 square foot. That's that's 200 square foot difference between, you know, Summit Hills and downtown Silver Spring. So, yes, it's not gracious, but it's... It's bigger than the other option down the street. Those are two bedrooms, the eight something? No, it's like the average size of a unit. So, yeah, because they're mostly probably one bedrooms. It's true, yes. Um, so this is a little bit of Summit Hills specifics. So Summit Hills has 1,900 units, and all the units in Summit Hills are currently market rate affordable, mostly at the 80 to 100% level, like we've discussed, and with the with the greatest affordability in the smaller bedroom units, the, the efficiencies in the one bedroom. So when we look at what you need to be able to afford to live in these family size units, 
So for a two-bedroom unit, you would need to be making over $71,000 a year. For a three-bedroom unit, you'd be making around $86,000 a year. And a four-bedroom unit, you'd be making over $96,000 a year, and that's just market rate. So, I mean, they are market rate affordable, but they're still, you still need to be making a decent uh, If you look at the site plan you have up now, which is their existing, yes. um, you can see how dense it is, how how little room there is to do anything. So the only way they're going to do something is probably knock down their least efficient building in exchange for we'd get affordable units that would be required, and to open up the stream, they need to push something the other way. So it seems to me you've got to give them a lot of density and height if you want those other objectives and not be too restrictive. Uh, because there isn't a lot of land they can play with, and they're and they're 99.3 percent full. There's no incentive to do much of anything. So if we really want to change, we're going to have to have a real incentive to make them change. Well, first let's get. Into I'm not sure they'd even do it. Done? I'm almost done. Okay. So let, I was just going to say, you know, we know that the market rate affordability of Summon Hills is an asset, but given its large scale site, its near adjacency to the Purple Line and proximity to the Red Line the Silver Spring Employment Center and other amenities, we think that it offers an unprecedented, unprecedented opportunity to achieve housing affordability goals in an area that has no MPD units currently. Of the how part of that. She's, say, she's saying that <laughs> by line. It's great to do it, but how do we do it? Well, okay, leave aside the question of whether or not some reasonable amount of development capacity added to this property could create a sufficient incentive for redevelopment in, in the near term. I think her point is that it's, you know, uh, it may be market rate affordable now, but the uh, a large number of the residents are not uh, in the income uh, bracket that MPDUs would be, uh, to which MPDUs would be restricted, and that it's likely that those prices are just going to go up because of everything that's going on in Silver Spring, not to mention the purple line. The, the only way we get anything is if somebody has to come in and ask us for something. And then we can ask them for something. Well, okay. They don't come that, in. They're a, not, they're not, we're not getting anything. I think that's the second argument. step. The first step, because I know there was a lot of concern that was expressed about, you know, do we want to incentivize any change at Summit Hills because it is a market rate affordable complex and there are a lot of families taking advantage of that. And I think what we're trying to say is there probably are, but over time what we're actually seeing happen in Summit Hills is, for lack of a better word, gentrification. That Summit Hills is becoming a desirable apartment complex for other folks other than the, the, maybe the lower income families who one has traditionally associated with Summit Hills, and it is because of its great location to downtown Silver Spring and the metro and the expense of apartments in downtown D.C. and so forth, it is beginning to sort of gentrify. So if we're concerned about that, then some kind of redevelopment would allow you to get income-restricted units, which we don't have today. However... I think, as Commissioner Dreyfus is saying, that if you want that, you may have to give even more density than what staff has recommended. And that is the 
that is the question for the board to debate. <laughs> I want to hear from Heather and see what she wants to say about that. Thank you. Um, and we did submit a letter because at the previous work session where you tabled the discussion on this property, um, you asked for our feedback because one of the big points that we raised was that there are a lot of things that are be asked, being asked of this property um, in the public hearing draft. So there was the daylighting of the stream, which certainly um, we appreciate that that's been, uh, I guess, reduced a little bit in scope just because we'd be anticipated to dedicate the property but not necessarily create the park. Um, but the daylighting the stream, the sector plan also calls for an additional park um, in the center of the property. I think it calls for a 0.5 acre. It does call for the street to come through, which I understand um, the board may be um, discussing. And also in the sector plan right now, and then it sounds like there's going to be further discussion regarding this, the sector plan does ask for, if there's redevelopment, retention of some level of affordable housing. So um, we had previously looked at all this and had submitted written um, written letters uh, responding to it and then in our public hearing testimony, but submitted a supplemental letter saying that if really we want all these things to happen, if you want to incentivize redevelopment, I think Mr. Dreyfus's comments were spot on, that really what you're looking at here is a, is a density of a 5 FAR. There's just an awful lot that is being asked of this site, which I think the things are very exciting, um, but the density that's recommended by the public hearing draft, which is a CR3, just on that one very small portion um, closest to the southeast corner of the site, um, a CRT 2.5 on the vast remainder, a height of 145 at that small corner, but only limiting height on the rest of the site to 70 feet is simply not enough to incentivize the site to do anything because it is such a productive and thriving site right now. Um, so a CR5 is really what we think is more appropriate. Um, we need the height to be able to do it, so we're asking for a 200 feet um, on the southeastmost corner. So this is at the corner of 16th Street and East-West Highway, but then stepping down um, to somewhere around half of that towards the south southern and western portions. 200 well, I, is way too much I, here. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I guess I have exactly the opposite view that Norman does. I, I think the most important thing is the street connection. Uh, the Civic Green is also important. I, I would be inclined not to more make... More than the affordable and... Uh, well, affordable housing, I'm talking about versus the daylighting of the stream. I think the daylighting oh. of the stream is very difficult to achieve. It's a lot of land, and I think the street connection is more important than you're giving it credit for. Maybe Mr. Folden is going to back me up here on this. Sure, thank you. Uh, Aaron, would you mind pulling up the landing slide for Summit Hills? For the record, Matthew Folden, and uh, just so I can reiterate what we were going for when we recommended the Spring Street Extended, we thought that this would provide a better east-west connection, really. Right now, if you are westbound and you're on um, Spring Street at 16th Street, you need to make a left, go down to east-west highway, make a right if you're down for Bethesda, we thought that this connection really straightened out that alignment, made it a little bit more efficient. Uh, that's really the only benefit that it has for traffic. You have two we, lights then? You would you would there's most likely have another light. But there's already a light at Spring Street and East West Highway. Correct. There isn't a light at the East West Highway and wherever that little square is. That's right. That's about That's where true. the existing driveway is now for some of those approximately. And this is a conceptual alignment just to show where it might go. Um, but what I would say well, about that is the real intent there. Sorry, I don't want to cut you off. Well, I just wanted to say I think nobody seems to grasp the – I mean, when we talk about new street connections, everybody – I mean, on the one hand, people says say, where are the road improvements to support the traffic from the plan? On the other hand, they say don't build another street connection. I think that a lot of people fail to appreciate the significance of Spring Street as it exists right now to avoid having to widen the intersection of Georgia Avenue and Colesville. Because Spring Street operates as a basically a way to disperse the 
the traffic that's going, that's, if you're going, say, south on Georgia and you want to go north on Colesville, instead of having going all the way to the center of the downtown and try to make a left turn, you have, you have an option, you can go Spring Street, you just completely avoid that intersection, and that's one of the things that keeps that intersection at a reasonably, you know, under control scale for a, for a central business district. I think this would perform a similar function at a smaller, at a smaller, mm-hmm. at a smaller scale. It would, uh, r- remove some of the pressure on the intersection of, uh, East, East West Highway and, and 16th Street, where you get a whole lot of traffic, which, is it can support. I mean, there's plenty of room for the cars to queue up, and they generally get through in, in one light cycle. But I think that it, it's a mistake to underestimate the value of this uh, connection for not that you're going to encourage all of the traffic to be diverted onto Spring Street, East West Highway, but a, a piece of it, and it allows all of the streets to operate a little bit in a way that's a little bit more consistent with human beings being able to walk and sure. exist in the area around the. So you're you're suggesting exchanging the land lost for the stream valley for the land lost for the road. Well, I'm saying because I, you I don't have you can't do all that because you're not well, going to be landless. Okay. Can I, I see the topo for the 16th Street? Uh, I'm just I mean, suggesting that the priority be the street connection as opposed well, to the You know, my recollection is Spring Street is is about 20 or 30 feet in the air above the developed site. So that means to connect from Spring Street to East-West Highway, you need some kind of a overpass or a, a bermed highway or something which takes space from either side and, and right. basically <clears> – <throat> makes the corner almost unbuildable. One of the things that we were thinking as far as to deal with that topography is perhaps put that on structure on a parking deck or, or something. And I would say to that, Who's I started it? to say that this road alignment would make things a little bit more efficient, and we think that it would. We did not build it into the traffic model, so it's not necessary to make any of the intersections work. Uh, we do think that it would be more important for localized direct access into a redeveloped Summit Hills, but it would really only occur with major redevelopment. Well, uh, even even if – What are you expecting would happen with that with triangular parcel that's like the leftover piece? Well, That's surrounded by highway and, and an elevated right. highway at that. I just want well, to know would that what work? that would – It's not a highway. It's a – It's a the road. It's a two-lane but road. What, what would be the purpose of that as far as the practical usage of the triangle? When we were going through our land use uh, visioning exercise, and I think uh, maybe Ms. Banks would be better to speak to this, but we saw that corner of Summit Hills as much more strongly related to the downtown Silver Spring CBD. And so this road was a way to really – it fit because it aligned with uh, Spring Street, but it also really served that dividing point where the land use would become then less intensive as you went across the Summit Hills site. But it may be – I mean, it's a very little island. The triangular site is actually 3.6 acres. Yeah, but you're, but if you're, the road is not going to be that little green line, dotted line. It's well, if you're familiar with bank the bank on either side, it's going to have a, 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 some kind of pillars that hold it up in the air. Right. Because it's got to go from the grade of so, Spring Street all the way down to the grade of East West Highway. That's, I don't know how many feet it is, but it's, 20 or 30 feet. But he's saying there's a short possibility period. you could put on a parking deck. And could, that build, was the idea. Who's building a, the parking deck? Well, we were, it, somebody who's redeveloping. We're the, not specifying that it be a public or a private street in the plan. We're letting that 
that we're letting that decision be made as similar to the Blair's redevelopment, where is it Draper Lane? Or? That's exactly what it was. Um, again. Where there was, in the Blair's redevelopment, there was a, it was ultimately a private street, could have been public, where there's a parking garage extending over the street. So they used that topography of their site to help facilitate their redevelopment and, and use the parking garage and work with the topography. Um, and so in a similar fashion, we only with the parking garage underneath perhaps a private street um, and then leaving a 3.6 acre parcel as the corner site where it would make more sense to have a higher building and give it more FAR. Um, so we, it really is part of a whole scale redevelopment of the site. It's a very visionary element of the plan, but something that we thought would be um, integral to com to connecting this site. Right now it's a gated community, essentially, and I'm not saying connecting it to the rest of Silver Spring. Do you think that corner is not going to be gated? I mean, it's it's totally isolated. Well, I think what we were envisioning as far as the urban fabric of that particular point was buildings up along East West Highway and 16th Street, access to the rear by this street that we're proposing. And as Ms. Banks had pointed out, this road was heavily influenced by Draper Lane on the Blairs uh, property. And if you recall, that was a property that they volunteered it. They did. It's a and, big and difference. It was actually also a master plan recommendation in the 2000 Silver Spring plan. Which they participated in. And no one's holding a gun to anyone's head and saying you Absolutely have to redevelop the site. I, and I'm not even saying it's likely. But I, I, and for that matter, I don't think that we should do anything. We should uh, buy the whole thing and make it a park and a road and a, and a stream valley buffer. There's not much left when you're done with all this. There's three and a half acres. I mean, that's a pretty significant site for, a, for this location. You're knocking down a building to put this road? Is that right? Because I'm, I'm looking at this map. What is this right here? No, is we... Is that building? So this, the, the road will be on, on the through the building. This it's road a, would only happen if that building was taken down by the property well, that's, owner. That's what I'm getting at. You, you guys are forgetting to mention that small detail. You're knocking down a building to put this road. No, this is a redevelopment option. Yeah. You know, but but so. we would have to give up the, the Stream Valley buffer because you can't do it all, right? Back up? I think that's why you're hearing that we're saying a CR5 and maybe the height is a little high, but this is why we're saying that is what is needed to right. do all of these things on this site. There's a, tr a tremendous I mean, amount in, being in view asked. Of that, that I, I agree. If that's going to be the priority, it can't also be the, the daylighting of the stream. I mean, I, think it's I don't want to go into the whole detail about what, what, what we can gain for just daylighting that small a section uh, in, in in terms of what we're balancing well, here. Well, Heather, what are you, I mean, what are you guys thinking? Do you prefer, are you thinking of doing the daylighting or are you thinking of doing the road? I mean, what, what well, we just thinking? assume that everything that the sector plan is calling for would have to happen if we wholesale redevelop the site. So what we looked at is if we were going to redevelop the site, you know, phased, obviously it wouldn't all occur at once, but what would be needed to incentivize that? And you're looking at the 5 FAR and density. The height is really a function of, you know, fitting the density to pay for all the things that are being asked. So you have right. to have You don't have a preference. Between the deadline and the road, uh, you I, own the property. I wish I owned the property. <laughs> I'd be a very rich person. Um, no, I, I'd probably have to go back to my folks and ask. You know, we would need to consult with our civil engineers and our architects. I, I don't on think it. this needs to be that complicated. Hold on, hold on. My proposal is simple. I'm not suggesting that we should set. First of all, I don't think 200 feet is. That's just not tenable at this location. But I don't knock down a hundred foot on. building. Just, hey, bear with right. me, and then you can talk. Okay. My proposal is that we prioritize these things. We make it clear that the expectation is not that they're all going to happen necessarily. It depends on how much of the site gets redeveloped. My view is 
that the street connection is important. Maybe other people have different views. But I don't think it's necessary today in, in May of 2016 to make a judgment about what the economics of any particular redevelopment scenario would support. Just, But rather to say, if this property redevelops, here are three or four things that we would like to for the public to get out of it. Here's the priority that should attach to them. The expectation is that how much of them get done and which ones get done is going to depend on a number of things, including what the economics of the real estate market will support at the time it's developed, uh, and number two, what the what the site plan is. I mean, if if there's a redevelopment scenario that calls for redevelopment of that corner, then that implies something different about the road than if the redevelopment scenario is let's take down a couple buildings in the back and and build from there. So I don't think we have to try to figure out what is going to happen in 10 or 20 years with this site. We just have to lay out a set of priorities that will provide a clear set of expectations for what the rank order is, and I, I, I don't I see the need to get into any more I mean, I think that you're that. putting a tremendous burden on the staff when an application comes in. Who's going to say don't – they're going to say we can't build the road, and you're going to say you can't get approved unless you build the road, and you got to do the park, and you got to do the, oh, you know. Often it's, have I, I, I think if the road is a good idea, we should put it in. If we don't have the votes, it should stay out. There's no, like, priority, and because what that does is invite the staff, when the application actually comes in, to say these all these things are in the master plan, and you got to do them, and we'll get nothing. The, only, the reason I think the Stream Valley has not only some practical need, but also potential, is that it's a parking lot. So there's not a building on it that you have to knock down. You just have to find another place for that parking. So there's a chance that that could happen. Um, the road going through there wrecks everything that's there to something that's 99.3% occupied in, in a concrete 145-foot building. That is not going anywhere. So to even put this in there is just asking for, for something that's never going to happen and is just a sort of a bait for, the, for these poor people to come in 10 years from now and the staff to beat them over the head about where's our road connection. I mean, it's, I think if, if we, as a majority, think that we shouldn't have the road, let's vote on it and be done with it. If we think it belongs there, then fine, put it in the we plan. We often have plans that, say, that describe certain things that... But I, that's only if we agree that those things ought to be in there. Just bear with me. The, we often have have desired public benefits in the plan where it's very clear from the text of the plan that the expectation is not that it's required, but that it should be explored at the time the property is developed. And that's why I say it, a lot of it depends. You may be right. You're probably right that the corner property won't redevelop. If it does, I'd like to be able to have something in the plan that creates an opportunity to at least consider that road connection. If it turns out the corner doesn't redevelop, then it may be more appropriate to focus on the daylighting of the stream. It, I, I just think that yeah. there's limits to how much you can you can be able to see the future. And I think as long as the plan is clear that they're not all required, that that's a, not only appropriate, but that's how we've written master plans for since yeah, before I, I got here. I don't think the, the development is just the corner. I think they're going to come in and say we can do this portion and we're going to leave this portion and and the overall objectives come from the redevelopment, not necessarily exactly where they are in the site. So they may say, we're going to leave the corner, but we want to redo this building, one of the buildings that's buried in the site, and and that would then trigger this whole entourage of requirements. And 
It's it's e not strictly the corner building. Whether that gets developed or not, that depends on whether the road gets built. It's before it's, um, talking about you know the road versus the stream valley. It might be worth having the board discuss. Do you really? believe that it's appropriate to add a significant amount of density to this site in general to incentivize redevelopment. I think that's a key question on this site is, huh. is this a site where you want to incentivize redevelopment? There are pros and cons to that. If you incentivize redevelopment, you will get some income-restricted units but you will lose perhaps a large number of these sort of market rate affordable units. So I think before getting into the details, you might want to just discuss, is this a site where you really envision redevelopment, or do you think that this is a site where you don't envision redevelopment? Well, I mean, my position is right down the middle. I'm agnostic. I don't think it warrants doing whatever it, like, I mean, your client's position is basically, unless you give us 200 feet and some larger amount of, of capacity and an FI, a bigger FIR number, you're not going to get it redeveloped. Maybe. And I think we can live with that. On the other hand, you know, we've seen cases, in fact, very recent cases, where we have been told absolutely no possibility, there's no property owner's interest in doing anything, and then the, the next week somebody knocks on a door and says, oh, I've just acquired this uh, option to buy this property and I'm ready to redevelop. So I just think it's a mistake to try to get too uh, in much into the business of prognosticating about what is or isn't possible 10 or 20 years from now. If it doesn't happen, that's fine. It no, it's nothing, the, the fate of Silver Spring and the county do not rest on whether or not this site redevelops. But if it does, I think that'd be a good thing because we get some some income-restricted affordable units out of it. We get some more uh, housing in general close to uh, downtown Silver Spring, the metro, and the Purple Line. And we might get a couple of public benefits, possibly including some parkland and a street connection. But if it doesn't, that, I'm not going to lose any sleep over it. But ba based on your uh, recent uh, discussions on Bethesda, all we got to do is decide on the height and then fit the FAR that would go in that height because the height is really what's going to be controlling here. So if we... If we think 100, 200 feet is too high, we say it's 180 feet or 160 feet or whatever the number is, and we find the FAR that fits there. And then if it, if the applicant does it, fine. If they don't do it, we're where we well, are. Well, look, I, I think we shouldn't get carried away until we see how that goes over with uh, Bethesda. But to answer your question directly, I'm not really hung up on the FAR number. I do think 200 feet is way too high for this location. I think 145 is fine. And, again, if that means that there's no economic incentive to redevelop, Fine. It's not, that's okay, with me at least. But maybe other people have a different view. No, I agree with a 145. I, I couldn't agree with 200. And um, that was the first thing. The second question on the street versus road versus the um, daylight, I'm going for the daylight, honestly. Like, I don't, I don't see – I think the way I see it is what's going to be the biggest benefit for this area and that daylight stream is is huge because of the environmental factors. So, well, I just want to make a pitch. Yeah, I heard you. okay, I heard you. and I respect that. I'm just saying, street these kind of street connections are easy to dismiss as being 
not very important for the specific traffic issues wherever they happen to be located, but cumulatively, it's killing us. The whole, the, this is the original sin of transportation planning in the suburbs is not enough connections to the street grid and it causes major problems. But I'm not trying to beat you over the head, I'm just saying. If we didn't have the issue with the daylight in the stream there, I would agree with you, like I did in Montgomery Village, right? So. Okay. Um, Fair enough. Um, I'm, I'm, I would like to, um, for us to address, as Ms. Wright asked us to do, whether we think that we need to incentivize the redevelopment in this area. So I think that's what we need to say. I don't think I want to sit here and choose over where connectivity to a road is different from daylight and stream, or is it the civic green, and those kind of things are important. I don't think that we are at that po this point where, we, where that's what we need to deal with. I need, think we need to deal with the statement as put forth by our director. Okay. And your view is? I would like to see all the things done, okay? And I think in order to do that, we are going to have to incentivize some of some. I don't, I'm I'm not sure where, how I feel about how much, and I do think that 200 feet is is too high for, for that area. But I would um, entertain something, you know, that's higher than than what we propose. So I, I I don't know. I'm not I'm not convinced of that. But I think if I the things that are important. Have all the staff has clearly articulated what we told them that we thought was important to go in this area. If you choose option three, which is what their scenario three with their head, they don't show the road connectivity. If I'm am I correct? Is that if I remember correctly, they show all the others, not in the in the, not in the one that they recommended. Is that right, Aaron? That's right. We we essentially viewed scenario three as a preferred scenario yeah. and. We as staff were, were okay if the road connection didn't happen. So I guess we've already sort of internally prioritized what um, we would like to see, um, and the park being one of the biggest ones. Uh, I'm, I'm well, if I had to choose the park to me, I'm, the Civic Green to me, if, I, if you forced me into making a choice between which I thought was the most important, the Civic Green would be my number one priority. Uh, daylight in the stream is important. I think we're talking about a long time, very expensive, uh, very extensive type of project to get to, to get to that point. I'm not saying that we would not ever get to that point, but there would have to be some significant redevelopment and some significant increase in density for us to expect that the uh, that the uh, owner is going to provide us with with, with that kind of. So you're well. I said if you make me take a choice, I'm going to put the Civic Green. It's going to be, it's going to be my, okay. that's fine. Because I think you, you provide a wider opportunity for more people to enjoy this, and I think it would be an easier thing for us to achieve. Um, I'm, I'm okay with the 145, uh, but a higher FAR. But I think the 145 could be not just on the corner, but throughout the site. On the back oh, side, yeah, yeah but on the back side there's a, a a uh, apartment rental project, yeah, and then there's roads all around it. So I don't know that the 145 would hurt anything, and and it would encourage them to take the lower buildings and maybe redevelop them because they can keep the corner, which is probably most likely at 145 feet. So I think if you did that, you'd have hopefully enough height to get enough FAR for them to do one of these 
Stream Valley Park or and certainly some affordable housing. So, so let, let me add another thing that will just probably complicate the, okay. the discussion a little bit. Um, you know, learning, learning lessons from recent master plans. If we basically go in and say this is an area where we want to incentivize redevelopment to get these um, positive public benefits, and we put a fair amount of height and a fair amount of density on this site, it will be even more potential units than what we're showing on the chart that you have in front of you. And it will be the largest number of potential units in this plan. The reality is that, and again, you know, staff correct me if I'm wrong, in conversations with the owner, they have said this is a long-range idea. They are not looking to redevelop anytime soon because they have a very successful mm -hmm. project right now. And so one of the things, again, that we might even want to think about, I hate to mention the, the floating zone idea, but I'll mention that because, um, you know, this – just by the numbers, will create a very large number of potential units, which when we calculate school impacts and so on becomes an issue. Perhaps the idea is to allow more height and density, but only as a floating zone, so that if and when this project is actually ready yeah, you to know, move forward. I, 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 mean, I hate him too. too but there's some logic to that because – I mean, the, the possibility of this redeveloping is so speculative um, for all the reasons we talked about, including the fact the property owner themselves is saying we're not really looking at redeveloping the site, and, and combined with the fact that I think that this is the kind, it's such a, it is a large site, the whole thing, like 30 acres, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, to, I hate to put somebody through that process of applying for a rezoning, because I know it's difficult and it's expensive, it's time-consuming, you got to go to hearings and with the council, I, I mean, all that good stuff. However, for a site of this size, if you ever d it did get to the point where it looked like these buildings are functionally obsolete, it would, you know, be a big enough chunk of land for it to make sense to go through a very specific uh, process of going through what are the and, – and so we wouldn't have to predict what is going to change where or what the ex exact configuration is. And, we, and you could uh, put that off for some number of years down the road. I'm sorry. And you I could set out that. the Wait, goals. I, I disagree well, with that for a couple of reasons. Well, I didn't get a turn. Give me a turn. Sorry. <laughs> I disagree for a couple of reasons. The first is, you know, floating zones. I remember when I first came on the board, it was all this floating zone here and floating zone there. It's a, that's, that's a mess. We don't know the disposition of any of the properties in a master plan. We look back and like just this morning, we're talking about White Flint. Oh, gee, none of that happened. But we were very specific about what was recommended. So I don't want to start turning around and have everybody say floating zone here and floating zone there. It's just we don't know what's going to be, but staff's made recommendations. I am not in favor of making the road as a recommended if there's some mention to it in the text that this could be an alternative that could be proposed by the developer at the time of redevelopment. As one of the options, I would be okay with that, but I agree with Mary that I think the, the civic uh, green is, is my number one priority with it and incentivizing redevelopment. 
And if you can do that with the 145 across the site, and you can you can include in the text that it could be ideal to to have that street, but you wouldn't have it written in such a way that later when they do come back and ask to redevelop, that staff somewhere down the line is going to say you need to do this, this, and this, or you have to do the road first because it, it's whatever staff at the time's opinion that that's the best. So if we can be clear about that, I don't think we're we're all that far apart. Well, let me just make one thing clear, not exactly, uh, it's not so much uh, to argue with you, but just to point out that since this is not the Bethesda plan and these FIR numbers are still in the, we're proposing a specific FIR number, no matter what the height is, if you apply the same FIR number across the site, you're not getting more units, right? I mean, you could have fewer tall buildings as opposed to more short buildings, but it's the same you get the same right. Line. You'd have to also change the FAR if you're looking to juice it. Well, that, and and five is what was suggested is sufficient to incentivize that. Yeah, yeah I, and that was in light of all the things that were being asked for in the public hearing draft. And I just think that's that is just a non-starter, frankly. I mean, it's too, it's too much. Um, it's not that it that 145 feet. With a, with a few buildings of that kind of intensity would be so horrible at any particular location. But I think if you want to talk about a five for the whole 30 acres, that is a crazy big number. Well, what's a realistic number, and especially in view of what we're talking about, making it clear that these three things are not recommended, but that the priority is some sort of incorporation of the Civic Green and then maybe second the daylight in the park if that, I mean, the stream, if that even makes sense for what we would gain by it. But, yeah, affordable housing is really the the priority with Civic Green and a corporation. So well, if you don't like the floating zone idea, I would suggest going with staff's recommendation with a rec with a recommendation in the plan that says these are the priority benefits and they're th that the combination of which benefits are required is going to depend on how much redevelopment occurs at the time of redevelopment. And would we include the road in there? I would say the road should be one of the three. And I agree with you the Civic Green is number one. I'm but if, saying if you're saying depending is, on how much development that, that what I think I'm hearing you say is that the road is one of the priorities and at the time that someone redevelops, if they're developing the, real, the whole site, that should be in there. They have 30 acres. I, I, I know. If I understand. They, if they want us to come in with a, with a comprehensive plan, like the Blairs, and say, you know what, we have a huge parcel of land, we have a comprehensive idea of what we're going to do with it over the next 10 years or whatever, mm -hmm. here it is. Maybe we get all these things, even at those densities. If they said, on the other hand, you know what, these two buildings are falling down, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the HVAC is shot, it doesn't make any sense to replace it, the, mm -hmm. they're structurally unsound, there's a fire in one of the buildings, whatever the situation is, then no, we're not going to ask them for three or four different things. We're going to ask them maybe for one thing if we're lucky. But that's what I mean when I say it depends on what's the, you know, they, they, you could envision this proceeding in different ways. How do you decide what you're going to ask them for? You just pick well, it? Well, you don't like this idea to say. I don't like the, I don't like the road. I don't like the road, the road either. All right, but you don't like the idea of saying that these are the priorities and which no, ones. No, no, no. I'm, I, I agree on the park uh, location being number one, uh, but I think the road in the plan is just a mistake. Um, it, this is not a road on a flat piece of property that just separates two pieces that are at the same grade. This is a major engineering marvel. Go in that short distance from 30 feet to, and then develop the corner. I mean, I just think it's, 
even asking them to do it at some future date is really not even an, um, <clears throat> okay who who thinks that it would be appropriate to have a floating zone quick question the blairs that wasn't a floating zone right no? no what was that do you remember they redeveloped under the cbd zones they had see 2.2.5 2. adds 1222 units right so if you go to three, it's what fifteen hundred units or sixteen hundred units. We're we're doubling the FAR that right now it's built at about one point two, and our recommendation is two and a half. So we're effectively doubling the FAR. The height might be lower, but um, we really did think about a long-term vision. Southern Management approached us to participate in this sector plan and said, "Hey, our buildings are aging. The infrastructure is definitely um, has a." lifespan to it that's going to be near the end and perhaps near the end of this sector plan time frame. So can you accommodate us in this plan? And we thought long and hard about what the appropriate FAR would be if it were whole scale redevelopment. And Rick, um, who's not here tonight, did an economic analysis, um, a small economic analysis on this. And our zoning does not incentivize redevelopment in the near term, but it does perhaps in a 10 year time frame. And that's, that's really what we've thought about. Uh, okay, um, just an I idea. If you went to three, three which yeah. went up <laughs> to 1,600, yeah. but you had a provision in the master plan that said they could go by floating zone or request up to four, provided they went 15% affordable housing and uh, they lighted the stream uh, and provided the the park is that a legitimate because there's certain thing to do I think that's a there's there's I have no problem with that I'd even support it but I see no reason to go above the staff recommended FAR or anything else absent a floating zone in other words but do you feel confident that what they recommended is actually going to encourage redevelopment and we say we have a financial study but what went into that I would like to see that well no Rick didn't do a full financial like economic performer or anything like that. He he just looked at um, the the current FAR and what we're proposing and given the market and the what's going on in downtown Silver Spring that no our our, our rezoning doesn't incentivize them to redevelop. Okay, so that was okay. the first question Gwen but, asked. Do we want to incentivize? Well and well I'll let's yes. let's take Casey's suggestion for a minute. Um, if we do that and they have additional height, yeah. they would be using making a smaller footprint. So they would have more room to provide a lot of the open space that we're asking for. So that that's a good thing. Is there any reason they should get more density, like for providing higher affordable housing units or both the Civic Green and the – You know, I – to put in – I think this is something before there's a, a decision on this. I, I would actually suggest – we have another work session that you come back on this because even going up to four FAR would be talking about uh, like, maybe three, three and a half. I don't know. You know, we're talking about net new units that are then well over two thousand net new units, and I think that before that's a lot of new units, yes. and that before we do that, is that for three? Gwen, you, you would saying want three or four? On the main body of the site, what Aaron just said is that the existing 1.25 equals about 1,121 units. 
Correct. When they doubled it, that got, gave them another 1,222 net units. That means that 1.25 FAR on this site equals about 1,200 units. So if you went from 2.5 and added another 1.25, which Not is 3.75, then that would be another 1,200 units. 1,000 units. So I think it's just starting to be a lot of numbers. What I would actually like to do, and maybe we can do this with staff, is go back and take a look at the Blairs and look at, because I think it is a very comparable site, and see what the um, FARs are on the Blairs. It was obviously enough FAR that encouraged them to tear down existing concrete five, six-story buildings, and um, just sort of take a look at that as a comparable. Yeah, yeah I, and we can hear from Rick Lou about what his analysis can we, showed. Can we can we decide on the road? Because either we're going to do it or not do it. I, I really no, I, I want to hear from Rick Lou and the staff about what the economics will support before you start making uh, judgments about what will or will not be supported for the benefit. Now, I think the size of this site is deceptive. If you even put the road in, you end up with, again, about approximately a three-acre site. A three-acre site in the, that's, that's walking distance to Metro in essentially the Silver Spring Central Business District with height and FAR, is a valuable site. It's not a little sliver that's left over. So looking at this just in two dimensions is some, sometimes, I think, a little bit deceptive. Um, I think that maybe we need to just come back yeah, and... We have the time. Can I make just really one very quick point with regard to the floating zone? So I'm assuming if that was ultimately a recommendation, which hopefully it won't be, but if it was, that this site would stay as an R10 and lesser until that happens. And I did say last time and in our written letter, and hopefully you guys had a chance to see that, that R10 is terrible. So we've got the community center for the property on this small, very small CRT zone sliver of the site right now. And if we don't get the CR zone, at least on the rest, we can't well, even expand the community I think center. We can, we can consider, among other options, even if there were a floating zone recommendation, what should the base zoning be other than what's there? Okay. Thank That's you. Fine. Okay. Let's take a five-minute break.
Aaron, whenever you're ready. Run, Norman, run. Okay, um, so this next portion of our work session concentrates on the residential area, mainly with parks recommendations here, but um, just to revisit one site from the last work session, the board had asked um, Housing Opportunities Commission, Commission HOC to go back and meet with the community on Site 6A and Site 6B with the board agreeing with HOC that they wanted one zoning classification over the entire site. Staff, Laura mainly, did the analysis. And um, if there were to be one zoning classification over this entire site with a similar compatibility scheme like we have with townhomes buffering single family and uh, residential multifamily near the park, we'd be looking at a 1.25 FAR over the entire site, not a 1.5. So um, we would be looking at a lower FAR, and our understanding is that HOC is still um, in talks with the community about what that, how that language would read um, and still have a few issues to work out. So we're hoping that by the next work, work session we'd have um, clear language to show you on a PowerPoint. If not, um, staff has drafted language, and we're confident in, in our language as well, and we can always use that if we had to. So... Um, so I'll, t I'll turn it over to Parks again um, to talk about Rosemary Hills, Lintonsville. So, Park. and just to clarify, so we're saying we will come back at the yes. next session Sorry. with language, but that we are recommending 1.25 instead of the 1.5. Is that accurate? That, that's correct. The staff recommendation would be 1.25 instead of 1.5 on this site. I have 1.5. This is just showing what you saw last time, but... It would be a change from 1.5 to 1.25, and um, I think HOC understands um, our calculations. The, same. Um, the heights would be, uh, we'd have the CRT at, um, what would we have? What did we have? Um, at, at 65, um, and then obviously there'd be the compatibility requirements um, for all the, the areas of the site that back up to the um, residential 
our 60 lots. There would also the point, be. The 0.25 is creating a ruckus right now? No, no, it's not. We just wanted to be clear that when you, you will see a change um, from what you saw at the last work session on this site. It will, it will go down from 1.5 to 1.25 to continue to accomplish the compatibility goals that are important to um, the community um, on this site. Right, and there would also be specific language of a, a step down to 40 feet in the areas right now highlighted in yellow um, where there should be townhouse development. Okay, so um, as I said, I'll turn it over to Christina now to talk about um, some of the park swaps, uh, or not park swaps, but some of the land exchanges, land swaps that have been part of the sector plan. Thank you. Um, in our previous session, staff was asked to come back uh, with more information on the recommendation on the land swaps and easements. So um, the planning board will feel more comfortable uh, with that type of recommendation. So the information can be found in page 61 and also page 77 and 79 of the sector plan. Uh, we've been actually meeting with the developers of both sites. Bless you. Okay. And the landowners, and so we want to we clarify some of the recommendations and some of the requirements uh, with the developers and landowners. Next slide. So what you see here in the screen on the north side is the agency in the Pettiton Square site, and then to the south is the Rollingwood Apartments. A quick summary on the conditions established for these two sites in the current draft plan. Um, the Pettiton Square is requesting an access easement through Lytonsville Road in exchange for land dedication to parks, while uh, Rollingwood Apartments is requesting a land swap that will provide then frontage along and side access through Lytonsville Road. In exchange, park will get more uh, usable land adjacent to Rosemary Hills Park on an equal or greater amount. Um, the next slides we will show the recommended language changes resulting from these two meetings we had. So for the agency Pettiton Square, uh, the text that is in yellow reflects the new changes, and the red is what was deleted. But pretty much they are requesting an access easement from the Lidonsville Road in exchange for continuous adjacent land dedication in the amount of 0.5 acre. So that's what, you know, we would like the board to vote and agree, and if you have any questions. Is that something you worked out with them? Yeah. Okay, cool. Okay. So um, moving on to Rollingwood Apartments, uh, we can actually go to the next slide. So there are not many changes here on the language for Rollingwood Apartments. We just add a side access that is, was something that, you know, was mentioned in previous studies, so in just decided to add text on that, uh, and if the board has anything to add. I think that's a really good opportunity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So it, uh, it sounds like the board um, has made um, decisions on the park and open space recommendations and related text changes. Um, we obviously will be coming back to you with the Summit Hills um, some, some more clear options, I guess you could say, for the board in terms of, um, you know, an FAR uh, over the entire site and prioritization of um, some of the public benefits and um, what some of the options could be if 
they wanted more density in terms of a floating zone option. Um, but does the board have any questions on some of the, the major transportation elements that have been discussed in the past? Um, I think we talked a lot about so Spring Street Extended, but were there other questions about um, the traffic modeling or capacity? Well, I mean, one of the things that troubles me, and I, I don't want to reopen the can of worms, but about the uh, the board's recommendations on uh, some of these properties right around Brookville is I'm not sure that the redevelopment opportunities in the plan will support improvements to the streetscape on Brookville Road and just re and the sort of reconfiguration of that street to be more less of a uh, high-speed access you know route for truck traffic and and the industrial properties and make it more uh, neighborhood serving you know thoroughfare. Um, so I wondered if you given any thought in light of what the board did last time to what is the pathway to get, uh, you know, some public realm improvements uh, along Brookville in particular. And I just want to say very quickly that, that um, during the affordable housing conference the, two weeks ago, last week, uh, we had the Secretary of uh, the State of Maryland Secretary for Housing and, Com and Community, Holt, that's his last name, right? Um, he mentioned that the state is going to be providing money for businesses uh, are, uh, that are near Purple Line stations and that uh, information is going to be released to the public in October. But there's going to be money for places like, and then I, I approached him and told him the situation with Leetonsville and that this is, you know, that we're proposing an industrial zone. And he said that this is like the perfect example of something that the state will be uh, inclined to provide, to provide money to help these businesses because of the Purple Line. So, so you know. Yeah, I think in terms of Brookville Road improvements, we really did see redevelopment along Brookville Road as the most feasible way to have streetscape improvements happen, um, which is why we, we did recommend that floating zone. Um, Matt's done, um, has looked into, you know, what does the industrial traffic need in terms of road capacity and width, and they're really, they really do need the road as it, as it is today without a median um, so there's, there's limited opportunities for, yeah. And in addition, um, with the design guidelines, we will have, uh, streetscape standards that we'll be developing. And so we can recommend, uh, perhaps some sidewalk improvements that if there is public funding, that could happen along that road. However, there wouldn't be, as, as Aaron just said, uh, a road diet or other changes to the lane configuration, um, because Matt's done that analysis. Well, and, and as I think the board understands that the county, first of all, to make sidewalk improvements, there needs to be in all likelihood some additional land dedication. It's not all something that could be done within the existing right of way that's owned by the county government. The way the county generally gets land dedication is through redevelopment. The county very rarely goes in and just buys additional land to build better sidewalks. And so the I just want to be sort of explicit about this, which is that if there is not um, a mechanism through redevelopment or some other uh, scheme to get land dedicated and to get some private sector funding of sidewalks, 
it's probably unlikely that there will be sidewalks on that stretch of Brookville Road. I mean, it, it is possible we can do design guidelines and streetscape guidelines, and we can say that that's something the plan would like to see, but to actually implement that would uh, take a pretty significant investment by the county government. And and I will encourage you that, you know, to work on these guidelines that you're saying, and also if we can be proactive, and I can give you the card and the contact information because I already introduced myself to this person in the state of Maryland. I mean, they're already writing all they need to write to see how they can uh, give money to this business, to businesses around the Purple Line, you know, in Prince George's and Montgomery County. Money is going to be there. So, you know, I'm not saying that we're going to get everything that we want, but I'm saying that there is an opportunity and we need to grab it. And we're not going back to talk about changing zoning. I'm not trying to talk about changing zoning. I'm just saying, honestly, I think I didn't speak to the person you spoke to, but my understanding of the money that's available for businesses along Purple Line is about helping businesses that are being displaced or other, and yeah. and we're not recommending any change to this zoning in this area. So I'm not sure how. And again, I look. I would like to be proven wrong, but I think that, and I'm not trying to go back to this decision. I'm just saying the plan has to realistically spell out not only what is the ideal condition, but how are we going to get there? And if there is no pathway to get there, then I think we just need to understand that. And it's sort of like the thing we just talked about with um, Summit Hills. I, I'm not saying it has to happen. I'm just saying that if that if it's not going to happen, if there's no feasible way to get it to happen, that the plan shouldn't pretend that it's going to happen. That's all. But I'm happy to hear about other ways to get the this stuff paid for. Uh, since I've been here, I don't think the county has ever uh, done what Gwen is. Yeah, they're just not going to go rip up the street to add sidewalks, period. As far as, at least that would be to totally inconsistent with anything I've ever seen. I mean, they do do sidewalk improvements generally in existing right-of-way. The expensive part of it isn't building the sidewalk. The expensive part of it is actually... Getting this owning the land, coming, getting to own the land that the sidewalk is on. That is what gets to be very expensive. And there, there is, there are sidewalks along Brookville Road for, um, until you get to the bridge that crosses the CSX tracks. And, um, I think that our, uh, yeah, I guess the, the real problem is really in front of the, um, Fort Dietrich Forest Glen Annex where their utility poles are right up against the road. But, um, yeah, in terms of just the the overall atmosphere and the yeah, they're narrow sidewalks. Yeah, it's not right. They're maybe three or four feet wide currently. Yeah, well, and I should I should say we got a couple people asking to speak. I think they're on topics that we have uh, covered, so I don't think we can entertain those requests. I'm sorry, uh, but. Um, Anyway, I think enough said about this. I'm not trying, as I say, I'm not trying to, uh, I would, I would love to find another pathway to make these kind of improvements, but I'm concerned that, that, uh, it's unlikely that there will be one. So we should just be realistic, whatever, uh, the case may be. What? I think we have already been through that, unless you wanted to speak to those very specific things that's, 
the staff had just mentioned. We already talked about uh, the parks issues at the last session, with the exception of just those very narrow narrow issues. I'm not sure what you want to talk about, but I'll let you speak if it's to these issues that we had not resolved last time. But come on up. I'm not trying to shut you down. I just have to, at some point, say we've just, it's time to move on. This, this is our, uh, my name is Abe Shuckman. I'm from Rock Creek Forest. I appreciate the opportunity to see very briefly on the open space topic. We've talked about uh, increased density. We've talked about Rosemary Hills, Littonsville Park. There was discussion at the last session that I was at, the one in April, about what to do with the area behind Clearage House and behind Friendly Gardens. My understanding was that was fairly unresolved. I came here tonight because I'm I was... I'm sorry, could you point out where you're talking about? I'm, I'm not sure what you mean by... The, the Campanaro property is behind Claridge House. We, we did go over that in the site-by-site -site zoning analysis in the last work session. Is, is that what you're referring to? Or? So the, the point I'm trying to make is... The neighborhood concern, the overarching neighborhood concern, is there's a proposal of enormous density. The major green space or open space is the Rosemary Hills Littonsville Park. A number of us spoke with uh, parks folks right after the work session about an additional open space area. The topic turned to uh, a green space or open space by the Purple Line Station that the Campanella property is basically landlocked um, and that that would be a logical uh, open space area that the state and its open space program might very well be interested in uh, green space by the Purple Line Station and that would take some of the pressure off of the increased density on Rosemary Hills Littonsville Park. So that's all I wanted to say to ask for your consideration as you look at open space in the Greater Littonville Plan to consider that Campanella property with the open space dollars from the state for additional green space. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. And Mr. Teitelbaum. Can you hear me? Yes. My name is Joel Teitelbaum. I also live in the real Greater Littonsville, which is the western section of this uh, of this gerrymandered sector plan. you got to bring what, the mic closer or we can't yes, hear you. Uh, of this gerrymandered sector plan. And the real uh, issue that was raised today that I'd like to focus on is the so-called access easement that Paddington is now supposedly requesting instead of a land swap. Is that correct? And I would like to uh, ask the, the board to consider very carefully such an easement in light of the fact that it would cut across real active parkland. And I suggest that whatever type of easement that might be given to uh, Paddington would be have a setback away from the active parts of the park rather than literally a driveway cutting through part of the park. 
uh, that's very important to the, the integrity of this park. And secondly, with regard to the rolling wood, the new side access point on Littonsville Road, the side access point doesn't bother me. What bothers me is that that entire section of land, which is now a ravine unimproved by the Parks Department, all along two long blocks of Littonsville Road, is extremely valuable to the private sector, but is not treated as valuable by the Parks Department. Therefore, it's not improved. However, its monetary capital fungible value to a a real estate company is huge. And just giving a piece of land of equivalent size, square footage, to the parks in exchange for this fungible, high-value piece of property along Littonsville Road with the access points is an unfair exchange. There ought to be an appraisal made by a reputable firm that could assess the the value to the uh, the rolling wood owners of that additional frontage, all frontage land for their redevelopment, and if they want to sell it, sell it, whatever they want to do, because it's private by that time, versus the amount of land that might go to the parks, because the parks needs more land, and we need more expansive land, and I think that uh, that what. Um, Rolling wood would benefit from is basically the uh, road access. So let's see if we can get a better deal for the parks out of this and therefore for the community. Thank you very much. Thank you. My name is Jonathan Gruber. Thank you for making the time. Um, in addition to what Mr. Shookman and Mr. Teitelbaum um, said, um, if you could go back to the, um, the slide where uh, it was showing how the Littonsville Park was the only park in the area, but that there were other parks nearby. I think just like the Summit Hills site where um, the two-dimensional sort of aerial view doesn't really show you the size, that this sort of small corner is actually three and a half acres, those parks that are nearby are not nearby at all. They're at least half a mile's walk. People are not walking to all of those green spaces in Rock Creek Park or Ray's Meadow or Candy Cane City. So I think if you were to walk those distances, you would see that the, it's not really neighborhood green space. It's a completely different area. It's a different zip code. Um, in addition, um, for all of the high density that's being proposed, um, to have that one small swap separately from whether the value of it um, is really a small amount, a small net amount of park um, relative to all of the new potential residents. So, thank you. Thank you. Uh, do you guys want to, or does somebody from Parks want to address those issues now? Yeah, I can, I can respond to the first one about the Campanero property. Um, on page 84 and 85 of the sector plan, we'll actually be coming back to you with some revised text on page 84. Um, I think there's been a little bit of confusion as to what exactly we're recommending um, along the Capitol Crescent Trail. And what we're recommending is a linear green space in this area. Um, and I don't think we were clear enough in the sector plan um, previous version about how that would be, um, how that would be, uh, how that would come to be. So what we're, we'd be changing the text to say create a linear green space through public and public um, and common open space regulatory requirements along the Capitol Crescent Trail for expanded activity areas 
stormwater management and planning buffers to residential areas. So we are recommending a linear space, although not to the size, I believe, that um, some of the residents have spoken to. Um, but we are recommending a linear green space um, at the rear of what is essentially the Campanero and Friendly Garden sites. Um, we did um, we did hear the, the concern about putting a larger park there, but um, we did think that given the site's proximity to the trail, to the Littonsville platform, that um, we we wanted to stick with the CRT zone that we have recommended for those sites. And to serve those sites, we have a proposed street to serve that site that, it, that people have said is landlocked. Um, MTA is going to be providing a driveway, not a street, to serve that Campanero site. So that's why we have on page 85 a proposed street that runs along Friendly Gardens and would would be used to serve those those back sites. So um, we have thought about how redevelopment could occur on those on those sites. So I'll let Park speak to the Rosemary Hills Lindensville local park concerns. Brooke Farquhar, for the record, from Parks. Um, on the rolling wood exchange, there were some questions about are we getting enough value? And this is something we took very seriously. Uh, we do not, when we do land transfers, we do not do them based on, on economic value because it's different to different people. What we base it on is what gain is there for the actual park. And in this case, we're exchanging an area of parkland that really isn't usable now because of its configuration, its topography, et cetera. It's distant from the rest of the park, what we call the tail. And in exchange, we are getting equal or greater. That's what's been agreed to by the um, owners of Rollingwood Apartments. But it's definitely greater recreational value because it's going to be contiguous with the rest of the park, um, we're going to make sure that we can fit some needed amenities there that will be discussed at the time of regulatory review with the community. So no, maybe it's dog park today. Dog parks are popular today, but who knows what will be popular when they come in. Um, and uh, besides that, besides getting the equal or greater land area, the um, developer of Rollingwood will be installing amenities there as well. And that, that language is in the plan. So we feel that we feel very comfortable about that exchange. On the other side, on Paddington Square, um, you may think that half an acre isn't that big, but these days in um, you know, we're very happy to get a, a half an acre of additional parkland. You, you can fit quite a lot on there. I go back to the dog park example. Not that we're necessarily going to put one right there because we don't usually put them within about 200 feet of residences, but a dog park like the one we're building at Ellsworth is less than half an acre in size, and that's going to be a terrific amenity. We test-fitted, uh, Christina uh, test-fitted several different kinds of facilities to, for us to be comfortable with that half acre. Um, and she's going to talk a little bit about uh, where exactly that access goes and, and whether it really impacts our active facilities. So um, the site access that the developer is proposing is actually by the side of the existing trail. So we're not going to be encroaching in, in the areas of um, the existing recreational uh, tennis court or the basketball court. Um, and the, the area that we're going to get back, it will be 
and we, we are we work in the language with the developer that the, the area that is going to be dedicated is going to have to feel like a public space, like it belongs to the park as an expansion of the park. And uh, it's going to be also buffer, and they're going to be preserving some of the existing streets that are along the existing trail. And uh, if you go, Erin, uh, do you have the additional slides? Because when we were discussing about the sizing of the 0.5 acre, um, we went about doing some... Uh, it, can we go down? Down. We can go directly to the case studies. Um, sorry. Um, yeah, the ones, the greens. So pretty much uh, we took a look in a couple of examples what could be fitting in this um, 0.5 acres. So if you go one slide back, we measure a couple of uh, different parks. So from dog parks, we measure, you know, it varies between 0 0.23 to 0 0.5. So we, we took a look in adult fitness. We took a look in gathering spaces and also passive recreation areas. So if you go to the next slide, um, this is in Wheeler Avenue Neighborhood Park uh, in Friendship Highs near Westport. So they have this... Uh, fitness stations. So we just took a brief look in the area. So that represents 0 0.6 acres. So if we are going to do some adult fitness, you know, this is an approximate area, is an area that we already, it already exists in the county. And the next one. So uh, we took a look in Ellsworth Park and you know, how big it is. It's 0 0.45 is going to be, you know, opening soon in Silver Spring. And then we took a look in, then we went a look and I said, okay, what about Yards Park? And it was very successful, it's very useful. So when we were talking about multiple uses, multiple functions in parks, we're going to be sh showing the Yards Park in different occasions. So they, they usually do yoga classes there, and I kind of just approximate the area that usually they use, and you can see in the picture, it's 0.12 acres, and if you go to the next one, uh, so when they do events and uh, they have concerts, so it's a point eighty one, and those like are big, big yard concerts, you know, with bands and everything. Uh, and then if you go to the next one, then you have sort of the connection to nature, sort of the passive recreation, and and they have that garden really next uh, next door, and it's zero point forty five, and it's a really nice garden. Uh, so. We, we're just a couple of examples to show that we test fit the 0 0.5, and that can be really nice integrated to the existing park. Well, I don't know if you're prepared to answer this question, but I, th you know, we've persistently heard this um, idea that this, that there's so much new development here that it'll overwhelm the parks. And honestly, I I use Rosemary uh, Hills Park uh, frequently. Um, and Ray's Meadow, which I get access to from this neighborhood right here through Littonsville using the trail. And I think this neighborhood is probably better served by parkland than just about any other neighborhood inside the Beltway. Um, but I understand people have different subjective, you know, experiences. So I wonder if uh, at some point you could prepare some explanation of why you think this, uh, the total amount of parkland, whatever it winds up, uh, being is how that compares to the level of service that other uh, communities have. We, we certainly can do that. We've um, done it before. We know there are several sector plans that aren't as fortunate as uh, to have a large local park in the middle of them. Um, 
we, of course, in parks, we'd always like more parkland, but um, it, we'd be happy to do a comparison for you. Great. One other thing um, you'll see in the next uh, work session, we'll um, have new language, extensive language on public schools from MCPS. So we'll actually be removing um, the recommendation about the Rock Creek pool site as a potential school site. Um, and it's important to note that we've we've looked at it, and that that site is actually serving a lot of recreational needs as well as an eight-acre green site with a pool, and there's sledding there, and people use um, use that green space as well. So I just wanted to, while while it's not technically counted as parkland, I just wanted to point out that. Um, right. Well, for that matter, you know, Yeshiva so. School has an agreement that they uh, allow public use of their um, athletic fields, which is accessible directly from this neighborhood and also from Woodside and also from the area around Seminary. So there are a number of, I think, significant um, quasi-public or, or uh, effectively public uh, places in addition to the public time parkland. Okay. Did you want to cover anything else? I think we're just uh, looking for the board to confirm that um, you've made the zoning decisions on everything except Summit Hills, and you want to proceed to the next work session and cover schools and um, more options for Summit Hills. I think so. Yes, ma'am. Sure. Come on, come on up so everybody can hear you. Just if you wouldn't mind speaking to the microphone so people in the back can. Thank you. My name is Loretta Argrette, and I just want to ask a question about the discussion about the parkland and the uh, um, possible amount of parkland that may be available to the community after the sector plan is approved. Uh, it seems to me that you can't look at the number of acreage, acreage or square feet with respect to this community and compare it to, say, Potomac, or Chevy Chase. Many of the residents, you have to look at the, 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 the sort of the income level because many of the residents in some of those other communities belong to country clubs and they have access to areas that members in this community do not have. And I just would like for you to take those kinds of data into account when you're making decisions of how much uh, acreage or parkland will be available, particularly after you are increasing the density. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm sure we can do that. Okay. Uh, so if there's nothing else, I think we're adjourned. Thank you all for coming. <laughs>